Moby Dick, Chapters 64 to 67. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This reading by Stuart Wills. Moby Dick by Herman Melville, Chapters 64 to 67. Chapter 64 Stubb's Supper. Stubb's whale had been killed some distance from the ship. It was a calm, so, forming a tandem of three boats, we commenced the slow business of towing the trophy to the Pequod. And now, as we eighteen men, with our thirty-six arms and one hundred and eighty thumbs and fingers, slowly toiled hour after hour upon that inert sluggish corpse in the sea, and it seemed hardly to budge at all except at long intervals, good evidence was hereby furnished of the enormousness of the mass we moved. For upon the great canal of Hang Ho, or whatever they call it, in China, four or five laborers on the footpath will draw a bulky freighted junk at the rate of a mile an hour. But this grand argosy we towed heavily forged along, as if laden with pig-lead in bulk. Darkness came on, but three lights up and down in the Pequod's main rigging dimly guided our way, till drawing nearer we saw Ahab dropping one of several more lanterns over the bulwarks. Vacantly eyeing the heaving whale for a moment, he issued the usual orders for securing it for the night, and then handing his lantern to a seaman, went his way into the cabin, and did not come forward again until morning. Though in overseeing the pursuit of this whale, Captain Ahab had evinced his customary activity, to call it so, yet now that the creature was dead, some vague dissatisfaction, or impatience, or despair seemed working in him, as if the sight of that dead body reminded him that Moby Dick was yet to be slain. And, though a thousand other whales were brought to his ship, all that would not one jot advance his grand monomaniac object. Very soon you would have thought from the sound of the Pequod's decks that all hands were preparing to cast anchor in the deep, for heavy chains are being dragged along the deck and thrust rattling out of the portholes. But by those clanking links the vast corpse itself, not the ship, is to be moored, tied by the head to the stern and by the tail to the bows, the whale now lies with its black hull close to the vessels, and seen through the darkness of the night, which obscured the spars and rigging aloft, the two, ship and whale, seemed yoked together like colossal bullocks, whereof one reclines while the other remains standing. Footnote. A little item may as well be related here. The strongest and most reliable hold which the ship has upon the whale, when moored alongside, is by the flukes or tail, and as from its greater density that part is relatively heavier than any other, excepting the side fins, its flexibility, even in death, causes it to sink low beneath the surface, so that with the hand you cannot get at it from the boat in order to put the chain around it. But this difficulty is ingeniously overcome. A small, strong line is prepared, with a wooden float at its outer end, and a weight in its middle, while the other end is secured to the ship. By adroit management the wooden float is made to rise on the other side of the mass, 
so that now having girdled the whale, the chain is readily made to follow suit, and being slipped along the body, is at last locked fast round the smallest part of the tail, at the point of junction with its broad flukes or lobes. End of footnote. If moody Ahab was now all quiescence, at least so far as could be known on deck, Stubb, his second mate, flushed with conquest, betrayed an unusual but still good-natured excitement. Such an unwanted bustle was he in, that the stead Starbuck, his official superior, quietly resigned to him for the time the sole management of affairs. One small helping cause of all this liveliness in Stubb was soon made strangely manifest. Stubb was a high liver. He was somewhat intemperately fond of the whale, as a flavorish thing to his palate. A steak! A steak! Ere I sleep! You, Dagoo, overboard you go, and cut me one from his small! Here be it known that though these wild fishermen do not as a general thing, according to the great military maxim, make the enemy defray the current expenses of the war, at least before receiving the proceeds of the voyage, yet now and then you find some of these Nantucketers who have a genuine relish for that particular part of the sperm-whale designated by Stubb, comprising the tapering extremity of the body. About midnight that steak was cut and cooked, and lighted by two lanterns of sperm-oil, Stubb stoutly stood up to his spermaceti supper at the capstan head, as if that capstan were a sideboard. Nor was Stubb the only banqueter on whale's flesh that night. Mingling their mumblings with his own mastications, thousands on thousands of sharks, swarming round the dead leviathan, smackingly feasted on its fatness. The few sleepers below in their bunks were often startled by the sharp slapping of their tails against the hull, within a few inches of the sleepers' hearts. Peering over the side you could just see them, as before you heard them, wallowing in the sullen, black waters, and turning over on their backs as they scooped out huge, globular pieces of the whale of the bigness of a human head. This particular feat of the shark seems all but miraculous. How, at such an apparently unassailable surface, they contrive to gouge out such symmetrical mouthfuls, remains a part of the universal problem of all things. The mark that they thus leave in the whale may best be likened to a hollow made by a carpenter in countersinking for a screw. Though, amid all the smoking horror and diabolism of a sea-fight, sharks will be seen longingly gazing up to the ship's decks, like hungry dogs round a table where red meat is being carved, ready to bolt down every killed man that is tossed to them, and though, while the valiant butchers over the deck-table are thus cannibally carving each other's live meat with carving-knives all gilded and tasseled, the sharks, also, with their jewel-hilted mouths, are quarrelsomely carving away under the table at the dead meat. And though, were you to turn the whole affair upside down, it would still be pretty much the same thing, that is to say, a shocking, sharkish business enough for all parties, and though sharks also are the invariable outriders of all slave ships crossing the Atlantic, 
symmetrically trotting alongside to be handy in case a parcel is to be carried anywhere, or a dead slave to be decently buried. And though one or two other like instances might be set down, touching the set terms, places, and occasions, when sharks do most socially congregate, and most hilariously feast, yet there is no conceivable time or occasion when you will find them in such countless numbers, and in gayer or more jovial spirits, than around a dead sperm-whale, moored by night to a whale-ship at sea. If you have never seen that sight, then suspend your decision about the propriety of devil-worship, and the expediency of conciliating the devil. But as yet Stubb heeded not the mumblings of the banquet that was going on so nigh him, no more than the sharks heeded the smacking of his own epicurean lips. "'Cook! Cook! Where's that old fleece?' he cried at length, widening his legs still further, as if to form a more secure base for his supper and at the same time darting his fork into the dish, as if stabbing with his lance. "'Cook! You, cook! Sail this way, cook!' The old black, not in any very high glee at having been previously roused from his warm hammock at a most unseasonable hour, came shambling along from his galley, for like many old blacks, there was something the matter with his knee-pans, which he did not keep well scoured like his other pans. This old fleece, as they called him, came shuffling and limping along, assisting his step with his tongs, which, after a clumsy fashion, were made of straightened iron hoops. This old ebony floundered along, and in obedience to the word of command, came to a dead stop on the opposite side of Stubb's sideboard when, with both hands folded before him, and resting on his two-legged cane, he bowed his arched back still further over, at the same time sideways inclining his head, so as to bring his best ear into play. "'Cook,' said Stubb, rapidly lifting a rather reddish morsel to his mouth, "'don't you think this steak is rather overdone? You've been beating this steak too much, Cook, it's too tender.' "'Don't I always say that to be good a whale-steak must be tough? "'There are those sharks now over the side. "'Don't you see they prefer it tough and rare? "'What a shindy they are kicking up. "'Cook, go and talk to them. "'Tell them they are welcome to help themselves civilly, "'and in moderation, but they must keep quiet. "'Blast me, if I can hear my own voice. "'Away, Cook, and deliver my message. "'Here, take this lantern.' snatching one from his sideboard. Now then, go and preach to him. Sullenly taking the offered lantern, old Fleece limped across the deck to the bulwarks, and then, with one hand dropping his light low over the sea, so as to get a good view of his congregation, with the other hand he solemnly flourished his tongs, and leaning far over the side in a mumbling voice, began addressing the sharks, while Stubb, softly crawling behind, overheard all that was said. "'Fellow critters, I's ordered here to say that you must stop dat damn noise there. You hear? Stop dat damn smackin' of the lips. Massa Stubb say that you can fill your damn bellies up to the hatchings, but by gore you must stop dat damn racket.' "'Cook!' here interposed Stubb accompanying the word with a sudden slap on the shoulder. "'Cook! 
Why, damn your eyes, you mustn't swear that way when you're preaching. That's no way to convert sinners, cook. Who dat? Then preach to him yourself, sullenly turning to go. No, cook, go on, go on. Well, then, beloved fellow critters. Right, exclaimed Stubb approvingly. Coax em to it. Try that. And Fleece continued. Though you is all sharks, and by nature very voracious, yet I say to you, fellow critters, dat dat voraciousness, top dat damn slappin' of de tail. How you tink to hear, s'pose you keep up such de damn slappin' and bitin' dare? Cook, cried Stubb, collaring him, I won't have that swearing. Talk to em gentlemanly. Once more the sermon proceeded. Your voraciousness, fellow critters, I don't blame you so much for. That is nature, and can't be helped. But to govern that wicked nature, that is the pint. You is sharks, sartin. But if you govern the shark in you, why then you be angel. For all angel is nothing more than the shark well governed. Now look here, brethren. Just try once to be civil. A helping yourselves from dat whale. Don't be tearing de blubber out o' your neighbor's mouth, I say. Is not one shark dood right as tudder to dat whale? And by gore, none o' you has de right to dat whale. Dat whale belong to someone else. I know some o' you has berry brig mouth, brigger than others. But den de big mouth sometimes had de small bellies, so that de brigness of de mouth is not to swallow with, but to bid off de blubber for de small fry of sharks that can't get into de scrounge to help themselves. Well done, old fleece, cried Stubb. That's Christianity. Go on. No use going on. De damn willins will keep a scourging and a slapping each other, Master Stubb. They don't hear one word. No use a preaching to such damn gluttons as you call em till their bellies is full, and their bellies is bottomless. And when they do get em full, they won't hear you then, for then they sink in the sea, go fast asleep on de coral, and can't hear nothing at all, no more, forever and ever. Upon my soul I am about of the same opinion. So give the benediction, Fleece, and I'll away to my supper. Upon this, Fleece, holding both hands over the fishy mob, raised his shrill voice and cried, Cursed fellow critters, kick up the damnedest row as ever you can, fill your damn bellies till they burst, and then die. Now, cook, said Stubb, resuming his supper at the capstan, stand just where you stood before there, over against me, and pay particular attention. All attention, said Fleece, again stooping over his tongs in the desired position. Well, said Stubb, helping himself freely meanwhile, I shall now go back to the subject of this steak. In the first place, how old are you, cook? What dat to do with the take? said the old black testily. Silence! How old are you, cook? About ninety, they say, he gloomily muttered. And you have lived in this world hard upon one hundred years, cook, and don't know yet how to cook a whale steak. 
rapidly bolting another mouthful at the last word, so that morsel seemed a continuation of the question. "'Where were you born, Cook?' "'Hind a hatchway, in ferry-boat, going over to Roanoke.' "'Born in a ferry-boat! That's queer, too. But I want to know what country you were born in, Cook.' "'Didn't I say to Roanoke country?' he cried sharply. "'No, you didn't, Cook. But I'll tell you what I'm coming to, Cook. You must go home and be born over again. You don't know how to cook a whale-steak yet.' "'Bress my soul if I cook another one,' he growled angrily turning round to depart. "'Come back here, cook. Here, hand me those tongs. Now take that bit of steak there, and tell me if you think that steak cooked as it should be. Take it, I say,' holding the tongs toward him. "'Take it, and taste it.' Faintly smacking his withered lips over it for a moment, the old negro muttered, "'Best cooked take I ever taste. Juicy, very juicy.' "'Cook?' said Stubb, squaring himself once more. "'Do you belong to the church?' "'Passed one once in Cape Town,' said the old man sullenly. "'And you have once in your life passed a holy church in Cape Town, where you doubtless overheard a holy parson addressing his hearers as his beloved fellow-creatures, have you, Cook? And yet you come here, and tell me such a dreadful lie as you did just now, eh?' said Stubb. "'Where do you expect to go to, Cook?' "'Go to bed very soon,' he mumbled, half turning as he spoke. "'Avast! Heave to!' "'I mean when you die, Cook.' "'It's an awful question. Now what's your answer?' "'When this old brack man dies,' said the negro slowly, changing his whole air and demeanour, "'he hisself won't go nowhere, but some bressed angel will come and fetch him.' fetch him how in a coach and four as they fetched elijah and fetch him where up there said fleece holding his tongs straight over his head and keeping it there very solemnly so then you expect to go up into our main top do you cook when you are dead but don't you know the higher you climb the colder it gets main top eh didn't say that at all said Fleece, again in the sulks. You said up there, didn't you? And now look yourself and see where your tongs are pointing. But perhaps you expect to get into heaven by crawling through the lubber's hole, Cook. But no, no, Cook, you don't get there except you go the regular way, round by the rigging. It's a ticklish business, but it must be done, or else it's no go. But none of us are in heaven yet. Drop your tongs, Cook, and hear my orders, do you hear? Hold your hat in one hand, and clap the other atop your heart, when I'm giving my orders, Cook. What? That your heart, there? That's your gizzard! Aloft, aloft! That's it, now you have it. Hold it there now, and pay attention. All attention, said the old black, with both hands placed as desired, vainly wriggling his grizzled head as if to get both ears in front, at one and the same time. "'Well, then, Cook, you see this whale-steak of yours was so very bad that I have put it out of sight as soon as possible. You see that, don't you?' "'Well, for the future, when you cook another whale-steak for my private table here, the capstan, I'll tell you what to do, 
so as not to spoil it by overdoing. Hold the stake in one hand, and show a live coal to it with the other. That done, dish it, do you hear? And now tomorrow, cook, when we are cutting in the fish, be sure you stand by to get the tips of his fins, have them put in pickle. As for the ends of the flukes, have them soused, cook. There, now you may go. But Fleece had hardly got three paces off when he was recalled. Cook, give me cutlets for supper tomorrow night in the mid-watch. Do you hear? Away you sail, then. Hello! Stop! Make a bow before you go. Avast! Heaving again! Whale-balls for breakfast, don't forget. Wish, by gore, whale eat him, stead of him eat whale. I'm breast if he ain't more of shark than Massa shark hisself, muttered the old man, limping away, with which sage ejaculation he went to his hammock. Chapter 65 The Whale as a Dish That mortal man should feed upon the creature that feeds his lamp, and, like Stubb, eat him by his own light, as you may say, this seems so outlandish a thing that one must needs go a little into the history and philosophy of it. It is upon record that three centuries ago the tongue of the right whale was esteemed a great delicacy in France, and commanded large prices there. Also, that in Henry the Eighth's time a certain cook of the court obtained a handsome reward for inventing an admirable sauce to be eaten with barbecued porpoises, which, you remember, are a species of whale. Porpoises, indeed, are to this day considered fine eating. The meat is made into balls about the size of billiard balls, and being well seasoned and spiced, might be taken for turtle balls or veal balls. The old monks of Dunfermline were very fond of them. They had a great porpoise grant from the crown. The fact is that, among his hunters at least, the whale would by all hands be considered a noble dish, were there not so much of him. But when you come to sit down before a meat pie nearly one hundred feet long, it takes away your appetite. Only the most unprejudiced of men, like Stubb, nowadays partake of cooked whales. But the Eskimos are not so fastidious. We all know how they live upon whales, and have rare old vintages of prime old train oil. Zogranda, one of their most famous doctors, recommends strips of blubber for infants as being exceedingly juicy and nourishing. And this reminds me that certain Englishmen, who long ago were accidentally left in Greenland by a whaling vessel, that these men actually lived for several months on the mouldy scraps of whales which had been left ashore after trying out the blubber. Among the Dutch whalemen these scraps are called fritters, which indeed they greatly resemble, being brown and crisp, and smelling something like old Amsterdam housewives' doughnuts or oily cooks when fresh. They have such an edible look that the most self-denying stranger can hardly keep his hands off. But what further depreciates the whale as a civilized dish is his exceeding richness. He is the great prize ox of the sea, too fat to be delicately good. Look at his hump, which would be as fine eating as the buffalo's, which is esteemed a rare dish, were it not such a solid pyramid of fat. 
but the spermaceti itself, how bland and creamy that is, like the transparent half-jellied white meat of a coconut in the third month of its growth, yet far too rich to supply a substitute for butter. Nevertheless, many whalemen have a method of absorbing it into some other substance and then partaking of it. In the long try-watches of the night it is a common thing for the seamen to dip their ship-biscuit into the huge oil-pots and let them fry there a while. Many a good supper have I thus made. In the case of a small sperm-whale, the brains are accounted a fine dish. The casket of the skull is broken into with an axe, and the two plump, whitish lobes being withdrawn, precisely resembling two large puddings, they are then mixed with flour and cooked into a most delectable mess, in flavor somewhat resembling calves' heads, which is quite a dish among some epicures. And every one knows that some young bucks among the epicures, by continually dining upon calves' brains, by and by get to have a little brains of their own, so as to be able to tell a calf's head from their own heads, which indeed requires uncommon discrimination. And that is the reason why a young buck with an intelligent-looking calf's head before him is somehow one of the saddest sights you can see. The head looks a sort of reproachfully at him, with an et tu brute expression. It is not, perhaps, entirely because the whale is so excessively unctuous that landsmen seem to regard the eating of him with abhorrence. That appears to result in some way from the consideration before mentioned, i.e., that a man should eat a newly murdered thing of the sea, and eat it, too, by its own light. But no doubt the first man that ever murdered an ox was regarded as a murderer. Perhaps he was hung, and if he had been put on his trial by oxen, he certainly would have been, and he certainly deserved it, if any murderer does. Go to the meat market of a Saturday night and see the crowds of live bipeds staring up at the long rows of dead quadrupeds. Does not that sight take a tooth out of the cannibal's jaw? Cannibals? Who is not a cannibal? I tell you, it will be more tolerable for the Fiji that salted down a lean missionary in his cellar against a coming famine, it will be more tolerable for that provident Fiji, I say, in the day of judgment, than for thee, civilized and enlightened gourmand, who nailest geese to the ground and feastest on their bloated livers in thy pâté de foie gras. But Stubb, he eats the whale by its own light, does he? And that is adding insult to injury, is it? Look at your knife-handle there, my civilized and enlightened gourmand, dining off that roast beef. What is that handle made of? What but the bones of the brother of the very ox you are eating? And what do you pick your teeth with after devouring that fat goose? With a feather of the same fowl. And with what quill did the secretary of the Society for the Suppression of Cruelty to Ganders formally indict his circulars? It is only within the last month or two that that society passed a resolution to patronize nothing but steel pens. Chapter 66 The Shark Massacre when, in the southern fishery, a captured sperm whale, after long and weary toil, is brought alongside late at night, 
It is not, as a general thing at least, customary to proceed at once to the business of cutting him in, for that business is an exceedingly laborious one, is not very soon completed, and requires all hands to set about it. Therefore the common usage is to take in all sail, lash the helm a lee, and then send everyone below to his hammock till daylight, with the reservation that until that time anchor watches shall be kept, that is, two and two, for an hour each couple, the crew in rotation shall mount the deck to see that all goes well. But sometimes, especially upon the line in the Pacific, this plan will not answer at all, because such incalculable hosts of sharks gather round the moored carcass, that were he left so for six hours, say, on a stretch, little more than the skeleton would be visible by morning. In most other parts of the ocean, however, where these fish do not so largely abound, their wondrous veracity can be at times considerably diminished by vigorously stirring them up with sharp whaling spades, a procedure notwithstanding which, in some instances, only seems to tickle them into still greater activity. But it was not thus in the present case with the Pequod sharks, though to be sure any man unaccustomed to such sights, to have looked over her side that night, would have almost thought the whole round sea was one huge cheese, and those sharks the maggots in it. Nevertheless, upon Stubb setting the anchor watch after his supper was concluded, and when, accordingly, Queequeg and a forecastle seaman came on deck, no small excitement was created among the sharks, for immediately suspending the cutting stages over the side, and lowering three lanterns so that they cast long gleams of light over the turbid seas, these two mariners, darting their long whaling spades, kept up an incessant murdering of the sharks, by striking the keen steel deep into their skulls, seemingly their only vital part. Footnote. The whaling spade used for cutting in is made of the very best steel, is about the bigness of a man's spread hand, and in general shape corresponds to the garden implement after which it is named, only its sides are perfectly flat, and its upper end considerably narrower than the lower. This weapon is always kept as sharp as possible, and when being used is occasionally honed, just like a razor. In its socket a stiff pole from twenty to thirty feet long is inserted for a handle. End of footnote. But in the foamy confusion of their mixed and struggling hosts, the marksmen could not always hit their mark, and this brought about new revelations of the incredible ferocity of the foe. They viciously snapped, not only at each other's disembowelments, but, like flexible bows, bent round and bit their own, till those entrails seemed swallowed over and over again by the same mouth, to be oppositely voided by the gaping wound. Nor was this all. It was unsafe to meddle with the corpses and ghosts of these creatures. A sort of generic or pantheistic vitality seemed to lurk in their very joints and bones, after what might be called the individual life had departed. Killed and hoisted on deck for the sake of his skin, one of these sharks almost took poor Queequeg's hand off when he tried to shut down the dead lid of his murderous jaw. Queequeg no care what God made him shark, said the savage, agonizingly lifting his hand up and down, whether Fiji God or Nantucket God. 
but to God what made shark must be one damn engine. Chapter 67 Cutting In It was a Saturday night, and such a Sabbath as followed. Ex-officio professors of Sabbath-breaking are all whalemen. The ivory Pequod was turned into what seemed a shamble, every sailor a butcher. You would have thought we were offering up ten thousand red oxen to the sea-gods. In the first place, the enormous cutting-tackles, among other ponderous things comprising a cluster of blocks generally painted green, and which no single man can possibly lift, this vast bunch of grapes was swayed up to the main-top, and firmly lashed to the lower masthead, the strongest point anywhere above a ship's deck. The end of the hawser-like rope winding through these intricacies was then conducted to the windlass, and the huge lower block of the tackles was swung over the whale. To this block the great blubber-hook, weighing some one hundred pounds, was attached. And now, suspended in stages over the side, Starbuck and Stubb, the mates, armed with their long spades, began cutting a hole in the body for the insertion of the hook, just above the nearest of the two side-fins. This done, a broad semicircular line is cut round the hole, the hook is inserted, and the main body of the crew, striking up a wild chorus, now commence heaving in one dense crowd at the windlass, when instantly the entire ship careens over on her side, every bolt in her starts like the nail-heads of an old house in frosty weather. She trembles, quivers, and nods her frighted mastheads to the sky. More and more she leans over to the whale, while every gasping heave of the windlass is answered by a helping heave from the billows, till at last a swift startling snap is heard. With a great swash the ship rolls upward and backwards from the whale, and the triumphant tackle rises into sight, dragging after it the disengaged semicircular end of the first strip of blubber. Now, as the blubber envelops the whale precisely as the rind does an orange, so it is stripped off from the body precisely as an orange is sometimes stripped by spiralizing it. For the strain constantly kept up by the windlass continually keeps the whale rolling over and over in the water, and as the blubber in one strip uniformly peels off along the line called the scarf, simultaneously cut by the spades of Starbuck and Stubb, the mates, and just as fast as it is thus peeled off, and indeed by that very act itself, it is all the time being hoisted higher and higher aloft, till its upper end grazes the main top. The men at the windlass then cease heaving, and for a moment or two the prodigious blood-dripping mass sways to and fro as if let down from the sky, and every one present must take good heed to dodge it when it swings, else it may box his ears and pitch him headlong overboard. One of the attending harpooners now advances with a long keen weapon called a boarding-sword, and, watching his chance, he dexterously slices out a considerable hole in the lower part of the swaying mass. Into this hole, the end of the second alternating great tackle is then hooked, so as to retain a hold upon the blubber, in order to prepare for what follows. Whereupon this accomplished swordsman, warning all hands to stand off, 
once more makes a scientific dash at the mass, and with a few sidelong desperate lunging slicings, severs it completely in twain, so that while the short lower part is still fast, the long upper strip, called a blanket piece, swings clear, and is all ready for lowering. The heavers forward now resume their song, and while the one tackle is peeling and hoisting a second strip from the whale, the other is slowly slackened away, and down goes the first strip through the main hatchway right beneath, into an unfurnished parlour called the blubber room. Into this twilight apartment, sundry nimble hands keep coiling away the long blanket piece as if it were a great live mass of pleated serpents. And thus the work proceeds, the two tackles hoisting and lowering simultaneously, both whale and windlass heaving, the heavers singing, the blubber room gentlemen coiling, the mates scarfing, the ships straining, and all hands swearing occasionally, by way of assuaging the general friction. End of chapters 64 to 67 Moby Dick, Chapters 68 to 71. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This reading by Stuart Wills. Moby Dick by Herman Melville, Chapters 68 to 71. Chapter 68 The Blanket. I have given no small attention to that not unvexed subject, the skin of the whale. I have had controversies about it with experienced whalemen afloat, and learned naturalists ashore. My original opinion remains unchanged, but it is only an opinion. The question is, what and where is the skin of the whale? Already you know what his blubber is. That blubber is something of the consistence of firm, close-grained beef, but tougher, more elastic and compact, and ranges from eight or ten to twelve and fifteen inches in thickness. Now, however preposterous it may at first seem to talk of any creature's skin as being of that sort of consistence and thickness, yet in point of fact these are no arguments against such a presumption because you cannot raise any other dense enveloping layer from the whale's body but that same blubber, and the outermost enveloping layer of any animal, if reasonably dense, what can that be but the skin? True, from the unmarred dead body of the whale, you may scrape off with your hand an infinitely thin, transparent substance, somewhat resembling the thinnest shreds of isinglass, only it is almost as flexible and soft as satin, that is, previous to being dried, when it not only contracts and thickens, but becomes rather hard and brittle. I have several such dried bits, which I use for marks in my whale-books. It is transparent, as I said before, and being laid upon the printed page, I have sometimes pleased myself with fancying it exerted a magnifying influence, at any rate, it is pleasant to read about whales through their own spectacles, as you may say. But what I am driving at here is this. 
The same infinitely thin isinglass substance, which, I admit, invests the entire body of the whale, is not so much to be regarded as the skin of the creature, as the skin of the skin, so to speak. For it were simply ridiculous to say that the proper skin of the tremendous whale is thinner and more tender than the skin of a newborn child. But no more of this. Assuming the blubber to be the skin of the whale, then when this skin, as in the case of a very large sperm whale, will yield the bulk of one hundred barrels of oil, and when it is considered that, in quantity, or rather weight, that oil, in its express state, is only three-fourths, and not the entire substance of the coat, some idea may hence be had of the enormousness of that animated mass, a mere part of whose mere integument yields such a lake of liquid as that. Reckoning ten barrels to the ton, you have ten tons for the net weight of only three-quarters of the stuff of the whale's skin. In life the visible surface of the sperm-whale is not the least among the many marvels he presents. Almost invariably it is all over obliquely crossed and recrossed with numberless straight marks in thick array, something like those in the finest Italian line engravings. But these marks do not seem to be impressed upon the isinglass substance above mentioned, but seem to be seen through it, as if they were engraved upon the body itself. Nor is this all. In some instances, to the quick, observant eye, those linear marks, as in a veritable engraving, but afford the ground for far other delineations. These are hieroglyphical, that is, if you call those mysterious ciphers on the walls of the pyramids hieroglyphics, then that is the proper word to use in the present connection. By my retentive memory of the hieroglyphics upon one sperm whale in particular, I was much struck with a plate representing the old Indian characters chiseled on the famous hieroglyphic palisades on the banks of the upper Mississippi. Like those mystic rocks, too, the mystic-marked whale remains undecipherable. This allusion to the Indian rocks reminds me of another thing. Besides all the other phenomena which the exterior of the sperm-whale presents, he not seldom displays the back, and more especially his flanks, effaced in great part of the regular linear appearance by reason of numerous rude scratches, altogether of an irregular, random aspect. I should say that those New England rocks on the sea-coast, which Agassiz imagines to bear the marks of violent scraping contact with vast floating icebergs, I should say that those rocks must not a little resemble the sperm-whale in this particular. It also seems to me that such scratches in the whale are probably made by hostile contact with other whales, for I have most remarked them in the large, full-grown bulls of the species. A word or two more concerning this matter of the skin or blubber of the whale. It has already been said that it is stripped from him in long pieces, called blanket pieces. Like most sea terms, this one is very happy and significant, for the whale is indeed wrapped up in his blubber, as in a real blanket or counterpane, or, still better, an Indian poncho slipped over his head and skirting his extremity. 
It is by reason of this cozy blanketing of his body that the whale is enabled to keep himself comfortable in all weathers, in all seas, times, and tides. What would become of a Greenland whale, say, in those shuddering icy seas of the north, if unsupplied with his cozy surtout? True, other fish are found exceedingly brisk in those hyperborean waters, but these, be it observed, are your cold-blooded, lungless fish, whose very bellies are refrigerators, creatures that warm themselves under the lee of an iceberg, as a traveller in winter would bask before an inn-fire. Whereas, like man, the whale has lungs and warm blood, frees his blood, and he dies. How wonderful it is, then, except after explanation, that this great monster, to whom corporeal warmth is as indispensable as it is to man, how wonderful that he should be found at home, immersed to his lips for life in those arctic waters, where, when seamen fall overboard, they are sometimes found months afterward, perpendicularly frozen into the hearts of fields of ice, as a fly is found glued in amber. But more surprising it is to know, as has been proved by experiment, that the blood of a polar whale is warmer than that of a Borneo negro in summer. It does seem to me that herein we see the rare virtue of a strong individual vitality, and the rare virtue of thick walls, and the rare virtue of interior spaciousness. Oh, man, admire and model thyself after the whale. Do thou, too, remain warm among ice. Do thou, too, live in this world without being of it. Be cool at the equator. Keep thy blood fluid at the pole. Like the great dome of St. Peter's, and like the great whale, retain, O oh man, in all seasons, a temperature of thine own but how easy and how hopeless to teach these fine things of erections how few are domed like st peter's of creatures how few vast as the whale chapter sixty nine the funeral haul in the chains let the carcass go astern the vast tackles have now done their duty the peeled white body of the beheaded whale flashes like a marble sepulchre. Though changed in hue, it has not perceptibly lost anything in bulk. It is still colossal. Slowly it floats more and more away, the water round it torn and splashed by the insatiate sharks, and the air above vexed with rapacious flights of screaming fowls, whose beaks are like so many insulting poniards in the whale. The vast, white, headless phantom floats further and further from the ship, and every rod that it so floats, what seems square roods of sharks and cubic roods of fowls augment the murderous din. For hours and hours from the almost stationary ship that hideous sight is seen. Beneath the unclouded and mild azure sky, upon the fair face of the pleasant sea, wafted by the joyous breezes that great mass of death floats on and on till lost in infinite perspectives there's a most doleful and most mocking funeral the sea vultures all in pious mourning the air sharks all punctiliously in black or speckled in life but few of them would have helped the whale i ween if peradventure he had needed it 
but upon the banquet of his funeral they most piously do pounce. O oh, horrible vulturism of earth, from which not the mightiest whale is free! Nor is this the end. Desecrated as the body is, a vengeful ghost survives and hovers over it to scare. Espied by some timid man-of-war or blundering discovery vessel from afar, when the distance obscuring the swarming fowls nevertheless still shows the white mass floating in the sun, and the white spray heaving high against it, straightway the whale's unharming corpse with trembling fingers is set down in the log. Shoals, rocks, and breakers hereabouts, beware! And for years afterwards, perhaps, ships shun the place. Leaping over it as silly sheep leap over a vacuum, because their leader originally leaped there when a stick was held. There's your law of precedence, there's your utility of traditions, there's the story of your obstinate survival of old beliefs never bottomed on the earth, and not now even hovering in the air. There's orthodoxy. Thus, while in life the great whale's body may have been a real terror to his foes, in his death his ghost becomes a powerless panic to the world. Are you a believer in ghosts, my friend? There are other ghosts than the Cock Lane one, and far deeper men than Dr. Johnson, who believe in them. CHAPTER Seventy, THE SPHINX It should not have been omitted that previous to completely stripping the body of the Leviathan, he was beheaded. Now, the beheading of the sperm-whale is a scientific anatomical feat, upon which experienced whale-surgeons very much pride themselves, and not without reason. Consider that the whale has nothing that can properly be called a neck. On the contrary, where his head and body seem to join, there, in that very place, is the thickest part of him. Remember also that the surgeon must operate from above, some eight or ten feet intervening between him and his subject, and that subject almost hidden in a discoloured, rolling, and oftentimes tumultuous and bursting sea. Bear in mind, too, that under these untoward circumstances, he has to cut many feet deep in the flesh, and in that subterraneous matter, without so much as getting one single peep into the ever-contracting gash thus made, he must skilfully steer clear of all adjacent interdicted parts, and exactly divide the spine at a critical point, hard by its insertion into the skull. Do you not marvel, then, at Stubb's boast that he demanded but ten minutes to behead a sperm-whale? When first severed, the head is dropped astern, and held there by a cable till the body is stripped. That done, if it belong to a small whale, it is hoisted on deck to be deliberately disposed of. But with a full-grown leviathan this is impossible, for the sperm-whale's head embraces nearly one-third of his entire bulk, and completely to suspend such a burden as that, even by the immense tackles of a whaler, this were as vain a thing as to attempt weighing a Dutch barn in jeweler's scales. The Pequod's whale being decapitated and the body stripped, the head was hoisted against the ship's side, about halfway out of the sea, so that it might yet in great part be buoyed up by its native element. And there, with the strained craft steeply leaning over to it, 
by reason of the enormous downward drag from the lower masthead, and every yard-arm on that side projecting like a crane over the waves, there that blood-dripping head hung to the Pequod's waist like the giant Holofernes from the girdle of Judith. When this last task was accomplished it was noon, and the seamen went below to their dinner. Silence reigned over the before tumultuous but now deserted deck. An intense copper calm, like a universal yellow lotus, was more and more unfolding its noiseless, measureless leaves upon the sea. A short space elapsed, and up into this noiselessness came Ahab alone from his cabin. Taking a few turns on the quarter-deck, he paused to gaze over the side. Then, slowly getting into the main chains, he took Stubb's long spade, still remaining there after the whale's decapitation, and, striking it into the lower part of the half-suspended mass, placed its other end crutchwise under one arm, and so stood leaning over with eyes attentively fixed on this head. It was a black and hooded head, and hanging there in the midst of so intense a calm, it seemed the sphinxes in the desert. "'Speak, thou vast and venerable head,' muttered Ahab, "'which, though ungarnished with a beard, yet here and there lookest hoary with mosses. "'Speak, mighty head, and tell us the secret thing that is in thee. "'Of all divers thou hast dived the deepest. "'That head upon which the upper sun now gleams "'has moved amid this world's foundations.' where unrecorded names and navies rust, and untold hopes and anchors rot, where in her murderous hold this frigate earth is ballasted with bones of millions of the drowned, there in that awful waterland, there was thy most familiar home. Thou hast been where bell or diver never went, has slept by many a sailor's side, where sleepless mothers would give their lives to lay them down. Thou sawest the locked lovers when leaping from their flaming ship, heart to heart they sank beneath the exulting wave, true to each other when heaven seemed false to them. Thou sawest the murdered mate when tossed by pirates from the midnight deck, for hours he fell into the deeper midnight of the insatiate maw and his murderers still sailed on unharmed, while swift lightnings shivered the neighboring ship that would have borne a righteous husband to outstretched longing arms. O oh, head, thou hast seen enough to split the planets and make an infidel of Abraham, and not one syllable is thine. Sail ho! cried a triumphant voice from the main masthead. "'Ay, well now, that's cheering,' cried Ahab, suddenly erecting himself, while whole thunderclouds swept aside from his brow. "'That lively cry upon this deadly calm might almost convert a better man. "'Where away?' Three points on the starboard bow, sir, and bringing down her breeze to us. "'Better and better, man. Would now St. Paul would come along that way.' and to my breezelessness bring his breeze. O oh, nature, and O oh, soul of man, how far beyond all utterances are your linked analogies! Not the smallest atom stirs or lives on matter, 
but has its cunning duplicate in mind. Chapter 71 The Jeroboam Story Hand in hand, ship and breeze blew on, but the breeze came faster than the ship, and soon the Pequod began to rock. By and by, through the glass, the stranger's boats and manned mastheads proved her a whale-ship, but as she was so far to windward and shooting by, apparently making a passage to some other ground, the Pequod could not hope to reach her, so the signal was set to see what response would be made. Here be it said that like the vessels of military marines, the ships of the American whale-fleet have each a private signal, all which signals being collected in a book with the names of the respective vessels attached, and every captain provided with it. Thereby the whale commanders are enabled to recognize each other upon the ocean, even at considerable distances and with no small facility. The Pequod's signal was at last responded to by the strangers setting her own, which proved the ship to be the Jeroboam of Nantucket. Squaring her yards, she bore down, ranged a beam under the Pequod's lee, and lowered a boat. It soon drew nigh, but as the side-ladder was being rigged by Starbuck's order to accommodate the visiting captain, the stranger in question waved his hand from the boat's stern, in token of that proceeding being entirely unnecessary. It turned out that the Jeroboam had a malignant epidemic on board, and that Mayhew, her captain, was fearful of infecting the Pequod's company. For though himself and boat's crew remained untainted, and though his ship was half a rifle shot off, and an incorruptible sea and air rolling and flowing between, yet conscientiously adhering to the timid quarantine of the land, he peremptorily refused to come into direct contact with the Pequod. But this did by no means prevent all communications. Preserving an interval of some few yards between itself and the ship, the Jeroboam's boat, by the occasional use of its oars, contrived to keep parallel to the Pequod, as she heavily forged through the sea, for by this time it blew very fresh, with her main topsail aback. Though, indeed, at times, by the sudden onset of a large rolling wave, the boat would be pushed some way ahead, but would be soon skilfully brought to her proper bearings again. Subject to this, and other the like interruptions now and then, a conversation was sustained between the two parties, but at intervals not without still another interruption of a very different sort. Pulling an oar in the Jeroboam's boat was a man of singular appearance, even in that wild whaling life where individual notabilities make up all totalities, he was a small, short, youngish man, sprinkled all over his face with freckles, and wearing redundant yellow hair. A long-skirted, cabalistically cut coat of a faded walnut tinge enveloped him, the overlapping sleeves of which were rolled up on his wrists. A deep, settled, fanatic delirium was in his eyes. So soon as this figure had been first descried, Stubb had exclaimed, that's he! That's he! The long-togged scaramouche the town-hose company told us of. Stubb here alluded to a strange story told of the Jeroboam, and a certain man among her crew, some time previous when the Pequod spoke the town-hoe. 
According to this account, and what was subsequently learned, it seemed that the scaramouche in question had gained a wonderful ascendancy over almost everybody in the Jeroboam. His story was this. He had originally been nurtured among the crazy society of Neskyuna Shakers, where he had been a great prophet, in their cracked secret meetings having several times descended from heaven by way of a trap-door, announcing the speedy opening of the seventh vial which he carried in his vest pocket, but which, instead of containing gunpowder, was supposed to be charged with laudanum. A strange apostolic whim having seized him, he had left Neskyuna for Nantucket, where, with that cunning peculiar to craziness, he assumed a steady common-sense exterior, and offered himself as a green-hand candidate for the Jeroboam's whaling voyage. They engaged him, but straight away upon the ship's getting out of sight of land, his insanity broke out in a freshet. He announced himself as the archangel Gabriel, and commanded the captain to jump overboard. He published his manifesto, whereby he set himself forth as the deliverer of the isles of the sea, and vicar-general of all Oceanica. The unflinching earnestness with which he declared these things, the dark, daring play of his sleepless, excited imagination, and all the preternatural terrors of real delirium, united to invest this Gabriel in the minds of the majority of the ignorant crew with an atmosphere of sacredness. Moreover, they were afraid of him. As such a man, however, was not of much practical use in the ship, especially as he refused to work except when he pleased, the incredulous captain would fain have been rid of him, but apprised that that individual's intention was to land him in the first convenient port, the archangel forthwith opened all his seals and vials, devoting the ship and all hands to unconditional perdition, in case this intention was carried out. So strongly did he work upon his disciples among the crew, that at last in a body they went to the captain and told him, if Gabriel was sent from the ship, not a man of them would remain. He was therefore forced to relinquish his plan. Nor would they permit Gabriel to be any way maltreated, say or do what he would, so that it came to pass that Gabriel had the complete freedom of the ship. The consequence of all this was that the archangel cared little or nothing for the captain and mates, and since the epidemic had broken out, he carried a higher hand than ever, declaring that the plague, as he called it, was at his sole command, nor should it be stayed but according to his good pleasure. The sailors, mostly poor devils, cringed, and some of them fawned before him, in obedience to his instructions sometimes rendering him personal homage as to a god. Such things may seem incredible, but however wondrous they are true nor is the history of fanatics half so striking in respect to the measureless self-deception of the fanatic himself as his measureless power of deceiving and bedeviling so many others. But it is time to return to the Pequod. "'I fear not thy epidemic, man,' said Ahab from the bulwarks to Captain Mayhew, who stood in the boat's stern. "'Come on board!' But now Gabriel started to his feet. "'Think!' Think of the fevers, yellow and bilious! Beware of the horrible plague! Gabriel, Gabriel, cried Captain Mayhew, thou must either... But that instant, 
a headlong wave shot the boat far ahead, and its seethings drowned all speech. "'Hast thou seen the white whale?' demanded Ahab, when the boat drifted back. "'Think, think of thy whale-boat, stoven and sunk. Beware of the horrible tale!' "'I tell thee again, Gabriel, that—' But again the boat tore ahead, as if dragged by fiends. Nothing was said for some moments, while a succession of riotous waves rolled by, which, by one of those occasional caprices of the seas, were tumbling, not heaving it. Meantime the hoisted sperm-whale's head jogged about very violently, and Gabriel was seen eyeing it with rather more apprehensiveness than his archangel nature seemed to warrant. When this interlude was over, Captain Mayhew began a dark story concerning Moby Dick, not, however, without frequent interruptions from Gabriel, whenever his name was mentioned, and the crazy sea that seemed leagued with him. It seemed that the Jeroboam had not long left home, when, upon speaking a whale-ship, her people were reliably apprised of the existence of Moby Dick, and the havoc he had made. Greedily sucking in this intelligence, Gabriel solemnly warned the captain against attacking the white whale, in case the monster should be seen, in his gibbering insanity, pronouncing the white whale to be no less a being than the shaker God incarnated, the shakers receiving the Bible. But when some year or two afterward Moby Dick was fairly sighted from the mastheads, Macy, the chief mate, burned with ardor to encounter him and the captain himself being not unwilling to let him have the opportunity, despite all the archangel's denunciations and forewarnings, Macy succeeded in persuading five men to man his boat. With them he pushed off, and, after much weary pulling, and many perilous, unsuccessful onsets, he at last succeeded in getting one iron fast. Meantime Gabriel, ascending to the main royal masthead, was tossing one arm in frantic gestures, and hurling forth prophecies of speedy doom to the sacrilegious assailants of his divinity. Now, while Macy, the mate, was standing up in his boat's bow, and with all the reckless energy of his tribe was venting his wild exclamations upon the whale, and essaying to get a fair chance for his poised lance— Lo, a broad white shadow rose from the sea, by its quick fanning motion temporarily taking the breath out of the bodies of the oarsmen. Next instant the luckless mate, so full of furious life, was smitten bodily into the air, and, making a long arc in his descent, fell into the sea at a distance of about fifty yards. Not a chip of the boat was harmed, nor a hair of any oarsman's head but the mate forever sank. It is well to parenthesize here that, of the fatal accidents in the sperm-whale fishery, this kind is perhaps almost as frequent as any. Sometimes nothing is injured but the man who is thus annihilated. Oftener the boat's bow is knocked off, or the thigh-board, in which the headsman stands, is torn from its place and accompanies the body. But strangest of all is the circumstance, that in more instances than one, when the body has been recovered, not a single mark of violence is discernible, the man being stark dead. The whole calamity, with the falling form of Macy, was plainly descried from the ship. Raising a piercing shriek, The vile! The vile! 
Gabriel called off the terror-stricken crew from the further hunting of the whale. This terrible event clothed the archangel with added influence, because his credulous disciples believed that he had specifically foreannounced it, instead of only making a general prophecy, which anyone might have done, and so have chanced to hit one of many marks in the wide margin allowed. He became a nameless terror to the ship. Mayhew, having concluded his narration, Ahab put such questions to him that the stranger captain could not forbear inquiring whether he intended to hunt the white whale, if opportunity should offer. To which Ahab answered, Aye. Straightway then, Gabriel once more started to his feet, glaring upon the old man, and vehemently exclaimed with downward-pointed finger, Think! Think of the blasphemer! Dead and down there! Beware of the blasphemer's end! Ahab stolidly turned aside, then said to Mayhew, Captain, I have just bethought me of my letter-bag. There is a letter for one of thy officers, if I mistake it not. Starbuck, look over the bag. Every whale-ship takes out a goodly number of letters for various ships, whose delivery to the persons to whom they may be addressed depends upon the mere chance of encountering them in the four oceans. Thus most letters never reach their mark, and many are only received after attaining an age of two or three years or more. Soon Starbuck returned with a letter in his hand. It was sorely tumbled, damp, and covered with a dull, spotted green mould, in consequence of being kept in a dark locker of the cabin. Of such a letter Death himself might well have been the postboy. "'Canst not read it?' cried Ahab. "'Give it me, man.' "'Aye, aye. It's but a dim scrawl. What's this?' As he was studying it out, Starbuck took a long cutting-spade pole, and, with his knife, slightly split the end to insert the letter there, and in that way hand it to the boat, without its coming any closer to the ship. Meantime, Ahab, holding the letter, muttered, Mr. Harry, Harry's, yes, Mr. Harry, a woman's penny hand, the man's wife, I'll wager. Aye, Mr. Harry Macy, ship Jeroboam. Why, it's Macy, and he's dead. Poor fellow, poor fellow, and from his wife, sighed Mayhew, but let me have it. Nay, keep it thyself cried Gabriel to Ahab. Thou art soon going that way. Curses throttle thee, yelled Ahab. Captain Mayhew, stand by now to receive it. And, taking the fatal missive from Starbuck's hands, he caught it in the slit of the pole, and reached it over towards the boat. But as he did so, the oarsman expectantly desisted from rowing. The boat drifted a little towards the ship's stern, so that, as if by magic, the letter suddenly ranged along with Gabriel's eager hand. He clutched it in an instant, seized the boat-knife, and, impaling the letter on it, sent it thus loaded back into the ship. It fell at Ahab's feet. Then Gabriel shrieked out to his comrades to give way with their oars, and in that manner the mutinous boat rapidly shot away from the Pequod. As, after this interlude, the seamen resumed their work upon the jacket of the whale, many strange things were hinted in reference to this wild affair. End of chapter 68 to 71
Moby Dick, Chapters 72 and 73. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This reading by Stuart Wills. Moby Dick by Herman Melville. Chapters 72 and 73. Chapter 72. The Monkey Rope. In the tumultuous business of cutting in and attending to a whale, there is much running backwards and forwards among the crew. Now hands are wanted here, and then again hands are wanted there. There is no staying in any one place, for at one and the same time everything has to be done everywhere. It is much the same with him who endeavors the description of the scene. We must now retrace our way a little. It was mentioned that upon first breaking ground in the whale's back, the blubber-hook was inserted into the original hole there cut by the spades of the mates. But how did so clumsy and weighty a mass as that same hook get fixed in that hole? It was inserted there by my particular friend Queequeg, whose duty it was, as harpooner, to descend upon the monster's back for the special purpose referred to. But in very many cases, circumstances require that the harpooner shall remain on the whale till the whole tensing or stripping operation is concluded. The whale, be it observed, lies almost entirely submerged, excepting the immediate parts operated upon. So, down there, some ten feet below the level of the deck, the poor harpooner flounders about, half on the whale and half in the water, as the vast mass revolves like a treadmill beneath him. On the occasion in question, Queequeg figured in the Highland costume, a shirt and socks, in which, to my eyes at least, he appeared to uncommon advantage, and no one had a better chance to observe him, as will presently be seen. Being the savage's bowsman, that is, the person who pulled the bow oar in his boat, the second one from forward, it was my cheerful duty to attend upon him while taking that hard scrabble scramble upon the dead whale's back. You have seen Italian organ boys holding a dancing ape by a long cord. Just so, from the ship's steep side, did I hold Queequeg down there in the sea, by what is technically called in the fishery a monkey rope attached to a strong strip of canvas belted round his waist. It was a humorously perilous business for both of us, for before we proceed further, it must be said that the monkey-rope was fast at both ends, fast to Queequeg's broad canvas belt, and fast to my narrow leather one, so that, for better or for worse, we two, for the time, were wedded, and should poor Queequeg sink to rise no more, then both usage and honour demanded that instead of cutting the cord, it should drag me down in his wake. So then, an elongated Siamese ligature united us. Queequeg was my own inseparable twin brother, nor could I any way get rid of the dangerous liabilities which the hempen bond entailed. So strongly and metaphysically did I conceive of my situation then, that while earnestly watching his motions, I seemed distinctly to perceive that my own individuality was now merged in a joint-stock company of two, that my free will had received a mortal wound, 
and that another's mistake or misfortune might plunge innocent me into unmerited disaster and death. Therefore, I saw that here was a sort of interregnum in providence, for its even-handed equity never could have so gross an injustice. And yet, still further pondering, while I jerked him now and then from between the whale and the ship, which would threaten to jam him, still further pondering, I say, I saw that this situation of mind was the precise situation of every mortal that breathes. Only in most cases he, one way or other, has this Siamese connection with a plurality of other mortals. If your banker breaks, you snap. If your apothecary by mistake sends you poison in your pills, you die. True, you may say that by exceeding caution you may possibly escape these and multitudinous other evil chances of life. But handle Queequeg's monkey-rope heedfully as I would, sometimes he jerked it so, that I came very near sliding overboard. Nor could I possibly forget that, do what I would, I had only the management of one end of it. Footnote. The monkey-rope is found in all whalers, but it was only in the Pequod that the monkey and his holder were ever tied together. This improvement upon the original usage was introduced by no less a man than Stubb, in order to afford the imperiled harpooner the strongest possible guarantee for the faithfulness and vigilance of his monkey-rope holder. End of footnote. I have hinted that I would often jerk poor Queequeg from between the whale and the ship, where he would occasionally fall from the incessant rolling and swaying of both. But this was not the only jamming jeopardy he was exposed to. Unappalled by the massacre made upon them during the night, the sharks, now freshly and more keenly allured by the before-pent blood which began to flow from the carcass, the rabid creatures swarmed round it like bees in a beehive, and right in among those sharks was Queequeg, who often pushed them aside with his floundering feet, a thing altogether incredible, were it not that, attracted by such prey as a dead whale, the otherwise miscellaneous carnivorous sharks will seldom touch a man. Nevertheless, it may well be believed that, since they have such a ravenous finger in the pie, it is deemed but wise to look sharp to them, Accordingly, besides the monkey-rope with which I now and then jerked the poor fellow from too close a vicinity to the maw of what seemed a peculiarly ferocious shark, he was provided with still another protection. Suspended over the side in one of the stages, Tashtego and Dagu continually flourished over his head a couple of keen whale-spades, wherewith they slaughtered as many sharks as they could reach. This procedure of theirs, to be sure, was very disinterested and benevolent of them. They meant Queequeg's best happiness, I admit, but in their hasty zeal to befriend him, and from the circumstance that both he and the sharks were at times half-hidden by the blood-muddled water, those indiscreet spades of theirs would come nearer amputating a leg than a tail. But poor Queequeg, I suppose, straining and gasping there with that great iron hook, Poor Queequeg, I suppose, only prayed to his yojo, and gave up his life into the hands of his gods. Well, well, my dear comrade and twin brother, thought I, as I drew in and then slacked off the rope to every swell of the sea, what matters it, after all? Are you not the precious image of each and all of us men in this wailing world? 
That unsounded ocean you gasp in is life, those sharks your foes, those spades your friends, and what between sharks and spades you are in a sad pickle and peril, poor lad. But courage, there is good cheer in store for you, Queequeg. For now, as with blue lips and bloodshot eyes, the exhausted savage at last climbs up the chains, and stands all dripping and involuntarily trembling over the side, the steward advances, and with a benevolent, consolatory glance hands him, what, some hot cognac? No, hands him, ye god, hands him a cup of tepid ginger and water. Ginger? Do I smell ginger? suspiciously asked Stubb, coming near. Yes, this must be ginger, peering into the as yet untasted cup. Then, standing as if incredulous for a while, he calmly walked toward the astonished steward, slowly saying, Ginger, ginger, and will you have the goodness to tell me, Mr. Doughboy, where lies the virtue of ginger? Ginger! Is ginger the sort of fuel you use, Doughboy, to kindle a fire in this shivering cannibal? Ginger! What the devil is ginger? Sea coal? Firewood? Lucifer matches? Tinder? Gunpowder? What the devil is ginger, I say, that you offer this cup to our poor Queequeg here? There is some sneaking temperance society movement about this business, he suddenly added, now approaching Starbuck, who had just come from forward. Will you look at that canakin, sir? Smell of it, if you please. Then, watching the mate's countenance, he added, The steward, Mr. Starbuck. Had the face to offer that calamal and jollop to Queequeg there, this instant off the whale? Is the steward an apothecary, sir? And may I ask whether this is the sort of bitters by which he blows back the life into a half-drowned man? I trust not, said Starbuck. It is poor stuff enough. Aye, aye, steward, cried Stubb. We'll teach you to drug it, Harpenier. None of your apothecary's medicine here. You want to poison us, do you? You have got out insurance on our lives, and want to murder us all and pocket the proceeds, do you? It was not me, cried Doughboy. It was Aunt Charity that brought the ginger on board, and bade me never give the harpooners any spirits, but only this ginger-jub, so she called it. Ginger-jub, you gingery rascal, take that, and run along with you to the lockers, and get something better. I hope I do no wrong, Mr. Starbuck. It is the captain's orders. Grog for the harpooner on a whale. Enough, replied Starbuck. Only don't hit him again. But, oh, I never hurt when I hit, except when I hit a whale or something of that sort. And this fellow's a weasel. Uh, what were you about saying, sir? Only this. Go down with him and get what thou wantest thyself. When Stubb reappeared... He came with a dark flask in one hand, and a sort of tea-caddy in the other. The first contained strong spirits, and was handed to Queequeg. The second was Aunt Charity's gift, and that was freely given to the waves. Chapter 73 Stub and Flask Kill a Right Whale, and then have a talk over him. It must be borne in mind that all this time we have a sperm whale's prodigious head hanging to the Pequod's side. 
but we must let it continue hanging there for a while, till we can get a chance to attend to it. For the present other matters press, and the best we can do now for the head is to pray heaven the tackles may hold. Now, during the past night and forenoon, the Pequod had gradually drifted into a sea which, by its occasional patches of yellow brit, gave unusual tokens of the vicinity of right whales, a species of the leviathan that but few supposed to be at this particular time lurking anywhere near. And though all hands commonly disdained the capture of those inferior creatures, and though the Pequod was not commissioned to cruise for them at all, and though she had passed numbers of them near the Crozettes without lowering a boat, yet now that a sperm-whale had been brought alongside and beheaded, to the surprise of all, the announcement was made that a right whale should be captured that day, if opportunity offered. Nor was this long wanting. Tall spouts were seen to leeward, and two boats, stubs, and flasks were detached in pursuit. Pulling further and further away, they at last became almost invisible to the men at the masthead. But suddenly in the distance they saw a great heap of tumultuous white water, and soon after news came from aloft that one or both the boats must be fast. An interval passed, and the boats were in plain sight, in the act of being dragged right towards the ship by the towing whale. So close did the monster come to the hull, that at first it seemed as if he meant it malice, but suddenly going down in a maelstrom, within three rods of the planks, he wholly disappeared from view, as if diving under the keel. Cut! Cut! was the cry from the ship to the boats, which for one instant seemed on the point of being brought with a deadly dash against the vessel's side. But having plenty of line yet in the tubs, and the whale not sounding very rapidly, they paid out abundance of rope, and at the same time pulled with all their might so as to get ahead of the ship. For a few minutes the struggle was intensely critical, for while they still slacked out the tightened line in one direction, and still plied their oars in another, the contending strain threatened to take them under. But it was only a few feet advance they sought to gain, and they stuck to it till they did gain it, when instantly a swift tremor was felt running like lightning along the keel, as the strained line scraping beneath the ship suddenly rose to view under her bows, snapping and quivering, and so flinging off its drippings that the drops fell like bits of broken glass on the water, while the whale beyond also rose to sight, and once more the boats were free to fly. But the fagged whale abated his speed, and blindly altering his course, went round the stern of the ship, towing the two boats after him, so that they performed a complete circuit. Meanwhile, they hauled more and more upon their lines, till, close flanking him on both sides, Stubb answered Flask with lance for lance, and thus round and round the Pequod the battle went, while the multitudes of sharks that had before swum round the sperm-whale's body rushed to the fresh blood that was spilled, thirstily drinking at every new gash, as the eager Israelites did, at the new bursting fountains that poured from the smitten rock. At last his spout grew thick, and with a frightful roll and vomit, he turned upon his back a corpse. While the two headsmen were engaged in making fast cords to his flukes, and in other ways getting the mass in readiness for towing, some conversation ensued between them. "'I wonder what the old man wants with this lump of foul lard,' said Stubb, 
not without some disgust at the thought of having to do with so ignoble a leviathan. "'Wants with it,' said Flask, coiling some spare line in the boat's bow. "'Did you never hear that the ship, which but once has a sperm-whale's head hoisted on her starboard side, and at the same time a right-whale's head on the larboard, did you never hear, Stubb, that that ship can never afterwards capsize?' "'Why not?' "'I don't know.' But I heard that gamboge ghost of a Fadala saying so, and he seems to know all about ship's charms, but I sometimes think he'll charm the ship to no good at last. I don't half like that chap, Stubb. Did you ever notice how that tusk of his is a sort of carved into a snake's head, Stubb? Sink him. I never look at him at all, but if ever I get a chance of a dark night and he's standing hard by the bulwarks and no one by— Look down there, Flask, pointing into the sea with a peculiar motion of both hands. Aye, will I? Flask, I take that Fadala to be the devil in disguise. Do you believe that cock-and-bull story about his having been stowed away on board ship? He's the devil, I say. The reason why you don't see his tail is because he tucks it up out of sight. He carries it coiled away in his pocket, I guess. Blast him! Now that I think of it, he's always wanting oakum to stuff into the toes of his boots. He sleeps in his boots, don't he? He hasn't got any hammock, but I've seen him lay of nights in a coil of rigging. No doubt. And it's because of his cursed tail. He coils it down, do you see, in the eye of the rigging. What's the old man have so much to do with him for? Striking up a swap or a bargain, I suppose. Bargain? About what? Why, do you see, the old man is hard bent after that white whale, and the devil there is trying to come round him and get him to swap away his silver watch, or his soul, or something of that sort, and then he'll surrender Moby Dick. Pooh, Stubb, you are skylarking. How can Fadala do that? I don't know, Flask. But the devil is a curious chap, and a wicked one, I tell you. Why, they say is how he went a sauntering into the old flagship once, switching his tail about devilish easy and gentlemanlike, and inquiring if the old governor was at home. Well, he was at home, and asked the devil what he wanted. The devil, switching his hoofs, up and says, I want John. What for? says the old governor. What business is that of yours? says the devil, getting mad. I want to use him. Take him, says the governor. And, by the Lord, Flask, if the devil didn't give John the Asiatic cholera before he got through with him, I'll eat this whale in one mouthful. But look sharp. Ain't you already there? Well, then pull ahead, and let's get the whale alongside. I think I remember some such story as you were telling, said Flask, when at last the two boats were slowly advancing with their burden towards the ship. But I can't remember where. Three Spaniards? Adventures of those three bloody-minded solados. Did you read it there, Flask? I guess you did. No, never saw such a book. Heard of it, though. But now tell me, Stubb, do you suppose that that devil you were speaking of just now was the same you say is now on board the Pequod? Am I the same man that helped kill this whale? Doesn't the devil live forever? Who ever heard that the devil was dead? Did you ever see any parson wearing a mourning for the devil? And if the devil has a latch-key to get into the admiral's cabin, don't you suppose he can crawl into a porthole? Tell me that, Mr. Flask. How old do you suppose Fadala is, Stubb? 
Do you see that mainmast there? Pointing to the ship. Well, that's the figure one. Now take all the hoops in the Pequod's hold, and string along in a row with that mast for aughts. Do you see? Well, that wouldn't begin to be Fadala's age. Nor all the coopers in creation couldn't show hoops enough to make aughts enough. But see here, Stubb, I thought you a little boasted just now that you meant to give Fadala a sea-toss, if you got a good chance. Now, if he's so old as all those hoops of yours come to, and if he is going to live forever, what good will it do to pitch him overboard? Tell me that. Give him a good ducking, anyhow. But he'd crawl back. Duck him again, and keep ducking him. Suppose he should take it into his head to duck you, though. Yes, and drown you. What then? I should like to see him try it. I'd give him such a pair of black eyes that he wouldn't dare show his face in the admiral's cabin again for a long while, let alone down in the orlop there where he lives, and hereabouts on the upper decks where he sneaks so much. Damn the devil, Flask! So you suppose I'm afraid of the devil? Who's afraid of him? Except the old governor who daresn't catch him and put him in double darbies as he deserves, but lets him go about kidnapping people. Aye, and signed a bond with him that all the people the devil kidnapped he'd roast for him. There's a governor. Do you suppose Fadala wants to kidnap Captain Ahab? Do I suppose it? You'll know it before long, Flask. But I am going now to keep a sharp lookout on him. And if I see anything very suspicious going on, I'll just take him by the nape of the neck and say, Look here, Beelzebub, you don't do it. And if he makes any fuss, by the Lord, I'll make a grab into his pocket for his tail take it to the capstan and give him such a wrenching and heaving that his tail will come short off at the stump do you see and then i rather guess when he finds himself docked in that queer fashion he'll sneak off without the poor satisfaction of feeling his tail between his legs and what will you do with the tail stub do with it sell it for an ox whip when we get home what else now do you mean what you say and have been saying all along stub mean or not mean here we are at the ship the boats were here hailed to tow the whale on the larboard side where fluke chains and other necessaries were already prepared for securing him didn't i tell you so said flask yes you'll soon see this right whale's head hoisted up opposite that parmacetti's in good time flask's saying proved true as before, the Pequod steeply leaned over towards the sperm whale's head. Now, by the counterpoise of both heads, she regained her even keel. Though sorely strained, you may well believe. So, when on one side you hoist in Locke's head, you go over that way, but now on the other side hoist in Kant's, and you come back again, but in very poor plight. Thus some minds forever keep trimming boat. Oh, you foolish! Throw all these thunderheads overboard, and then you will float light and right. In disposing of the body of a right whale, when brought alongside the ship, the same preliminary proceedings commonly take place as in the case of a sperm whale. Only in the latter instance the head is cut off whole, but in the former the lips and tongue are separately removed and hoisted on deck, with all the well-known black bone attached to what is called the crown piece but nothing like this in the present case had been done. The carcasses of both whales had dropped astern, and the head-laden ship not a little resembled a mule carrying a pair of overburdening panniers. 
Meantime, Fadala was calmly eyeing the right whale's head, and ever and anon glancing from the deep wrinkles there to the lines in his own hand. And Ahab chanced so to stand that the Parsee occupied his shadow, while if the Parsee's shadow was there at all, it seemed only to blend with and lengthen Ahab's. As the crew toiled on, Laplandish speculations were bandied among them concerning all these passing things. End of chapters 72 and 73Moby Dick, Chapters 74 to 77. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This reading by Stuart Wells. Moby Dick by Herman Melville, Chapters 74 to 77. Chapter 74. THE SPERM WHALE'S HEAD, CONTRASTED VIEW Here now are two great whales laying their heads together. Let us join them, and lay together our own. Of the grand order of folio-leviathans, the sperm whale and the right whale are by far the most noteworthy. They are the only whales regularly hunted by man. To the Nantucketer they present the two extremes of all the known varieties of the whale. As the external difference between them is mainly observable in their heads, and as a head of each is this moment hanging from the Pequod's side, and as we may freely go from one to the other by merely stepping across the deck, where, I should like to know, will you obtain a better chance to study practical cetology than here? In the first place, you are struck by the general contrast between these heads. Both are massive enough in all conscience, but there is a certain mathematical symmetry in the sperm whales which the right whales sadly lacks. There is more character in the sperm whale's head. As you behold it, you involuntarily yield the immense superiority to him in point of pervading dignity. In the present instance, too, this dignity is heightened by the pepper-and-salt color of his head at the summit, giving token of advanced age and large experience. In short, he is what the fishermen technically call a gray-headed whale. Let us now note what is least dissimilar in these heads, namely the two most important organs, the eye and the ear. Far back on the side of the head, and low down, near the angle of either whale's jaw, if you narrowly search, you will at last see a lashless eye, which you would fancy to be a young colt's eye, so out of all proportion is it to the magnitude of the head. Now from this peculiar sideway position of the whale's eyes, it is plain that he can never see an object which is exactly ahead, no more than he can one exactly astern. In a word, the position of the whale's eyes corresponds to that of a man's ears, and you may fancy for yourself how it would fare with you did you sideways survey objects through your ears. You would find that you could only command some thirty degrees of vision in advance of the straight sideline of sight, and about thirty more behind it. 
If your bitterest foe were walking straight towards you, with dagger uplifted in broad day, you would not be able to see him, any more than if he were stealing upon you from behind. In a word, you would have two backs, so to speak, but at the same time also two fronts, side fronts. For what is it that makes the front of a man, what indeed, but his eyes? Moreover, while in most other animals that I can now think of, the eyes are so planted as imperceptibly to blend their visual power, so as to produce one picture and not two to the brain, the peculiar position of the whale's eyes, effectually divided as they are by many cubic feet of solid head, which towers between them like a great mountain separating two lakes and valleys, this, of course, must wholly separate the impressions which each independent organ imparts. The whale, therefore, must see one distinct picture on this side, and another distinct picture on that side, while all between must be profound darkness and nothingness to him. Man may, in effect, be said to look out on the world from a sentry-box with two joined sashes for his window, but for the whale... These two sashes are separately inserted, making two distinct windows, but sadly impairing the view. This peculiarity of the whale's eyes is a thing always to be borne in mind in the fishery, and to be remembered by the reader in some subsequent scenes. A curious and most puzzling question might be started concerning this visual matter as touching the Leviathan. But I must be content with a hint. So long as a man's eyes are open in the light, the act of seeing is involuntary, that is, he cannot help mechanically seeing whatever objects are before him. Nevertheless, any one's experience will teach him that though he can take in an undiscriminating sweep of things at one glance, it is quite impossible for him, attentively and completely, to examine any two things, however large or however small, at one and the same instant of time, never mind if they lie side by side and touch each other. But if you now come to separate these two objects, and surround each by a circle of profound darkness, then in order to see one of them, in such a manner as to bring your mind to bear on it, the other will be utterly excluded from your contemporary consciousness. How is it then with the whale? True, both his eyes in themselves must simultaneously act, but is his brain so much more comprehensive, combining, and subtle than man's, that he can, at the same moment of time, attentively examine two distinct prospects, one on one side of him, and the other in an exactly opposite direction? If he can, then is it a marvellous thing in him, as if a man were able to simultaneously go through the demonstrations of two distinct problems in Euclid, nor, strictly investigated, is there any incongruity in this comparison. It may be but an idle whim, but it has always seemed to me that the extraordinary vacillations of movement displayed by some whales when beset by three or four boats, the timidity and liability to queer frights so common to such whales, I think that all this indirectly proceeds from the helpless perplexity of volition in which their divided and diametrically opposite powers of vision must involve them. But the ear of the whale is full as curious as the eye. If you are an entire stranger to their race, you might hunt over these two heads for hours and never discover that organ. The ear has no external leaf whatever. 
and into the whole itself you can hardly insert a quill, so wondrously minute is it. It is lodged a little behind the eye. With respect to their ears, this important difference is to be observed between the sperm whale and the right, while the ear of the former has an external opening, that of the latter is entirely and evenly covered over with a membrane, so as to be quite imperceptible from without. Is it not curious that so vast a being as the whale should see the world through so small an eye, and hear the thunder through an ear which is smaller than a hare's? But if the eye were broad as the lens of Herschel's great telescope, and his ears capacious as the porches of cathedrals, would that make him any longer of sight or sharper of hearing? Not at all. Why, then, do you try to enlarge your mind? Subtilize it. Let us now, with whatever levers and steam engines we have at hand, cant over the sperm whale's head, that it may lie bottom up, then, ascending by a ladder to the summit, have a peep down the mouth, and were it not that the body is now completely separated from it, with a lantern we might descend into the great Kentucky mammoth cave of the stomach. But let us hold on here by this tooth, and look about us where we are. What a really beautiful and chaste-looking mouth, from floor to ceiling, lined, or rather papered, with a glistening white membrane, glossy as bridal satins. But come out now, and look at this portentous lower jaw, which seems like the long narrow lid of an immense snuff-box, with the hinge at one end, instead of one side. If you pry it up, so as to get it overhead, and expose its rows of teeth, it seems a terrific portcullis, and such, alas, it proves to many a poor white in the fishery, upon whom these spikes fall with impaling force. But far more terrible is it to behold, when fathoms down in the sea, you see some sulky whale floating there suspended with his prodigious jaw some fifteen feet long, hanging straight down at right angles with his body, for all the world like a ship's jib-boom. This whale is not dead, he is only dispirited, out of sorts perhaps, hypochondriac and so supine that the hinges of his jaw have relaxed, leaving him there in that ungainly sort of plight, a reproach to all his tribe, who must, no doubt, imprecate lock-jaws upon him. In most cases this lower jaw, being easily unhinged by a practised artist, is disengaged and hoisted on deck for the purpose of extracting the ivory teeth, and furnishing a supply of that hard white whalebone with which the fishermen fashion all sorts of curious articles, including canes, umbrella stocks, and handles to riding whips. With a long, weary hoist the jaw is dragged on board, as if it were an anchor, and when the proper time comes, some few days after the other work, Queequeg, Dagoo, and Tashtego, all being accomplished dentists, are set to drawing teeth. With a keen cutting spade, Queequeg lances the gums, then the jaw is lashed down to ring-bolts, and a tackle being rigged from aloft, they drag out these teeth, as Michigan oxen drag stumps of old oaks out of wild woodlands. There are generally forty-two teeth in all, in old whales much worn down, but undecayed, nor filled after our artificial fashion. 
the jaw is afterwards sawn into slabs and piled away like joists for building houses. Chapter 75 The Right Whale's Head Contrasted View Crossing the deck, let us now have a good long look at the right whale's head. As in general shape the noble sperm whale's head may be compared to a Roman war chariot, especially in front where it is so broadly rounded, so at a broad view the right whale's head bears a rather inelegant resemblance to a gigantic galliot-toed shoe. Two hundred years ago, an old Dutch voyager likened its shape to that of a shoemaker's last, and in this same last or shoe, that old woman of the nursery tale with her swarming brood might very comfortably be lodged, she and all her progeny. But as you come nearer to this great head, it begins to assume different aspects, according to your point of view. If you stand on its summit and look at these two F-shaped spout-holes, you would take the whole head for an enormous base vial, and these spiracles the apertures in its sounding-board. Then again, if you fix your eyes upon this strange, crested, comb-like incrustation on the top of the mass, this green barnacled thing which the Greenlanders call the crown, and the southern fishers the bonnet of the right whale, Fixing your eyes solely on this, you would take the head for a trunk of some huge oak, with a bird's nest in its crotch. At any rate, when you watch those live crabs that nestle here on this bonnet, such an idea will be almost sure to occur to you, unless indeed your fancy has been fixed by the technical term crown also bestowed upon it, in which case you will take great interest in thinking how this mighty monster— is actually a diademed king of the sea, whose green crown has been put together for him in this marvellous manner. But if this whale be a king, he is a very sulky-looking fellow to grace a diadem. Look at that hanging lower lip. What a huge sulk and pout is there! A sulk and pout by carpenter's measurement, about twenty feet long and five feet deep. A sulk and pout, that will yield you some five hundred gallons of oil and more. A great pity now that this unfortunate whale should be hair-lipped. The fissure is about a foot across. Probably the mother, during an important interval, was sailing down the Peruvian coast when earthquakes caused the beach to gape. Over this lip, as over a slippery threshold, we now slide into the mouth. Upon my word, were I at Mackinaw, I should take this to be the inside of an Indian wigwam. Good Lord! Is this the road that Jonah went? The roof is about twelve feet high, and runs to a pretty sharp angle, as if there were a regular ridge-pole there, while these ribbed, arched, hairy sides present us with those wondrous, half-vertical, scimitar-shaped slats of whalebone, say three hundred on a side, which, depending from the upper part of the head or crown-bone, form those Venetian blinds which have elsewhere been cursorily mentioned. The edges of these bones are fringed with hairy fibres, through which the right whale strains the water, and in whose intricacies he retains the small fish when open-mouthed he goes through the seas of Brit in feeding-time. In the central blinds of bone, as they stand in their natural order, there are certain curious marks, curves, hollows, and ridges, 
whereby some whalemen calculate the creature's age, as the age of an oak by its circular rings. Though the certainty of this criterion is far from demonstrable, yet it has the savour of analogical probability. At any rate, if we yield to it, we must grant a far greater age to the right whale than at first glance will seem reasonable. In old times there seem to have prevailed the most curious fancies concerning these blinds. One voyager in purchase calls them the wondrous whiskers inside of the whale's mouth, another hog's bristles, a third old gentleman in Hackluit uses the following elegant language, quote, there are about two hundred and fifty fins growing on each side of his upper chop, which arch over his tongue on each side of his mouth. End quote. Footnote. This reminds us that the right whale really has a sort of whisker, or rather a mustache, consisting of a few scattered white hairs on the upper part of the outer end of the lower jaw, Sometimes these tufts impart a rather brigandish expression to his otherwise solemn countenance. End of footnote. As everyone knows, these same hog's bristles, fins, whiskers, blinds, or whatever you please, furnish to the ladies their busks and other stiffening contrivances. But in this particular the demand has long been on the decline. It was in Queen Anne's time that the bone was in its glory, the farthingale being then all the fashion. And as those ancient dams moved about gaily, though in the jaws of the whale, as you may say, even so in a shower, with like thoughtlessness, do we nowadays fly under the same jaws for protection, the umbrella being a tent spread over the same bone. But now forget all about blinds and whiskers for a moment, and standing in the right whale's mouth, look around you afresh. Seeing all these colonnades of bone so methodically ranged about, would you not think you were inside of the great Harlem organ, and gazing upon its thousand pipes? For a carpet to the organ we have a rug of the softest turkey, the tongue, which is glued, as it were, to the floor of the mouth, it is very fat and tender, and apt to tear in pieces in hoisting it on deck. This particular tongue now before us, at a passing glance I should say it was a six-barreler, that is, it will yield you about that amount of oil. Ere this you must have plainly seen the truth of what I started with, that the sperm-whale and the right-whale have almost entirely different heads. To sum up, then, in the right whales there is no great well of sperm, no ivory teeth at all, no long slender mandible of a lower jaw like the sperm whales. Nor in the sperm whale are there any of those blinds of bone, no huge lower lip, and scarcely anything of a tongue. Again, the right whale has two external spout holes, the sperm whale only one. Look your last now on these venerable hooded heads, while they yet lie together, for one will soon sink unrecorded in the sea, and the other will not be very long in following. Can you catch the expression of the sperm-whales there? It is the same he died with, only some of the longer wrinkles in the forehead now seem faded away. I think his broad brow to be full of a prairie-like placidity, born of a speculative indifference as to death, but mark the other head's expression. 
See that amazing lower lip, pressed by accident against the vessel's side, so as firmly to embrace the jaw. Does not this whole head seem to speak of an enormous practical resolution in facing death? This right whale I take to have been a stoic. The sperm whale, a Platonian, who might have taken up Spinoza in his latter years. Chapter 76 The Battering Ram Ere quitting for the nonce the sperm whale's head, I would have you, as a sensible physiologist simply, particularly remark its front aspect, in all its compacted collectedness. I would have you investigate it now, with the sole view of forming to yourself some unexaggerated, intelligent estimate of whatever battering ram power may be lodged there. Here is a vital point, for you must either satisfactorily settle this matter with yourself, or forever remain an infidel as to one of the most appalling, but not the less true events perhaps anywhere to be found in all recorded history. You observe that in the ordinary swimming position of the sperm whale, the front of his head presents an almost wholly vertical plane to the water. You observe that the lower part of that front slopes considerably backwards, so as to furnish more of a retreat for the long socket which receives the boom-like lower jaw. You observe that the mouth is entirely under the head, much in the same way indeed as though your own mouth were entirely under your chin. Moreover, you observe that the whale has no external nose, and that what nose he has, his spout-hole, is on the top of his head. You observe that his eyes and ears are at the sides of his head, nearly one-third of his entire length from the front. Wherefore, you must now have perceived that the front of the sperm whale's head is a dead, blind wall, without a single organ or tender prominence of any sort whatsoever. Furthermore, you are now to consider that only in the extreme lower backward-sloping part of the front of the head is there the slightest vestige of bone. And not till you get near twenty feet from the forehead do you come to the full cranial development. So that this whole enormous boneless mass is as one wad, Finally, though, as will soon be revealed, its contents partly comprise the most delicate oil, yet you are now to be apprised of the nature of the substance which so impregnably invests all that apparent effeminacy. In some previous place I have described to you how the blubber wraps the body of the whale, as the rind wraps an orange, just so with the head, but with this difference, about the head this envelope, though not so thick, is of a boneless toughness, inestimable by any man who has not handled it. The severest pointed harpoon, the sharpest lance darted by the strongest human arm, impotently rebounds from it. It is as though the forehead of the sperm whale were paved with horse's hoofs. I do not think that any sensation lurks in it. Bethink yourself also of another thing. When two large, loaded Indiamen chance to crowd and crush towards each other in the docks, what do the sailors do? They do not suspend between them, at the point of coming contact, any merely hard substance like iron or wood. No, they hold there a large round wad of tow and cork, enveloped in the thickest and toughest of ox-hide. 
that, bravely and uninjured, takes the jam which would have snapped all their oaken handspikes and iron crowbars. By itself, this sufficiently illustrates the obvious fact I drive at. But supplementary to this, it has hypothetically occurred to me that as ordinary fish possess what is called a swimming bladder in them, capable at will of distension or contraction, and as the sperm whale, as far as I know, has no such provision in him, considering, too, the otherwise inexplicable manner in which he now depresses his head altogether beneath the surface, and anon swims with it high elevated out of the water, considering the unobstructed elasticity of its envelope, considering the unique interior of his head, it has hypothetically occurred to me, I say, that those mystical lung-celled honeycombs there may possibly have some hitherto unknown and unsuspected connection with the outer air, so as to be susceptible to atmospheric distension and contraction. If this be so, fancy the irresistibleness of that might to which the most impalpable and destructive of all elements contributes. Now, Mark, unerringly impelling this dead, impregnable, uninjurable wall, and this most buoyant thing within, there swims behind it all a mass of tremendous life, only to be adequately estimated as piled wood is, by the cord, and all obedient to one volition as the smallest insect. So that when I shall hereafter detail to you all the specialties and concentrations of potency everywhere lurking in this expansive monster, when I shall show you some of his more inconsiderable braining feats, I trust you will have renounced all ignorant incredulity, and be ready to abide by this, that though the sperm-whale stove a passage through the isthmus of Darien, and mixed the Atlantic with the Pacific, you would not elevate one hair of your eyebrow. For unless you own the whale, you are but a provincial and sentimentalist in truth. But clear truth is a thing for salamander giants only to encounter. How small the chances for the provincials, then! What befell the weakling youth lifting the dread goddess's veil at Lais? Chapter 77 The Great Heidelberg Tun Now comes the bailing of the case, but to comprehend it aright, you must know something of the curious internal structure of the thing operated upon. Regarding the sperm-whale's head as a solid oblong, you may, on an inclined plane, sideways divide it into two coins, whereof the lower is the bony structure forming the cranium and jaws, and the upper an unctuous mass wholly free from bones, its broad forward end forming the expanded vertical apparent forehead of the whale, at the middle of the forehead, horizontally subdivide this upper coin, and then you have two almost equal parts, which before were naturally divided by an internal wall of a thick tendinous substance. Footnote. Coin is not a Euclidean term. It belongs to the pure nautical mathematics. I know not that it has been defined before. A coin is a solid which differs from a wedge in having its sharp end formed by the steep inclination of one side, instead of the mutual tapering of both sides. End of footnote. The lower subdivided part, called the junk, is one immense honeycomb of oil, 
formed by the crossing and recrossing into ten thousand infiltrated cells of tough elastic white fibers throughout its whole extent. The upper part, known as the case, may be regarded as the great Heidelberg ton of the sperm whale. And as that famous great tierce is mystically carved in front, so the whale's vast, pleated forehead forms innumerable strange devices for the emblematical adornment of his wondrous ton. Moreover, as that of Heidelberg was always replenished with the most excellent of wines from the Rhenish valleys, so the ton of the whale contains by far the most precious of all his oily vintages, namely the highly prized spermaceti, in its absolutely pure, limpid, and odoriferous state nor is this precious substance found unalloyed in any other part of the creature. Though in life it remains perfectly fluid, yet upon exposure to the air after death, it soon begins to concrete, sending forth beautiful crystalline shoots, as when the first thin, delicate ice is just forming in water. A large whale's case generally yields about five hundred gallons of sperm, though from unavoidable circumstances considerable of it is spilled leaks and dribbles away or is otherwise irrevocably lost in the ticklish business of securing what you can i know not with what fine and costly material the heidelberg tun was coated within but in superlative richness that coating could not possibly have compared with the silken pearl-coloured membrane like the lining of a fine pelisse forming the inner surface of the sperm-whale's case. It will have been seen that the Heidelberg ton of the sperm-whale embraces the entire length of the entire top of the head, and since, as has been elsewhere set forth, the head embraces one-third of the whole length of the creature, then setting that length down at eighty feet for a good-sized whale, you have more than twenty-six feet for the depth of the ton, when it is lengthwise hoisted up and down against the ship's side. As in decapitating the whale, the operator's instrument is brought close to the spot where an entrance is subsequently forced into the spermaceti magazine. He has, therefore, to be uncommonly heedful, lest a careless, untimely stroke should invade the sanctuary, and wastingly let out its invaluable contents. It is this decapitated end of the head, also, which is at last elevated out of the water, and retained in that position by the enormous cutting-tackles, whose hempen combinations on one side make quite a wilderness of ropes in that quarter. Thus much being said, attend now, I pray you, to that marvellous and, in this particular instance, almost fatal operation, whereby the sperm-whale's great Heidelberg ton is tapped. End of chapters 74 to 77 Moby Dick, chapters 78 to 80 This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This reading by Stuart Wills. Moby Dick by Herman Melville, chapters 78 to 80. Chapter 78 Cistern and Buckets. Nimble as a cat, Tashtego mounts aloft, 
and without altering his erect posture, runs straight out upon the overhanging mainyard arm, to the part where it exactly projects over the hoisted ton. He has carried with him a light tackle called a whip, consisting of only two parts, travelling through a single sheaved block. Securing this block so that it hangs down from the yard arm, he swings one end of the rope, till it is caught and firmly held by a hand on deck. Then, hand over hand, down the other part, the Indian drops through the air, till, dexterously, he lands on the summit of the head. There, still high elevated above the rest of the company, to whom he vivaciously cries, he seems some Turkish muezzin calling the good people to prayers from the top of a tower. A short-handled sharp spade being sent up to him, he diligently searches for the proper place to begin breaking in to the ton. In this business he proceeds very heedfully, like a treasure-hunter in some old house, sounding the walls to find where the gold is masoned in. By the time this cautious search is over, a stout iron-bound bucket, precisely like a well-bucket, has been attached to one end of the whip, while the other end, being stretched across the deck, is there held by two or three alert hands. These last now hoist the bucket within grasp of the Indian, to whom another person has reached up a very long pole. Inserting this pole into the bucket, Tashtego downward guides the bucket into the ton, till it entirely disappears. Then, giving the word to the seamen at the whip, up comes the bucket again, all bubbling like a dairymaid's pail of new milk. Carefully lowered from its height, the full-freighted vessel is caught by an appointed hand, and quickly emptied into a large tub. Then, remounting aloft, it again goes through the same round, until the deep cistern will yield no more. Towards the end, Tashtego has to ram his long pole harder and harder, and deeper and deeper into the ton, until some twenty feet of the pole have gone down. Now, the people of the Pequod had been bailing some time in this way. Several tubs had been filled with the fragrant sperm, when all at once a queer accident happened. Whether it was that Tashtego, that wild Indian, was so heedless and reckless as to let go for a moment his one-handed hold on the great cabled tackles suspending the head, or whether the place where he stood was so treacherous and oozy, or whether the evil one himself would have it fall out so, without stating his particular reasons, how it was exactly there is no telling now, but on a sudden, as the eightieth or ninetieth bucket came suckingly up, my God, poor Tashtego, like the twin reciprocating bucket in a veritable well, dropped head foremost down into this great ton of Heidelberg, and with a horrible oily gurgling went clean out of sight. Man overboard, cried Dagu, who amid the general consternation first came to his senses. Swing the bucket this way! and, putting one foot into it, so as the better to secure his slippery handhold on the whip itself, the hoisters ran him high to the top of the head, almost before Tashtego could have reached its interior bottom. Meantime there was a terrible tumult. Looking over the side, they saw the before lifeless head throbbing and heaving just below the surface of the sea, as if that moment seized with some momentous idea— whereas it was only the poor Indian unconsciously revealing by those struggles the perilous depth to which he had sunk. 
At this instant, while Dagoo on the summit of the head was clearing the whip, which had somehow got foul of the great cutting tackles, a sharp cracking noise was heard, and to the unspeakable horror of all, one of the two enormous hooks suspending the head tore out, and with a vast vibration the enormous mass sideways swung, till the drunk ship reeled and shook as if smitten by an iceberg. The one remaining hook, upon which the entire strain now depended, seemed every instant to be on the point of giving way, an event still more likely from the violent motions of the head. "'Come down! Come down!' yelled the seamen to Dagoo, but with one hand holding on to the heavy tackles, so that if the head should drop he would still remain suspended, the negro, having cleared the foul line, rammed down the bucket into the now collapsed well, meaning that the buried harpooner should grasp it, and so be hoisted out. "'In heaven's name, man!' cried Stubb. "'Are you ramming home a cartridge there? Avast! How will that help him?' jamming that iron-bound bucket on top of his head. Avast, will ye? Stand clear of the tackle, cried a voice like the bursting of a rocket. Almost in the same instant, with a thunder-boom, the enormous mass dropped into the sea, like Niagara's table-rock into the whirlpool. The suddenly relieved hull rolled away from it to far down her glittering copper, and all caught their breath as half-swinging, now over the sailors' heads, and now over the water, Dagoo, through a thick mist of spray, was dimly beheld clinging to the pendulous tackles, while poor buried-alive Tashtego was sinking utterly down to the bottom of the sea. But hardly had the blinding vapour cleared away, when a naked figure with a boarding-sword in his hand was for one swift moment seen hovering over the bulwarks. The next, a loud splash announced that my brave Queequeg had dived to the rescue. One packed rush was made to the side, and every eye counted every ripple, as moment followed moment, and no sign of either the sinker or the diver could be seen. Some hands now jumped into a boat alongside, and pushed a little off from the ship. "'Ha-ha!' cried Dagoo all at once, from his now quiet swinging perch overhead, and, looking further off from the side, we saw an arm thrust upright from the blue waves, a strange sight to see, as an arm thrust forth from the grass over a grave. "'Both! Both! It is both!' cried Dagoo again with a joyful shout, and soon after Queequeg was seen boldly striking out with one hand, and with the other clutching the long hair of the Indian. Drawn into the waiting boat, they were quickly brought to the deck, but Tashtego was long in coming too, and Queequeg did not look very brisk. Now how had this noble rescue been accomplished? Why, diving after the slowly descending head, Queequeg, with his keen sword, had made side-lunges near its bottom, so as to scuttle a large hole there. Then, dropping his sword, had thrust his long arm far inwards and upwards, and so hauled out poor Tash by the head. He averred that upon first thrusting in for him a leg was presented, but well knowing that that was not as it ought to be, and might occasion great trouble, he had thrust back the leg, and by a dexterous heave and toss had wrought a somerset upon the Indian, so that with the next trial he came forth in the good old way, head foremost. As for the great head itself, that was doing as well as could be expected." 
and thus through the courage and great skill in obstetrics of Queequeg, the deliverance, or rather delivery, of Tashtego was successfully accomplished, in the teeth, too, of the most untoward and apparently hopeless impediments, which is a lesson by no means to be forgotten. Midwifery should be taught in the same course with fencing and boxing, riding and rowing. I know that this queer adventure of the gay headers will be sure to seem incredible to some landsmen, though they themselves have either seen or heard of someone's falling into a cistern ashore, an accident which not seldom happens, and with much less reason, too, than the Indians, considering the exceeding slipperiness of the curb of the sperm whale's well. But, peradventure, it may be sagaciously urged, how is this? We thought the tissued infiltrated head of the sperm whale was the lightest and most corky part about him, and yet thou makest it sink in an element of far greater specific gravity than itself. We have thee there. Not at all, but I have ye. For at the time poor Tash fell in, the case had been nearly emptied of its lighter contents, leaving little but the dense tendinous wall of the well a double-welded hammered substance, as I have before said, much heavier than the sea-water, and a lump of which sinks in it like lead almost. But the tendency to rapid sinking in this substance was in the present instance materially counteracted by the other parts of the head remaining undetached from it, so that it sank very slowly and deliberately indeed, affording Queequeg a fair chance for performing his agile obstetrics on the run, as you may say. Yes, it was a running delivery, so it was. Now, had Tashtego perished in that head, it had been a very precious perishing. Smothered in the very whitest and daintiest of fragrant spermaceti, coffined, hearsed, and tombed in the secret inner chamber and sanctum sanctorum of the whale, only one sweeter end can readily be recalled, the delicious death of an Ohio honey-hunter, who, seeking honey in the crotch of a hollow tree, found such an exceeding store of it that, leaning too far over, it sucked him in, so that he died embalmed. How many, think ye, have likewise fallen into Plato's honey head, and sweetly perished there? Chapter 79 The Prairie to scan the lines of his face, or feel the bumps on the head of this leviathan, this is a thing which no physiognomist or phrenologist has as yet undertaken. Such an enterprise would seem almost as hopeful as for Lavater to have scrutinized the wrinkles on the rock of Gibraltar, or for Gaul to have mounted a ladder and manipulated the dome of the Pantheon, Still, in that famous work of his, Lavater not only treats of the various faces of men, but also attentively studies the faces of horses, birds, serpents, and fish, and dwells in detail upon the modifications of expression discernible therein. Nor have Gall and his disciple Spurzheim failed to throw out some hints touching the phrenological characteristics of other beings than man. Therefore, though I am but ill-qualified for a pioneer in the application of these two semi-sciences to the whale, I will do my endeavor. I try all things. I achieve what I can. Physiognomically regarded, the sperm whale is an anomalous creature. 
he has no proper nose, and since the nose is the central and most conspicuous of the features, and since it perhaps most modifies and finally controls their combined expression, hence it would seem that its entire absence, as an external appendage, must very largely affect the countenance of the whale. For, as in landscape gardening, a spire, cupola, monument, or tower of some sort is deemed almost indispensable to the completion of the scene, so no face can be physiognomically in keeping without the elevated open-work belfry of the nose. Dash the nose from Phidias's marble Jove, and what a sorry remainder! Nevertheless, Leviathan is of so mighty a magnitude, all his proportions are so stately, that the same deficiency which in the sculptured Jove were hideous, in him is no blemish at all, nay, it is an added grandeur. A nose to the whale would have been impertinent. As on your physiognomical voyage you sail round his vast head in your jolly-boat, your noble conceptions of him are never insulted by the reflection that he has a nose to be pulled. A pestilent conceit which so often will insist upon obtruding even when beholding the mightiest royal beetle on his throne. In some particulars, perhaps the most imposing physiognomical view to be had of the sperm-whale is that of the full front of his head. This aspect is sublime. In thought, a fine human brow is like the east when troubled with the morning. In the repose of the pasture, the curled brow of the bull has a touch of the grand in it. Pushing heavy cannon up mountain defiles, the elephant's brow is majestic. Human or animal, the mystical brow is as that great golden seal affixed by the German emperors to their decrees. It signifies, God, done this day by my hand. But in most creatures, nay, in man himself, very often the brow is but a mere strip of alpine land lying along the snow-line. Few are the foreheads which, like Shakespeare's or Melanchthon's, rise so high and descend so low that the eyes themselves seem clear, eternal, tideless mountain lakes, and all above them in the forehead's wrinkles you seem to track the antlered thoughts descending there to drink, as the highland hunters track the snow-prints of the deer. But in the great sperm-whale this high and mighty, godlike dignity inherent in the brow is so immensely amplified that gazing on it, in that full front view, you feel the deity and the dread powers more forcibly than in beholding any other object of living nature. For you see no one point precisely, not one distinct feature is revealed, no nose, eyes, ears, or mouth, no face, he has none proper, nothing but that one broad firmament of a forehead, pleated with riddles, dumbly lowering with the doom of boats and ships and men. Nor, in profile, does this wondrous brow diminish, though that way viewed its grandeur does not domineer upon you so. In profile you plainly perceive that horizontal, semi-crescentic depression in the forehead's middle, which in man is Lavater's mark of genius. But how? Genius in the sperm-whale? Has the sperm-whale ever written a book, spoken a speech? No, his great genius is declared in his doing nothing particular to prove it. It is, moreover, declared in his pyramidical silence. 
And this reminds me that had the great sperm whale been known to the young Orient world, he would have been deified by their child Magian thoughts. They deified the crocodile of the Nile because the crocodile is tongueless, and the sperm whale has no tongue, or at least it is so exceedingly small as to be incapable of protrusion. If hereafter any highly cultured, poetical nation shall lure back to their birthright the merry May-day gods of old, and livingly enthrone them again in the now egotistical sky, in the now unhaunted hill, then be sure, exalted to Jove's high seat, the great sperm whale shall lord it. Champollion deciphered the wrinkled granite hieroglyphics. But there is no Champollion to decipher the Egypt of every man's and every being's face. Physiognomy, like every other human science, is but a passing fable. If, then, Sir William Jones, who read in thirty languages, could not read the simplest peasant's face in its profounder and more subtle meanings, how may unlettered Ishmael hope to read the awful caldi of the sperm whale's brow? I but put that brow before you. Read it, if you can. Chapter 80 The Nut If the sperm whale be physiognomically a sphinx, to the phrenologist his brain seems that geometrical circle which it is impossible to square. In the full-grown creature the skull will measure at least twenty feet in length, Unhinge the lower jaw, and the side view of this skull is as the side of a moderately inclined plane resting throughout on a level base. But in life, as we have elsewhere seen, this inclined plane is angularly filled up, and almost squared by the enormous superincumbent mass of the junk and sperm. At the high end of the skull forms a crater to bed that part of the mass, while under the long floor of this crater, in another cavity seldom exceeding ten inches in length, and as many in depth, reposes the mere handful of this monster's brain. The brain is at least twenty feet from his apparent forehead in life. It is hidden away behind its vast outworks, like the innermost citadel within the amplified fortifications of Quebec. So like a choice casket is it secreted in him, that I have known some whalemen who peremptorily deny that the sperm whale has any other brain than that palpable semblance of one formed by the cubic yards of his sperm magazine. Lying in strange folds, courses, and convolutions, to their apprehensions, it seems more in keeping with the idea of his general might to regard that mystic part of him as the seat of his intelligence. It is plain, then, that, phrenologically, the head of this leviathan, in the creature's living, intact state, is an entire delusion. As for his true brain, you can see no indications of it, nor feel any. The whale, like all things that are mighty, wears a false brow to the common world. If you unload his skull of its spermy heaps, and then take a rear view of its rear end, which is the high end, you will be struck by its resemblance to the human skull, beheld in the same situation and from the same point of view. Indeed, place this reversed skull, scaled down to the human magnitude, among a plate of men's skulls, and you would involuntarily confound it with them, 
and remarking the depressions on one part of its summit, in phrenological phrase you would say, this man had no self-esteem and no veneration, and by those negations considered along with the affirmative fact of his prodigious bulk and power, you can best form to yourself the truest, though not the most exhilarating conception of what the most exalted potency is. But if from the comparative dimensions of the whale's proper brain you deem it incapable of being adequately charted, then I have another idea for you. If you attentively regard almost any quadruped's spine, you will be struck by the resemblance of its vertebrae to a strung necklace of dwarfed skulls, all bearing rudimental resemblance to the skull proper. It is a German conceit that the vertebrae are absolutely undeveloped skulls. But the curious external resemblance I take it the Germans were not the first men to perceive. A foreign friend once pointed it out to me, in the skeleton of a foe he had slain, and with the vertebrae of which he was inlaying, in a sort of basso relievo, the beaked prow of his canoe. Now, I consider that the phrenologists have omitted an important thing in not pushing their investigations from the cerebellum through the spinal canal, for I believe that much of a man's character will be found betokened in his backbone. I would rather feel your spine than your skull, whoever you are. A thin joist of a spine never yet upheld a full and noble soul. I rejoice in my spine, as in the firm, audacious staff of that flag which I fling half out to the world. Apply this spinal branch of phrenology to the sperm whale. His cranial cavity is continuous with the first neck vertebra, and in that vertebra the bottom of the spinal canal will measure ten inches across, being eight in height, and of a triangular figure with the base downwards. As it passes through the remaining vertebrae, the canal tapers in size, but for a considerable distance remains of large capacity. Now, of course, this canal is filled with much the same strangely fibrous substance, the spinal cord, as the brain, and directly communicates with the brain. And what is still more, for many feet after emerging from the brain's cavity, the spinal cord remains of an undecreasing girth, almost equal to that of the brain. Under all these circumstances, would it be unreasonable to survey and map out the whale's spine phrenologically? For viewed in this light, the wonderful comparative smallness of his brain proper is more than compensated by the wonderful comparative magnitude of his spinal cord. But leaving this hint to operate as it may with the phrenologist, I would merely assume the spinal theory for a moment, in reference to the sperm whale's hump. This august hump, if I mistake not, rises over one of the larger vertebrae, and is therefore in some sort the outer convex mould of it. From its relative situation, then, I should call this high hump the organ of firmness or indomitableness in the sperm whale, and that the great monster is indomitable you will yet have reason to know. End of chapters 78 to 80《Moby Dick》Chapters 81 to 82. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. 
For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This reading by Stuart Wills. Moby Dick by Herman Melville. Chapters 81 and 82. Chapter 81. The Pequod Meets the Virgin. The predestinated day arrived, and we duly met the ship Jungfrau, Derek Dider, master of Bremen. At one time the greatest whaling people in the world, the Dutch and Germans are now among the least, but here and there at very wide intervals of latitude and longitude you still occasionally meet with their flag in the Pacific. For some reason the Jungfrau seemed quite eager to pay her respects, while yet some distance from the Pequod she rounded to, and dropping a boat her captain was impelled toward us impatiently standing in the bows instead of the stern. "'What has he in his hand there?' cried Starbuck, pointing to something wavingly held by the German. "'Impossible! A lamp-feeder!' "'Not that,' said Stubb. "'No, no! It's a coffee-pot, Mr. Starbuck. He's coming off to make us our coffee, is the Yarman. Don't you see that big tin can there alongside of him? That's his boiling water.' "'Oh, he's all right as the Yarman.' "'Get along with you,' cried Flask. "'It's a lamp-feeder and an oil-can. "'He's out of oil and has come a-begging.' However curious it may seem for an oil-ship to be borrowing oil on the whale-ground, and however much it may inadvertently contradict the old proverb about carrying coals to Newcastle, yet sometimes such a thing really happens.' and in the present case Captain Derek Dider did indubitably conduct a lamp-feeder, as Flask did declare. As he mounted the deck, Ahab abruptly accosted him, without at all heeding what he had in his hand, but in his broken lingo the German soon evinced his complete ignorance of the white whale, immediately turning the conversation to his lamp-feeder and oil-can, with some remarks touching his having to turn into his hammock at night in profound darkness, his last drop of Bremen oil being gone, and not a single flying fish yet captured to supply the deficiency, concluding by hinting that his ship was indeed what in the fishery is technically called a clean one, that is, an empty one, well deserving the name of Jungfrau, or the Virgin." His necessities supplied, Derek departed, but he had not gained his ship's side when whales were almost simultaneously raised from the mastheads of both vessels, and so eager for the chase was Derek, that without pausing to put his oil-can and lamp-feeder aboard, he slewed round his boat and made after the leviathan lamp-feeders. Now, the game having risen to the leeward, he and the other three German boats that soon followed him had considerably the start of the Pequod's keels. There were eight whales, an average pod. Aware of their danger, they were going all abreast with great speed straight before the wind, rubbing their flanks as closely as so many spans of horses in harness. They left a great wide wake, as though continually unrolling a great wide parchment upon the sea. Full in this rapid wake, and many fathoms in the rear, swam a huge humped old bull, which by his comparatively slow progress, as well as by the unusual yellowish incrustations overgrowing him, seemed afflicted with the jaundice, or some other infirmity. 
Whether this whale belonged to the pod in advance seemed questionable, for it is not customary for such venerable leviathans to be at all social. Nevertheless, he stuck to their wake, though indeed their backwater must have retarded him, because the white bone or swell at his broad muzzle was a dashed one, like the swell formed when two hostile currents meet. His spout was short, slow, and laborious, coming forth with a choking sort of gush, and spending itself in torn shreds, followed by strange subterranean commotions in him, which seemed to have egress at his other buried extremity, causing the waters behind him to up-bubble. "'Who's got some paragoric?' said Stubb. "'He has the stomach-ache, I'm afraid. Lord, think of having half an acre of stomach-ache. Adverse winds are holding mad Christmas in him, boys. It's the first foul wind I ever knew to blow from astern. But look, did ever whale yaw so before?' It must be he's lost his tiller. As an overladen Indiaman, bearing down the Hindustan coast with a deck-load of frightened horses, careens, berries, rolls, and wallows on her way, so did this old whale heave his aged bulk, and now and then, partly turning over on his cumbrous rib-ends, expose the cause of his devious wake in the unnatural stump of his starboard fin. Whether he had lost that fin in battle, or had been born without it, it were hard to say. "'Only wait a bit, old chap, and I'll give you a sling for that wounded arm,' cried Cruel Flask, pointing to the whale-line near him. "'Mind he don't sling thee with it,' cried Starbuck. "'Give way, or the German will have him.' With one intent, all the combined rival boats were pointed for this one fish— because not only was he the largest and therefore the most valuable whale, but he was nearest to them, and the other whales were going with such great velocity, moreover, as almost to defy pursuit for the time. At this juncture the Pequod's keels had shot by the three German boats last lowered, but from the great start he had had, Derrick's boat still led the chase, though every moment neared by his foreign rivals. The only thing they feared was that, from being already so nigh to his mark, he would be enabled to dart his iron before they could completely overtake and pass him. As for Derrick, he seemed quite confident that this would be the case, and occasionally, with a deriding gesture, shook his lamp-feeder at the other boats. "'The ungracious and ungrateful dog!' cried Starbuck. He mocks and dares me with the very poor box I filled for him not five minutes ago. Then, in his old intense whisper, Give way, greyhounds, dog to it. I tell you what it is, men, cried Stubb to his crew. It's against my religion to get mad, but I'd like to eat that villainous yarman. Pull, won't you? Are you going to let that rascal beat you? Do you love brandy? A hogshead of brandy, then, to the best man. Come, why don't some of you burst a blood vessel? Who's that been dropping an anchor overboard? We don't budge an inch. We're becalmed. Halloo, here's grass growing in the boat's bottom. And by the Lord, the mast there, budding. This won't do, boys. Look at that yarman. The short and long of it is, men. Will you spit fire or not? Oh, see the suds he makes, cried Flask, dancing up and down. What a hump! Oh, do pile on the beef! lays like a log oh my lads do spring 
slapjacks and quahogs for supper, you know, my lads, baked clams and muffins, oh, do, do spring, he's a hundred barreler, don't lose him now, oh, don't, don't, see that yarman, oh, won't you pull for your duff, my lads, such a sog, such a sogger, don't you love sperm, there goes three thousand dollars, men, a bank, a whole bank, the bank of England, oh, do, 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 What's that yarman about now? At this moment, Derrick was in the act of pitching his lamp feeder at the advancing boats, and also his oil can, perhaps with the double view of retarding his rival's way, and at the same time economically accelerating his own by the momentary impetus of the backward toss. The unmannerly Dutch dogger! cried Stubb. Pull now, men! like fifty thousand line-of-battleship loads of red-haired devils. What do you say, Tashtego? Are you the man to snap your spine in two-and-twenty pieces for the honor of old Gayhead? What do you say? I say, pull like goddamn, cried the Indian. Fiercely, but evenly incited by the taunts of the German, the Pequod's three boats now began ranging almost abreast, and so disposed, momentarily neared him, in that fine, loose, chivalrous attitude of the headsman, when drawing near to his prey, the three mates stood up proudly, occasionally backing the after-oarsman with an exhilarating cry of, There she slides now! Hurrah for the white-ash breeze! Down with the yarman! Sail over him! But so decided an original start had Derrick had, that spite of all their gallantry he would have proved the victor in this race, had not a righteous judgment descended upon him in a crab which caught the blade of his midship oarsman. While this clumsy lubber was striving to free his white ash, and while, in consequence, Derrick's boat was nigh to capsizing, and he thundering away at his men in a mighty rage, that was a good time for Starbuck, Stubb, and Flask. With a shout, they took a mortal start forward, and slantingly ranged up on the German's quarter. An instant more, and all four boats were diagonally in the whale's immediate wake, while stretching from them on both sides was the foaming swell that he made. It was a terrific, most pitiable, and maddening sight. The whale was now going head out, and sending his spout before him in a continual tormented jet, while his one poor fin beat his side in an agony of fright. Now to this hand, now to that, he yawed in his faltering flight, and still at every billow that he broke he spasmodically sank in the sea, or sideways rolled towards the sky his one beating fin. So have I seen a bird with clipped wing making affrighted broken circles in the air, vainly striving to escape the piratical hawks. But the bird has a voice, and with plaintive cries will make known her fear, but the fear of this vast dumb brute of the sea was chained up and enchanted in him. He had no voice, save that choking respiration through his spiracle, and this made the sight of him unspeakably pitiable, while still, in his amazing bulk, portcullis jaw, and omnipotent tail, there was enough to appall the stoutest man who so pitied. Seeing now that but a very few moments more would give the Pequod's boats the advantage, and rather than be thus foiled of his game, Derrick chose to hazard what to him must have seemed a most unusually long dart, ere the last chance would forever escape. 
but no sooner did his harpooner stand up for the stroke than all three tigers queequeg tashtego and dagoo instinctively sprang to their feet and standing in a diagonal row simultaneously pointed their barbs and darted over the head of the german harpooner their three nantucket irons entered the whale blinding vapors of foam and white fire the three boats in the first fury of the whale's headlong rush bumped the germans aside with such force that both derrick and his baffled harpooner were spilled out and sailed over by the three flying keels don't be afraid my butter-boxes cried stubb casting a passing glance upon them as he shot by you'll be picked up presently all right i saw some sharks astern st bernard's dogs you know relieve distressed travellers hurrah this is the way to sail now every keel a sunbeam hurrah here we go like three tin kettles at the tail of a mad cougar this puts me in mind of fastening to an elephant in a tilbury on a plain makes the wheel spokes fly boys when you fasten to him that way and there's danger of being pitched out too when you strike a hill hurrah this is the way a fellow feels when he's going to davy jones all a rush down an endless inclined plain hurrah this whale carries the everlasting mail but the monster's run was a brief one giving a sudden gasp he tumultuously sounded with a grating rush the three lines flew round the loggerheads with such force as to gouge deep grooves in them while so fearful were the harpooners that this rapid sounding would soon exhaust the lines that using all their dexterous might they caught repeated smoking turns with the rope to hold on till at last owing to the perpendicular strain from the lead-lined chocks of the boats whence the three ropes went straight down into the blue the gunwales of the bows were almost even with the water while the three sterns were tilted high in the air and the whale soon ceasing to sound for some time they remained in that attitude fearful of expending more line though the position was a little ticklish but though boats have been taken down and lost in this way yet it is this holding on as it is called this hooking up by the sharp barbs of his live flesh from the back this it is that often torments the leviathan into soon rising again to meet the sharp lance of his foes yet not to speak of the peril of the thing it is to be doubted whether this course is always the best for it is but reasonable to presume that the longer the stricken whale stays under water the more he is exhausted because owing to the enormous surface of him in a full-grown sperm whale something less than two thousand square feet the pressure of the water is immense we all know what an astonishing atmospheric weight we ourselves stand up under even here above ground in the air how vast then the burden of a whale bearing on his back a column of two hundred fathoms of ocean it must at least equal the weight of fifty atmospheres one whaleman has estimated it at the weight of twenty line of battleships with all their guns and stores and men on board as the three boats lay there on that gently rolling sea gazing down into its eternal blue noon and as not a single groan or cry of any sort nay not so much as a ripple or a bubble came up from its depths what landsman would have thought that beneath all that silence and placidity the utmost monster of the seas was writhing and wrenching in agony not eight inches of perpendicular rope were visible at the bows 
seems it credible that by three such thin threads the great leviathan was suspended like the big weight to an eight-day clock? Suspended? And to what? To three bits of board. Is this the creature of whom it was once so triumphantly said, Canst thou fill his skin with barbed irons, or his head with fish-spears? The sword of him that layeth at him cannot hold, the spear, the dart, nor the habergeon, he esteemeth iron as straw, the arrow cannot make him flee, darts are counted as stubble, he laugheth at the shaking of a spear. This the creature, this he? Oh, that unfulfilment should follow the prophets! For with the strength of a thousand thighs in his tail, Leviathan had run his head under the mountains of the sea to hide him from the Pequod's fish-spears. In that sloping afternoon sunlight, the shadows that the three boats sent down beneath the surface must have been long enough and broad enough to shade half Xerxes' army. Who can tell how appalling to the wounded whale must have been such huge phantoms flitting over his head? "'Stand by, men! He stirs!' cried Starbuck, as the three lines suddenly vibrated in the water, distinctly conducting upwards to them, as by magnetic wires, the life and death-throbs of the whale, so that every oarsman felt them in his seat. The next moment, relieved in great part from the downward strain at the bows, the boats gave a sudden bounce upward, as a small ice-field will, when a dense herd of white bears are scared from it into the sea. "'Haul in! Haul in!' cried Starbuck again. "'He's rising!' The lines, of which hardly an instant before not one hand's breadth could have been gained, were now in long, quick coils flung back, all dripping into the boats, and soon the whale broke water within two ship's lengths of the hunters. His motions plainly denoted his extreme exhaustion. In most land animals there are certain valves or floodgates in many of their veins, whereby, when wounded, the blood is, in some degree at least, instantly shut off in certain directions. Not so with the whale, one of whose peculiarities it is to have an entire non-valvular structure of the blood vessels, so that when pierced even by so small a point as a harpoon, a deadly drain is at once begun upon his whole arterial system, and when this is heightened by the extraordinary pressure of water at a great distance below the surface, his life may be said to pour from him in incessant streams. Yet so vast is the quantity of blood in him, and so distant and numerous its interior fountains, that he will keep thus bleeding and bleeding for a considerable period, even as in a drought a river will flow, whose source is in the well-springs of far-off and undiscernible hills, even now, when the boats pulled upon the whale, and perilously drew over his swaying flukes, and the lances were darted into him, they were followed by steady jets from the new-made wound, which kept continually playing, while the natural spout-hole in his head was only at intervals, however rapid, sending its affrighted moisture into the air. From this last vent no blood yet came, because no vital part of him had thus far been struck. His life, as they significantly call it, was untouched. As the boats now more closely surrounded him, the whole upper part of his form, with much of it that is ordinarily submerged, was plainly revealed. His eyes, or rather the places where his eyes had been, were beheld. 
as strange misgrown masses gather in the knot-holes of the noblest oaks when prostrate, so from the points which the whale's eyes had once occupied now protruded blind bulbs, horribly pitiable to see. But pity there was none, for all his old age, and his one arm, and his blind eyes, he must die the death and be murdered in order to light the gay bridles and other merry-makings of men, and also to illuminate these solemn churches that preach unconditional inoffensiveness by all to all. Still rolling in his blood, at last he partially disclosed a strangely discoloured bunch or protuberance the size of a bushel low down on the flank. "'A nice spot!' cried Flask. "'Just let me prick him there once.' "'Avast!' cried Starbuck. "'There's no need of that.' But humane Starbuck was too late. At the instant of the dart, an ulcerous jet shot from this cruel wound, and goaded by it into more than sufferable anguish, the whale, now spouting thick blood with swift fury, blindly darted at the craft, bespattering them and their glorying crews all over with showers of gore, capsizing Flask's boat, and marring the bows. It was his death-stroke for by this time so spent was he by loss of blood that he helplessly rolled away from the wreck he had made, lay panting on his side, impotently flapped with his stumped fin, then over and over slowly revolved like a waning world, turned up the white secrets of his belly, lay like a log, and died. It was most piteous, that last expiring spout, as when by unseen hands the water is gradually drawn off from some mighty fountain, and with half-stifled melancholy gurglings the spray-column lowers and lowers to the ground, so the last long-dying spout of the whale. Soon, while the crews were awaiting the arrival of the ship, the body showed symptoms of sinking with all its treasures unrifled, Immediately, by Starbuck's orders, lines were secured to it at different points, so that ere long every boat was a boy, the sunken whale being suspended a few inches beneath them by the cords. By very heedful management, when the ship drew nigh, the whale was transferred to her side, and was strongly secured there by the stiffest fluke chains, for it was plain that unless artificially upheld, the body would at once sink to the bottom." It so chanced that almost upon first cutting into him with the spade, the entire length of a corroded harpoon was found embedded in his flesh, on the lower part of the bunch before described. But as the stumps of harpoons are frequently found in the dead bodies of captured whales, with the flesh perfectly healed around them, and no prominence of any kind to denote their place, Therefore there must needs have been some other unknown reason in the present case fully to account for the ulceration alluded to. But still more curious was the fact of a lance-head of stone being found in him, not far from the buried iron, the flesh perfectly firm about it. Who had darted that stone lance, and when? It might have been darted by some Norwest Indian long before America was discovered." What other marvels might have been rummaged out of this monstrous cabinet there is no telling, but a sudden stop was put to further discoveries by the ships being unprecedentedly dragged over sideways to the sea, owing to the body's immensely increasing tendency to sink. However, Starbuck, who had the ordering of affairs, 
hung on to it to the last, hung on to it so resolutely indeed, that when at length the ship would have been capsized, if still persisting in locking arms with the body, then when the command was given to break clear from it, such was the immovable strain upon the timber-heads to which the fluke-chains and cables were fastened, that it was impossible to cast them off. Meantime everything in the Pequod was a slant. To cross to the other side of the deck was like walking up the steep gabled roof of a house. The ship groaned and gasped. Many of the ivory inlayings of her bulwarks and cabins were started from their places by the unnatural dislocation. In vain handspikes and crows were brought to bear upon the immovable fluke-chains to pry them adrift from the timber-heads, and so low had the whale now settled that the submerged ends could not be at all approached, while every moment whole tons of ponderosity seemed added to the sinking bulk, and the ship seemed on the point of going over. "'Hold on! Hold on, won't you?' cried Stubb to the body. "'Don't be in such a devil of a hurry to sink!' By thunder, men, we must do something or go for it. No use prying there. Avast, I say, with your handspikes, and run one of you for a prayer book and a penknife, and cut the big chains. Knife? Aye, aye, cried Queequeg, and seizing the carpenter's heavy hatchet, he leaned out of a porthole, and steel to iron, began slashing at the largest fluke chains but a few strokes full of sparks were given when the exceeding strain effected the rest. With a terrific snap, every fastening went adrift. The ship righted, the carcass sank. Now this occasional, inevitable sinking of the recently killed sperm-whale is a very curious thing, nor has any fisherman yet adequately accounted for it. Usually the dead sperm-whale floats with great buoyancy, with its side or belly considerably elevated above the surface. If the only whales that thus sank were old, meagre, and broken-hearted creatures, their pads of lard diminished and all their bones heavy and rheumatic, then you might with some reason assert that this sinking is caused by an uncommon specific gravity in the fish so sinking, consequent upon this absence of buoyant matter in him. But it is not so, for young whales, in the highest health and swelling with noble aspirations, prematurely cut off in the warm flush and may of life, with all their panting lard about them, even these brawny, buoyant heroes do sometimes sink. Be it said, however, that the sperm-whale is far less liable to this accident than any other species, where one of that sort go down, twenty right whales do. This difference in the species is no doubt imputable in no small degree to the greater quantity of bone in the right whale, his Venetian blinds alone sometimes weighing more than a ton. From this encumbrance the sperm-whale is wholly free. But there are instances where, after the lapse of many hours or several days, the sunken whale again rises, more buoyant than in life. But the reasons of this are obvious gases are generated in him, he swells to a prodigious magnitude, becomes a sort of animal balloon. A line of battleship could hardly keep him under then. In the shore whaling, on soundings among the bays of New Zealand, when a right whale gives token of sinking, they fasten buoys to him, with plenty of rope, so that, when the body has gone down, they know where to look for it when it shall have ascended again. 
It was not long after the sinking of the body that a cry was heard from the Pequod's mastheads, announcing that the Jungfrau was again lowering her boats, though the only spout in sight was that of a finback, belonging to the species of uncapturable whales, because of its incredible power of swimming. Nevertheless, the finback spout is so similar to the sperm whales that by unskillful fishermen it is often mistaken for it and consequently Derrick and all his host were now in valiant chase of this unnearable brute, the virgin crowding all sail made after her four young keels, and thus they all disappeared far to leeward, still in bold, hopeful chase. Oh, many are the finbacks, and many are the Derricks, my friend. Chapter 82 the honour and glory of whaling. There are some enterprises in which a careful disorderliness is the true method. The more I dive into this matter of whaling, and push my researches up to the very springhead of it, so much the more am I impressed with its great honourableness and antiquity, and especially when I find so many great demigods and heroes, prophets of all sort, who one way or other have shed distinction upon it, I am transported with the reflection that I myself belong, though but subordinately, to so emblazoned a fraternity. The gallant Persis, son of Jupiter, was the first whaleman, and to the eternal honour of our calling be it said that the first whale attacked by our brotherhood was not killed with any sordid intent. Those were the knightly days of our profession, when we only bore arms to succour the distressed, not to fill men's lamp-feeders. Everyone knows the fine story of Persis and Andromeda, how the lovely Andromeda, the daughter of a king, was tied to a rock on the sea-coast, and as Leviathan was in the very act of carrying her off, Persis, the prince of whalemen, intrepidly advancing, harpooned the monster, and delivered and married the maid, it was an admirable artistic exploit, rarely achieved by the best harpooners of the present day, inasmuch as this leviathan was slain at the very first dart, and let no man doubt this archite story, for in the ancient Joppa, now Jaffa, on the Syrian coast, in one of the pagan temples there stood for many ages the vast skeleton of a whale, which the city's legends and all the inhabitants asserted to be the identical bones of the monster that Persis slew. When the Romans took Joppa, the same skeleton was carried to Italy in triumph. What seems most singular and suggestively important in this story is this. It was from Joppa that Jonah set sail. Akin to the adventure of Persis and Andromeda, indeed by some supposed to be indirectly derived from it, is that famous story of St. George and the dragon, which dragon I maintain to have been a whale, for in many old chronicles whales and dragons are strangely jumbled together, and often stand for each other. Thou art as a lion of the waters, and as a dragon of the sea, saith Ezekiel, hereby plainly meaning a whale, in truth some versions of the Bible use that word itself. Besides, it would much subtract from the glory of the exploit had St. George but encountered a crawling reptile of the land, instead of doing battle with the great monster of the deep. Any man may kill a snake, but only a Persis, a St. George, a coffin, 
have the heart in them to march boldly up to a whale. Let not the modern paintings of this scene mislead us, for though the creature encountered by that valiant whaleman of old is vaguely represented of a griffin-like shape, and though the battle is depicted on land and the saint on horseback, yet considering the great ignorance of those times when the true form of the whale was unknown to artists, and considering that, as in Persis's case, St. George's whale might have crawled up out of the sea on the beach, and considering that the animal ridden by St. George might have been only a large seal or seahorse, bearing all this in mind, it will not appear altogether incompatible with the sacred legend and the ancientest drafts of the scene to hold this so-called dragon no other than the great Leviathan himself, in fact, placed before the strict and piercing truth, this whole story will fare like that fish, flesh, and foul idol of the Philistines, Dagon by name, who being planted before the Ark of Israel, his horse's head and both the palms of his hands fell off from him, and only the stump or fishy part of him remained. Thus, then, one of our own noble stamp, even a whaleman, is the tutelary guardian of England, and by good rights we harpooners of Nantucket should be enrolled in the most noble order of St. George. And therefore let not the knights of that honourable company, none of whom I venture to say have ever had to do with a whale like their great patron, let them never eye a Nantucketer with disdain, since even in our woollen frocks and tarred trousers we are much better entitled to St. George's decoration than they." Whether to admit Hercules among us or not, concerning this I long remained dubious. For though, according to the Greek mythologies, that antique Crockett and Kit Carson, that brawny doer of rejoicing good deeds, was swallowed down and thrown up by a whale, still whether that strictly makes a whaleman of him, that might be mooted. It nowhere appears that he ever actually harpooned his fish, unless indeed from the inside, Nevertheless, he may be deemed a sort of involuntary whaleman. At any rate, the whale caught him if he did not the whale. I claim him for one of our clan. But by the best contradictory authorities, this Grecian story of Hercules and the whale is considered to be derived from the still more ancient Hebrew story of Jonah and the whale, and vice versa. Certainly they are very similar. If I claim the demigod, then why not the prophet? Nor do heroes, saints, demigods, and prophets alone comprise the whole role of our order. Our grand master is still to be named, for like royal kings of old times, we find the headwaters of our fraternity in nothing short of the great gods themselves. That wondrous oriental story is now to be rehearsed from the Shaster, which gives us the dread Vishnu, one of the three persons of the godhead of the Hindus, gives us this divine Vishnu himself for our Lord. Vishnu, who, by the first of his ten earthly incarnations, has forever set apart and sanctified the whale. When Brahma, or the god of gods, saith the Shaster, resolved to recreate the world after one of its periodical dissolutions, he gave birth to Vishnu to preside over the work. But the Vedas, or mystical books, whose perusal would seem to have been indispensable to Vishnu before beginning the creation, and which therefore must have contained something in the shape of practical hints to young architects, 
These Vedas were lying at the bottom of the waters. So Vishnu became incarnate as a whale, and sounding down in him to the uttermost depths, rescued the sacred volumes. Was not this Vishnu a whaleman, then? Even as a man who rides a horse is called a horseman? Persis, St. George, Hercules, Jonah, and Vishnu. There's a member roll for you. What club but the whalemans can head off like that? End of chapters 81 and 82 Moby Dick, chapters 83 to 86. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This reading by Stuart Wills. Moby Dick by Herman Melville, chapters 83 to 86. Chapter 83. Jonah Historically Regarded Reference was made to the historical story of Jonah and the Whale in the preceding chapter. Now, some Nantucketers rather distrust this historical story of Jonah and the Whale, but then there were some skeptical Greeks and Romans who, standing out from the orthodox pagans of their times, equally doubted the story of Hercules and the Whale, and Arion and the Dolphin, and yet their doubting those traditions did not make those traditions one whit the less facts for all that. One old Sag Harbor whaleman's chief reason for questioning the Hebrew story was this. He had one of those quaint, old-fashioned Bibles, embellished with curious, unscientific plates, one of which represented Jonah's whale with two spouts in his head a peculiarity only true with respect to a species of the leviathan, the right whale, and varieties of that order, concerning which the fishermen have this saying, a penny roll would choke him, his swallow is so very small. But to this Bishop Jeb's anticipative answer is ready. It is not necessary, hints the bishop, that we consider Jonah as tombed in the whale's belly, but as temporarily lodged in some part of his mouth, and this seems reasonable enough in the good bishop, for truly the right whale's mouth would accommodate a couple of whist-tables, and comfortably seat all the players. Possibly, too, Jonah might have ensconced himself in a hollow tooth, but on second thoughts the right whale is toothless. Another reason which Sag Harbor, he went by that name, urged for his want of faith in this matter of the prophet, was something obscurely in reference to his incarcerated body and the whale's gastric juices. But this objection likewise falls to the ground, because a German exegetist supposes that Jonah must have taken refuge in the floating body of a dead whale, even as the French soldiers in the Russian campaign turned their dead horses into tents and crawled into them. Besides, it has been divined by other continental commentators that when Jonah was thrown overboard from the Joppa ship, he straightway effected his escape to another vessel nearby, some vessel with a whale for a figurehead, and, I would add, possibly called the whale, as some craft nowadays are christened the shark, the gull, the eagle. 
Nor have there been wanting learned exegetists who have opined that the whale mentioned in the book of Jonah merely meant a life-preserver, an inflated bag of wind, which the endangered prophet swam to, and so was saved from a watery doom. Poor Sag Harbor, therefore, seems worsted all round. But he had still another reason for his want of faith. It was this, if I remember right, Jonah was swallowed by the whale in the Mediterranean Sea, and after three days he was vomited up somewhere within three days' journey of Nineveh, a city on the Tigris, very much more than three days' journey across from the nearest point of the Mediterranean coast. How is that? But was there no other way for the whale to land the prophet within that short distance of Nineveh? Yes, he might have carried him round by the way of the Cape of Good Hope but not to speak of the passage through the whole length of the Mediterranean, and another passage up the Persian Gulf and the Red Sea, such a supposition would involve the complete circumnavigation of all Africa in three days, not to speak of the Tigris waters near the site of Nineveh being too shallow for any whale to swim in. Besides, this idea of Jonah's weathering the Cape of Good Hope at so early a day would wrest the honor of the discovery of that great headland from Bartholomew Diaz, its reputed discoverer, and so make modern history a liar. But all these foolish arguments of old Sag Harbor only evinced his foolish pride of reason, a thing still more reprehensible in him, seeing that he had but little learning except what he had picked up from the sun and the sea. I say it only shows his foolish, impious pride, and abominable, devilish rebellion against the reverend clergy. For by a Portuguese Catholic priest, this very idea of Jonah's going to Nineveh, via the Cape of Good Hope, was advanced as a signal magnification of the general miracle, and so it was. Besides, to this day, the highly enlightened Turks devoutly believe in the historical story of Jonah. And some three centuries ago, an English traveller, in old Harris's voyages, speaks of a Turkish mosque built in honour of Jonah, in which mosque was a miraculous lamp that burnt without any oil. Chapter 84 Pitch-poling To make them run easily and swiftly, the axles of carriages are anointed, and for much the same purpose some whalers perform an analogous operation upon their boat. They grease the bottom. Nor is it to be doubted that as such a procedure can do no harm, it may possibly be of no contemptible advantage, considering that oil and water are hostile, that oil is a sliding thing, and that the object in view is to make the boat slide bravely. Queequeg believes strongly in anointing his boat, and one morning, not long after the German ship Jungfrau disappeared, took more than customary pains in that occupation, crawling under its bottom where he hung over the side, and rubbing in the unctuousness as though diligently seeking to ensure a crop of hair from the craft's bald keel. He seemed to be working in obedience to some particular presentiment, nor did it remain unwarranted by the event. Towards noon, whales were raised, but so soon as the ship sailed down to them, they turned and fled with swift precipitancy, a disordered flight as of Cleopatra's barges from Actium. 
Nevertheless, the boats pursued, and Stubbs was foremost. By great exertion, Tashtego at last succeeded in planting one iron, but the stricken whale, without at all sounding, still continued his horizontal flight, with added fleetness. Such unintermitted strainings upon the planted iron must sooner or later inevitably extract it. It became imperative to lance the flying whale, or be content to lose him. But to haul the boat up to his flank was impossible, he swam so fast and furious. What then remained? Of all the wondrous devices and dexterities, the slights of hand and countless subtleties to which the veteran whaleman is so often forced, none exceed that fine maneuver with the lance called pitch-poling. Small sword or broadsword, in all its exercises, boasts nothing like it. It is only indispensable with an inveterate running whale. Its grand fact and feature is the wonderful distance to which the long lance is accurately darted from a violently rocking, jerking boat, under extreme headway. Steel and wood included, the entire spear is some ten or twelve feet in length, the staff is much slighter than that of the harpoon, and also of lighter material, pine. It is furnished with a small rope called a warp, of considerable length, by which it can be hauled back to the hand after darting. But before going further, it is important to mention here, that though the harpoon may be pitch-poled in the same way with the lance, yet it is seldom done, and when done it is still less frequently successful, on account of the greater weight and inferior length of the harpoon as compared with the lance, which, in effect, become serious drawbacks. As a general thing, therefore, you must first get fast to a whale before any pitch-poling comes into play. Look now at Stubb, a man who, from his humorous, deliberate coolness and equanimity in the direst emergencies, was specially qualified to excel in pitch-poling. Look at him. He stands upright in the tossed bow of the flying boat, wrapped in fleecy foam. The towing whale is forty feet ahead. Handling the long lance, lightly, glancing twice or thrice along its length to see if it be exactly straight, Stubb whistlingly gathers up the coil of the warp in one hand, so as to secure its free end in his grasp, leaving the rest unobstructed. Then, holding the lance full before his waistband's middle, he levels it at the whale, when, covering him with it, he steadily depresses the butt-end in his hand, thereby elevating the point till the weapon stands fairly balanced upon his palm, fifteen feet in the air. He minds you somewhat of a juggler, balancing a long staff on his chin. Next moment, with a rapid, nameless impulse, in a superb, lofty arch, the bright steel spans the foaming distance and quivers in the life-spot of the whale. Instead of sparkling water, he now spouts red blood. "'That drove the spigot out of him,' cried Stubb. "'Tis July's immortal fourth. All fountains must run wine to-day. Would now it were old New Orleans whiskey or old Ohio, or unspeakable old Monongahela. Then, Tashtego, lad, I'd have you hold a canakin to the jet, and we'd drink round of it. Yea, verily, heart's alive. We'd brew choice punch in the spread of his spout-hole there.' from that live punch-bowl quaff the living stuff. Again and again, to such gamesome talk, 
the dexterous dart is repeated, the spear returning to its master like a greyhound held in skilful leash. The agonized whale goes into his flurry, the tow-line is slackened, and the pitch-poler, dropping astern, folds his hands and mutely watches the monster die. Chapter 85 The Fountain that for six thousand years, and no one knows how many millions of ages before, the great whale should have been spouting all over the sea, and sprinkling and mystifying the gardens of the deep, as with so many sprinkling or mystifying pots, and that for some centuries back thousands of hunters should have been close by the fountain of the whale, watching these sprinklings and spoutings, that all this should be, and yet that down to this blessed minute, fifteen and a quarter minutes past one o'clock p.m. of this sixteenth day of December, A.D. 1851, it should still remain a problem whether these spoutings are, after all, really water, or nothing but vapor, this is surely a noteworthy thing. Let us then look at this matter, along with some interesting items contingent. Everyone knows that by the peculiar cunning of their gills, the finny tribes in general breathe the air which at all times is combined with the element in which they swim. Hence a herring or cod might live a century, and never once raise its head above the surface. But owing to his marked internal structure which gives him regular lungs, like a human being's, the whale can only live by inhaling the disengaged air in the open atmosphere wherefore the necessity for his periodical visits to the upper world. But he cannot in any degree breathe through his mouth, for in his ordinary attitude the sperm-whale's mouth is buried at least eight feet beneath the surface, and, what is still more, his windpipe has no connection with his mouth. No, he breathes through his spiracle alone, and this is on the top of his head." If I say that in any creature, breathing is only a function indispensable to vitality, inasmuch as it withdraws from the air a certain element, which being subsequently brought into contact with the blood, imparts to the blood its vivifying principle, I do not think I shall err, though I may possibly use some superfluous scientific words. Assume it, and it follows that if all the blood in a man could be aerated in one breath, he might then seal up his nostrils and not fetch another for a considerable time. That is to say, he would then live without breathing. Anomalous as it may seem, this is precisely the case with the whale, who systematically lives by intervals his full hour and more, when at the bottom, without drawing a single breath, or so much as in any way inhaling a particle of air, for, remember, he has no gills. How is this? Between his ribs and on each side of his spine, he is supplied with a remarkable, involved, cretin labyrinth of vermicelli-like vessels, which vessels, when he quits the surface, are completely distended with oxygenated blood, so that, for an hour or more, a thousand fathoms in the sea, he carries a surplus stock of vitality in him, just as the camel crossing the waterless desert carries a surplus supply of drink for future use in its four supplementary stomachs. The anatomical fact of this labyrinth is indisputable, 
and that the supposition founded upon it is reasonable and true, seems the more cogent to me when I consider the otherwise inexplicable obstinacy of that Leviathan in having his spoutings out, as the fishermen phrase it. This is what I mean. If unmolested, upon rising to the surface, the sperm-whale will continue there for a period of time exactly uniform with all his other unmolested risings. Say he stays eleven minutes and jets seventy times, that is, respires seventy breaths, then whenever he rises again, he will be sure to have his seventy breaths all over again, to a minute. Now if, after he fetches a few breaths, you alarm him, so that he sounds, he will be always dodging up again to make good his regular allowance of air, and not till those seventy breaths are told will he finally go down to stay out his full term below. Remark, however, that in different individuals these rates are different, but in any one they are alike. Now why should the whale thus insist upon having his spoutings out, unless it be to replenish his reservoir of air ere descending for good? How obvious is it, too, that this necessity for the whale's rising exposes him to all the fatal hazards of the chase. For not by hook or by net could this vast leviathan be caught when sailing a thousand fathoms beneath the sunlight. Not so much thy skill, then, O hunter, as the great necessities that strike the victory to thee. In man breathing is incessantly going on, one breath only serving for two or three pulsations, so that whatever other business he has to attend to, waking or sleeping, breathe he must, or die he will. But the sperm-whale only breathes about one-seventh or Sunday of his time. It has been said that the whale only breathes through his spout-hole. If it could truthfully be added that his spouts are mixed with water, then I opine we should be furnished with the reason why his sense of smell seems obliterated in him, for the only thing about him that at all answers to his nose is that identical spout-hole, and being so clogged with two elements, it could not be expected to have the power of smelling. But owing to the mystery of the spout, whether it be water or whether it be vapour, no absolute certainty can as yet be arrived at on this head. Sure it is, nevertheless, that the sperm-whale has no proper olfactories. But what does he want of them? No roses, no violets, no cologne water in the sea. Furthermore, as his windpipe solely opens into the tube of his spouting canal, and as that long canal, like the Grand Erie Canal, is furnished with a sort of locks that open and shut for the downward retention of air or the upward exclusion of water, therefore the whale has no voice, unless you insult him by saying that when he so strangely rumbles he talks through his nose. But then again, what has the whale to say? Seldom have I known any profound being that had anything to say to this world, unless forced to stammer out something by way of getting a living. Oh, happy that the world is such an excellent listener. Now the spouting canal of the sperm-whale, chiefly intended as it is for the conveyance of air, and for several feet laid along horizontally just beneath the upper surface of his head, and a little to one side, this curious canal is very much like a gas-pipe laid down in a city on one side of a street. But the question returns whether this gas-pipe is also a water-pipe, 
In other words, whether the spout of the sperm whale is the mere vapor of the exhaled breath, or whether that exhaled breath is mixed with water taken in at the mouth and discharged through the spiracle. It is certain that the mouth indirectly communicates with the spouting canal, but it cannot be proved that this is for the purpose of discharging water through the spiracle, because the greatest necessity for so doing would seem to be when in feeding he accidentally takes in water. But the sperm whale's food is far beneath the surface, and there he cannot spout even if he would. Besides, if you regard him very closely, and time him with your watch, you will find that when unmolested, there is an undeviating rhyme between the periods of his jets and the ordinary periods of respiration. But why pester one with all this reasoning on the subject? Speak out! You have seen him spout. Then declare what the spout is. Can you not tell water from air? My dear sir, in this world it is not so easy to settle these plain things. I have ever found your plain things the naughtiest of all, and as for this whale-spout, you might almost stand in it and yet be undecided as to what it is precisely. The central body of it is hidden in the snowy, sparkling mist enveloping it, and how can you certainly tell whether any water falls from it, when always, when you are close enough to a whale to get a close view of his spout, he is in a prodigious commotion, the water cascading all around him, and if at such times you should think that you really perceive drops of moisture in the spout, how do you know that they are not merely condensed from its vapor? Or how do you know that they are not those identical drops superficially lodged in the spout-hole fissure which is countersunk into the summit of the whale's head? For even when tranquilly swimming through the midday sea in a calm, with his elevated hump sun-dried as a dromedary's in the desert, even then the whale always carries a small basin of water on his head, as under a blazing sun you will sometimes see a cavity in a rock filled up with rain. Nor is it at all prudent for the hunter to be over-curious touching the precise nature of the whale-spout. It will not do for him to be peering into it and putting his face in it. You cannot go with your pitcher to this fountain and fill it and bring it away." For even when coming into slight contact with the outer vapory shreds of the jet, which will often happen, your skin will feverishly smart from the acridness of the thing so touching it. And I know one who, coming into still closer contact with the spout, whether with some scientific object in view or otherwise, I cannot say, the skin peeled off from his cheek and arm. Wherefore, among whalemen, the spout is deemed poisonous. They try to evade it. Another thing, I have heard it said, and I do not much doubt it, that if the jet is fairly spouted into your eyes, it will blind you. The wisest thing the investigator can do, then, it seems to me, is to let this deadly spout alone. Still, we can hypothesize, even if we cannot prove and establish. My hypothesis is this, that the spout is nothing but mist and besides other reasons, to this conclusion I am impelled by considerations touching the great inherent dignity and sublimity of the sperm-whale. I account him no common, shallow being, inasmuch as it is an undisputed fact that he is never found on soundings or near shores, all other whales sometimes are. He is both ponderous and profound, and I am convinced that from the heads of all ponderous, profound beings— 
such as Plato, Pyrrho, the Devil, Jupiter, Dante, and so on, there always goes up a certain semi-visible steam while in the act of thinking deep thoughts. While composing a little treatise on eternity, I had the curiosity to place a mirror before me, and ere long saw reflected there a curious, involved worming and undulation in the atmosphere over my head. The invariable moisture of my hair, while plunged in deep thought, after six cups of hot tea in my thin shingled attic of an August noon, this seems an additional argument for the above supposition. And how nobly it raises our conceit of the mighty, misty monster, to behold him solemnly sailing through a calm tropical sea, his vast, mild head overhung by a canopy of vapour, engendered by his incommunicable contemplations, and that vapour, as you will sometimes see it, glorified by a rainbow, as if heaven itself had put its seal upon his thoughts. For, do you see, rainbows do not visit the clear air, they only irradiate vapour. And so, through all the thick mists of the dim doubts in my mind, divine intuitions now and then shoot, enkindling my fog with a heavenly ray. And for this I thank God, for all have doubts, many deny, but doubts or denials, few along with them have intuitions. Doubts of all things earthly, and intuitions of some things heavenly, this combination makes neither believer nor infidel, but makes a man who regards them both with equal eye. CHAPTER 86 THE TALE other poets have warbled the praises of the soft eye of the antelope, and the lovely plumage of the bird that never alights. Less celestial, I celebrate a tale. Reckoning the largest sized sperm whale's tail to begin at that point of the trunk where it tapers to about the girth of a man, it comprises, upon its upper surface alone, an area of at least fifty square feet. The compact, round body of its root expands into two broad, firm, flat palms, or flukes, gradually shoaling away to less than an inch in thickness. At the crotch, or junction, these flukes slightly overlap, then sideways recede from each other like wings, leaving a wide vacancy between. In no living thing are the lines of beauty more exquisitely defined than in the crescentic borders of these flukes. At its utmost expansion in the full-grown whale, the tail will considerably exceed twenty feet across. The entire member seems a dense webbed bed of welded sinews, but cut into it and you find that three distinct strata compose it, upper, middle, and lower. The fibers in the upper and lower layers are long and horizontal, those of the middle one very short and running crosswise between the outside layers. This triune structure, as much as anything else, imparts power to the tail. To the student of old Roman walls, the middle layer will furnish a curious parallel to the thin course of tiles always alternating with the stone in those wonderful relics of the antique, and which undoubtedly contribute so much to the great strength of the masonry. But as if this vast local power in the tendinous tail were not enough, 
the whole bulk of the leviathan is knit over with a warp and woof of muscular fibres and filaments which passing on either side the loins and running down into the flukes insensibly blend with them and largely contribute to their might so that in the tail the confluent measureless force of the whole whale seems concentrated to a point could annihilation occur to matter this were the thing to do it nor does this its amazing strength at all tend to cripple the graceful flexion of its motions where infantileness of ease undulates through a titanism of power on the contrary those motions derive their most appalling beauty from it real strength never impairs beauty or harmony but it often bestows it and in everything imposingly beautiful strength has much to do with the magic take away the tied tendons that all over seem bursting from the marble in carved hercules and its charm would be gone as the devout eckerman lifted the linen sheet from the naked corpse of goethe he was overwhelmed with the massive chest of the man that seemed as a roman triumphal arch when angelo paints even god the father in human form mark what robustness is there and whatever they may reveal of the divine love in the sun the soft curled hermaphroditical italian pictures in which his idea has been most successfully embodied these pictures so destitute as they are of all brawniness hint nothing of any power but the mere negative feminine one of submission and endurance which on all hands it is conceded form the peculiar practical virtues of his teachings such is the subtle elasticity of the organ i treat of that whether wielded in sport or in earnest or in anger whatever be the mood it be in its flexions are invariably marked by exceeding grace therein no fairy's arm can transcend it five great motions are peculiar to it first when used as a fin for progression second when used as a mace in battle third in sweeping fourth in lobtailing fifth in peaking flukes first being horizontal in its position the leviathan's tail acts in a different manner from the tails of all other sea creatures it never wriggles in man or fish wriggling is a sign of inferiority to the whale his tail is the sole means of propulsion scroll-wise coiled forwards beneath the body and then rapidly sprung backwards it is this which gives that singular darting leaping motion to the monster when furiously swimming his side fins only serve to steer by second it is a little significant that while one sperm whale only fights another sperm whale with his head and jaw nevertheless in his conflicts with man he chiefly and contemptuously uses his tail in striking at a boat he swiftly curves away his flukes from it and the blow is only inflicted by the recoil if it be made in the unobstructed air especially if it descend to its mark the stroke is then simply irresistible no ribs of man or boat can withstand it your only salvation lies in eluding it but if it comes sideways through the opposing water then partly owing to the light buoyancy of the whale-boat and the elasticity of its materials a cracked rib or a dashed plank or two a sort of stitch in the side is generally the most serious result 
these submerged side-blows are so often received in the fishery that they are accounted mere child's play. Someone strips off a frock, and the hole is stopped. Third, I cannot demonstrate it, but it seems to me that in the whale the sense of touch is concentrated in the tail, for in this respect there is a delicacy in it only equaled by the daintiness of the elephant's trunk. This delicacy is chiefly evinced in the action of sweeping, when in maidenly gentleness the whale with a certain soft slowness moves his immense flukes from side to side upon the surface of the sea and if he feels but a sailor's whisker, woe to that sailor, whiskers and all, what tenderness there is in that preliminary touch. Had this tale any prehensile power, I should straightway bethink me of Darmonides' elephant that so frequented the flower-market, and with low salutations presented nosegays to damsels, and then caressed their zones. On more accounts than one, a pity it is that the whale does not possess this prehensile virtue in his tail. For I have heard of yet another elephant that, when wounded in the fight, curved round his trunk and extracted the dart. Fourth, stealing unawares upon the whale in the fancied security of the middle of solitary seas, you find him unbent from the vast corpulence of his dignity, and kitten-like he plays on the ocean as if it were a hearth. But still you see his power in his play. The broad palms of his tail are flirted high into the air, then smiting the surface the thunderous concussion resounds for miles. You would almost think a great gun had been discharged, and if you notice the light wreath of vapour from the spiracle at his other extremity, you would think that that was the smoke from the touch-hole." Fifth, as in the ordinary floating posture of the leviathan, the flukes lie considerably below the level of his back, they are then completely out of sight beneath the surface, but when he is about to plunge into the deeps, his entire flukes with at least thirty feet of his body are tossed erect in the air, and so remain vibrating a moment, till they downward shoot out of view." excepting the sublime breach somewhere else to be described this peaking of the whale's flukes is perhaps the grandest sight to be seen in all animated nature out of the bottomless profundities the gigantic tail seems spasmodically snatching at the highest heaven so in dreams have i seen majestic satan thrusting forth his tormented colossal claw from the flame baltic of hell but in gazing at such scenes it is all in all what mood you are in, if in the Dantean the devils will occur to you, if in that of Isaiah the archangels, standing at the masthead of my ship during a sunrise that crimsoned sky and sea, I once saw a large herd of whales in the east, all heading towards the sun, and for a moment vibrating in concert with peaked flukes. As it seemed to me at the time, such a grand embodiment of adoration of the gods was never beheld, even in Persia, the home of the fire-worshippers. As Ptolemy Philopater testified of the African elephant, I then testified of the whale, pronouncing him the most devout of all beings. For, according to King Juba, the military elephants of antiquity often hailed the morning with their trunks uplifted in the profoundest silence." 
The chance comparison in this chapter between the whale and the elephant, so far as some aspects of the tail of the one and the trunk of the other are concerned, should not tend to place those two opposite organs on an equality, much less the creatures to which they respectively belong. For as the mightiest elephant is but a terrier to Leviathan, so, compared with Leviathan's tail, his trunk is but the stalk of a lily. The most direful blow from the elephant's trunk were as the playful tap of a fan, compared with the measureless crush and crash of the sperm whale's ponderous flukes, which in repeated instances have one after the other hurled entire boats with all their oars and crews into the air, very much as an Indian juggler tosses his balls. Footnote though all comparison in the way of general bulk between the whale and the elephant is preposterous, inasmuch as in that particular the elephant stands in much the same respect to the whale as a dog does to the elephant, nevertheless there are not wanting some points of curious similitude. Among these is the spout. It is well known that the elephant will often draw up water or dust in his trunk, and then, elevating it, jet it forth in a stream. End of footnote. The more I consider this mighty tale, the more do I deplore my inability to express it. At times there are gestures in it which, though they would well grace the hand of man, remain wholly inexplicable. In an extensive herd so remarkable occasionally are these mystic gestures that I have heard hunters who have declared them akin to Freemason signs and symbols, that the whale indeed by these methods intelligently conversed with the world nor are there wanting other motions of the whale in his general body, full of strangeness and unaccountable to his most experienced assailant. Dissect him how I may, then, I go but skin deep. I know him not, and never will. But if I know not even the tail of this whale, how understand his head? Much more how comprehend his face, when face he has none. Thou shalt see my back parts, my tail, he seems to say, but my face shall not be seen. But I cannot completely make out his back parts, and hint what he will about his face. I say again, he has no face. End of chapters 83 to 86 Moby Dick, chapters 87 and 88. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This reading by Stuart Wills. Moby Dick, by Herman Melville, chapters 87 and 88. Chapter 87. The Grand Armada. The long and narrow peninsula of Malacca, extending southeastward from the territories of Burma, forms the most southerly point of all Asia. In a continuous line from that peninsula stretch the long islands of Sumatra, Java, Bali, and Timor, which, with many others, form a vast mole or rampart lengthwise connecting Asia with Australia, and dividing the long unbroken Indian Ocean from the thickly studded Oriental archipelagos. 
This rampart is pierced by several sally-ports for the convenience of ships and whales, conspicuous among which are the Straits of Sunda and Malacca. By the Straits of Sunda, chiefly, vessels bound to China from the west emerge into the China Seas. Those narrow Straits of Sunda divide Sumatra from Java, and standing midway in that vast rampart of islands, buttressed by that bold green promontory known to seamen as Java Head, they not a little correspond to the central gateway opening into some vast walled empire, and considering the inexhaustible wealth of spices and silks, and jewels and gold and ivory, with which the thousand islands of that oriental sea are enriched, it seems a significant provision of nature that such treasures by the very formation of the land should at least bear the appearance, however ineffectual, of being guarded from the all-grasping western world. The shores of the Straits of Sunda are unsupplied with those domineering fortresses which guard the entrances to the Mediterranean, the Baltic, and the Propontis. Unlike the Danes, these Orientals do not demand the obsequious homage of lowered topsails from the endless procession of ships before the wind, which for centuries past, by night and day, have passed between the islands of Sumatra and Java, freighted with the costliest cargoes of the East. But while they freely wave a ceremonial like this, they do by no means renounce their claim to more solid tribute. Time out of mind, the piratical proas of the Malays, lurking among the low-shaded coves and islets of Sumatra, have sallied out upon the vessels sailing through the straits, fiercely demanding tribute at the point of their spears, though by the repeated bloody chastisements they have received at the hands of European cruisers, the audacity of these corsairs has of late been somewhat repressed, yet even at the present day we occasionally hear of English and American vessels, which in those waters have been remorselessly boarded and pillaged. With a fair, fresh wind, the Pequod was now drawing nigh to these straits, Ahab purposing to pass through them into the Javan seas, and thence, cruising northward, over waters known to be frequented here and there by the sperm whale, sweep inshore by the Philippine Islands and gain the far coast of Japan, in time for the great whaling season there. By these means the circumnavigating Pequod would sweep almost all the known sperm whale cruising grounds of the world, previous to descending upon the line in the Pacific, where Ahab, though everywhere else foiled in his pursuit, firmly counted upon giving battle to Moby Dick, in the sea he was most known to frequent, and at a season when he might most reasonably be presumed to be haunting it. But how now? In this zoned quest does Ahab touch no land? Does his crew drink air? Surely he will stop for water. Nay, for a long time now the circus-running sun has raced within his fiery ring, and needs no sustenance but what's in himself. So Ahab. Mark this, too, in the whaler, while other hulls are loaded down with alien stuff to be transferred to foreign wharves, the world-wandering whale-ship carries no cargo but herself and crew, their weapons and their wants. She has a whole lake's contents bottled in her ample hold. She is ballasted with utilities, not altogether with unusable pig-lead and kentledge. She carries years' water in her. 
clear old prime Nantucket water, which, when three years afloat, the Nantucketer in the Pacific prefers to drink before the brackish fluid but yesterday rafted off in casks from the Peruvian or Indian streams. Hence it is that, while other ships may have gone to China from New York and back again, touching at a score of ports, the whale-ship in all that interval may not have sighted one grain of soil, her crew having seen no man but floating seamen like themselves. So that, did you carry them the news that another flood had come, they would only answer, Well, boys, here's the ark. Now, as many sperm-whales had been captured off the western coast of Java, in the near vicinity of the Straits of Sunda, indeed, as most of the ground round about was generally recognized by fishermen as an excellent spot for cruising, therefore, as the Pequod gained more and more upon Java Head, the lookouts were repeatedly hailed and admonished to keep wide awake. But though the green palmy cliffs of the land soon loomed on the starboard bow, and with delighted nostrils the fresh cinnamon was snuffed in the air, yet not a single jet was descried. Almost renouncing all thoughts of falling in with any game hereabouts, the ship had well-nigh entered the straits, when the customary cheering cry was heard from aloft, and, ere long, a spectacle of singular magnificence saluted us. But here be it premise that, owing to the unwearied activity with which of late they have been hunted over all four oceans, the sperm whales, instead of almost invariably sailing in small, detached companies as in former times, are now frequently met with in extensive herds, sometimes embracing so great a multitude that it would almost seem as if numerous nations of them had sworn solemn league and covenant for mutual assistance and protection. To this aggregation of the sperm-whale into such immense caravans may be imputed the circumstance that even in the best cruising-grounds you may now sometimes sail for weeks and months together without being greeted by a single spout and then suddenly be saluted by what sometimes seems thousands on thousands. Broad on both bows, at a distance of some two or three miles, and forming a great semicircle, embracing one half of the level horizon, a continuous chain of whale-jets were up-playing and sparkling in the noonday air. Unlike the straight, perpendicular twin-jets of the right whale, which, dividing at top, fall over in two branches, like the cleft, drooping boughs of a willow, the single forward-slanting spout of the sperm-whale presents a thick, curled bush of white mist, continually rising and falling away to leeward. Seen from the Pequod's deck, then, as she would rise on a high hill of the sea, this host of vapory spouts, individually curling up into the air, and beheld through a blending atmosphere of bluish haze, showed like the thousand cheerful chimneys of some dense metropolis, descried of a balmy autumnal morning by some horseman on a height. As marching armies, approaching an unfriendly defile in the mountains, accelerate their march, all eagerness to place that perilous passage in their rear, and once more expand in comparative security upon the plain, even so did this vast fleet of whales now seem hurrying forward through the straits, gradually contracting the wings of their semicircle, and swimming on in one solid but still crescentic centre. Crowding all sail, the Pequod pressed after them, 
the harpooners handling their weapons, and loudly cheering from the heads of their yet suspended boats. If the wind only held, little doubt had they that chased through these straits of Sunda, the vast host would only deploy into the Oriental seas to witness the capture of not a few of their number. And who could tell whether, in that congregated caravan, Moby Dick himself might not temporarily be swimming, like the worshipped white elephant in the coronation procession of the Siamese, so with stunsail piled on stunsail, we sailed along, driving these leviathans before us, when of a sudden the voice of Tashtego was heard, loudly directing attention to something in our wake. Corresponding to the crescent in our van, we beheld another in our rear. It seemed formed of detached white vapors, rising and falling something like the spouts of the whales, only they did not so completely come and go, for they constantly hovered, without finally disappearing. Leveling his glass at this sight, Ahab quickly revolved in his pivot-hole, crying, Aloft there, and rig-whips and buckets to wet the sails! Melees, sir, and after us! As if too long lurking behind the headlands, till the Pequod should fairly have entered the straits, these rascally Asiatics were now in hot pursuit, to make up for their over-cautious delay. But when the swift Pequod, with a fresh leading wind, was herself in hot chase, how very kind of these tawny philanthropists to assist in speeding her on to her own chosen pursuit, mere riding-whips and rolls to her as they were. As with glass under arm Ahab to and fro paced on the deck, in his forward turn beholding the monsters he chased, and in the after one the bloodthirsty pirates chasing him, some such fancy as the above seemed his. And when he glanced upon the green walls of the watery defile in which the ship was then sailing, and bethought him that through that gate lay the route to his vengeance, and beheld how, through that same gate, he was now both chasing and being chased to his deadly end, and not only that, but a herd of remorseless wild pirates and inhuman atheistical devils were infernally cheering him on with their curses. When all these conceits had passed through his brain, Ahab's brow was left gaunt and ribbed, like the black sand beach after some stormy tide has been gnawing it, without being able to drag the firm thing from its place. But thoughts like these troubled very few of the reckless crew, and when, after steadily dropping and dropping the pirates astern, the Pequod at last shot by the vivid green cockatoo point on the Sumatra side, emerging at last upon the broad waters beyond, then the harpooners seemed more to grieve that the swift whales had been gaining upon the ship than to rejoice that the ship had so victoriously gained upon the Malays. But still driving on in the wake of the whales, at length they seemed abating their speed. Gradually the ship neared them, and the wind now dying away, word was passed to spring to the boats. But no sooner did the herd, by some presumed wonderful instinct of the sperm whale, become notified of the three keels that were after them, though as yet a mile in their rear, then they rallied again, and forming in close ranks and battalions so that their spouts all looked like flashing lines of stacked bayonets, moved on with redoubled velocity. Stripped to our shirts and drawers, we sprang to the white ash, 
and after several hours pulling were almost disposed to renounce the chase, when a general pausing commotion among the whales gave animating token that they were now at last under the influence of that strange perplexity of inert irresolution, which, when fishermen perceive it in the whale, they say he is gallied. The compact martial columns in which they had been hitherto rapidly and steadily swimming were now broken up in one measureless rout, and like King Porus's elephant in the Indian battle with Alexander, they seemed going mad with consternation. In all directions expanding in vast irregular circles, and aimlessly swimming hither and thither by their short thick spoutings, they plainly betrayed their distraction of panic. This was still more strangely evinced by those of their number who, completely paralyzed as it were, helplessly floated like waterlogged dismantled ships on the sea. Had these leviathans been but a flock of simple sheep, pursued over the pasture by three fierce wolves, they could not possibly have evinced such excessive dismay. But this occasional timidity is characteristic of almost all herding creatures. Though banding together in tens of thousands, the lion-maned buffaloes of the west have fled before a solitary horseman, Witness, too, all human beings, how, when herded together in the sheepfold of a theatre's pit, they will, at the slightest alarm of fire, rush helter-skelter for the outlets, crowding, trampling, jamming, and remorselessly dashing each other to death. Best, therefore, withhold any amazement at the strangely gallied whales before us, for there is no folly of the beasts of the earth which is not infinitely outdone by the madness of men." Though many of the whales, as has been said, were in violent motion, yet it is to be observed that as a whole the herd neither advanced nor retreated, but collectively remained in one place. As is customary in those cases, the boats at once separated, each making for some one lone whale on the outskirts of the shoal. In about three minutes' time Queequeg's harpoon was flung. The stricken fish darted blinding spray in our faces, and then running away with us like light steered straight for the heart of the herd. Though such a movement on the part of the whale struck under such circumstances is in no wise unprecedented, and indeed is almost always more or less anticipated, yet does it present one of the more perilous vicissitudes of the fishery. For as the swift monster drags you deeper and deeper into the frantic shoal, you bid adieu to circumspect life and only exist in a delirious throb. As, blind and deaf, the whale plunged forward, as if by sheer power of speed to rid himself of the iron leech that had fastened to him, as we thus tore a white gash in the sea, on all sides menaced as we flew by the crazed creatures to and fro rushing about us, our beset boat was like a ship mobbed by ice-isles in a tempest, and striving to steer through their complicated channels and straits, not knowing at what moment it may be locked in and crushed. But not a bit daunted, Queequeg steered us manfully, now shearing off from this monster directly across our route in advance, now edging away from that, whose colossal flukes were suspended overhead, while all the time Starbuck stood up in the bows, lance in hand, pricking out of our way whatever whales he could reach by short darts, for there was no time to make long ones nor were the oarsmen quite idle, though their wanted duty was now altogether dispensed with. 
They chiefly attended to the shouting part of the business. "'Out of the way, Commodore!' cried one, to a great dromedary that of a sudden rose bodily to the surface, and for an instant threatened to swamp us. "'Hard down with your tail there!' cried a second to another, which, close to our gunwale, seemed calmly cooling himself with his own fan-like extremity. All whale-boats carry certain curious contrivances, originally invented by the Nantucket Indians, called drugs. Two thick squares of wood, of equal size, are stoutly clenched together, so that they cross each other's grain at right angles. A line of considerable length is then attached to the middle of this block, and the other end of the line being looped, it can in a moment be fastened to a harpoon. It is chiefly among gallied whales that this drug is used, for then more whales are close round you than you can possibly chase at one time. But sperm whales are not every day encountered, while you may then, you must kill all you can. And if you cannot kill them all at once, you must wing them, so that they can be afterwards killed at your leisure. Hence it is that at times like these the drug comes into requisition. Our boat was furnished with three of them. The first and second were successfully darted, and we saw the whales staggeringly running off, fettered by the enormous sidelong resistance of the towing drug. They were cramped like malefactors with the chain and ball. But upon flinging the third, in the act of tossing overboard the clumsy wooden block, it caught under one of the seats of the boat, and in an instant tore it out and carried it away, dropping the oarsman in the boat's bottom as the seat slid from under him. On both sides the sea came in at the wounded planks, but we stuffed two or three drawers and shirts in, and so stopped the leaks for the time. It had been next to impossible to dart these drugged harpoons, were it not that as we advanced into the herd our whale's way greatly diminished. Moreover, that as we went still further and further from the circumference of commotion, the direful disorders seemed waning so that when at last the jerking harpoon drew out and the towing whale sideways vanished, then, with the tapering force of his parting momentum, we glided between two whales into the innermost heart of the shoal, as if from some mountain torrent we had slid into a serene valley lake. Here the storms and the roaring glens between the outermost whales were heard, but not felt. In this central expanse the sea presented that smooth, satin-like surface, called a sleek, produced by the subtle moisture thrown off by the whale in his more quiet moods. Yes, we were now in that enchanted calm which they say lurks at the heart of every commotion. And still in the distracted distance we beheld the tumults of the outer concentric circles, and saw successive pods of whales, eight or ten in each, swiftly going round and round, like multiplied spans of horses in a ring, and so closely shoulder to shoulder, that a titanic circus rider might easily have overarched the middle ones, and so have gone round on their backs. Owing to the density of the crowd of reposing whales, more immediately surrounding the embayed axis of the herd, no possible chance of escape was at present afforded us. We must watch for a breach in the living wall that hemmed us in, the wall that had only admitted us in order to shut us up. Keeping at the centre of the lake, we were occasionally visited by small, tame cows and calves, the women and children of this routed host. 
Now, inclusive of the occasional wide intervals between the revolving outer circles, and inclusive of the spaces between the various pods in any one of those circles, the entire area at this juncture, embraced by the whole multitude, must have contained at least two or three square miles. At any rate, though indeed such a test at such a time might be deceptive, spoutings might be discovered from our low boat that seemed playing up almost from the rim of the horizon. I mention this circumstance because, as if the cows and calves had been purposely locked up in this innermost fold, and as if the wide extent of the herd had hitherto prevented them from learning the precise cause of its stopping, or possibly being so young, unsophisticated, and every way innocent and inexperienced, however it may have been, these smaller whales, now and then visiting our becalmed boat from the margin of the lake, evinced a wondrous fearlessness and confidence, or else a still-be-charmed panic which it was impossible not to marvel at. Like household dogs they came snuffling round us, right up to our gunwales, and touching them, till it almost seemed that some spell had suddenly domesticated them. Queequeg patted their foreheads, Starbuck scratched their backs with his lance, but fearful of the consequences, for the time refrained from darting it. But far beneath this wondrous world upon the surface, another and still stranger world met our eye as we gazed over the side. For suspended in those watery vaults floated the forms of the nursing mothers of the whales, and those that of their enormous girth seemed shortly to become mothers. The lake, as I have hinted, was to a considerable depth exceedingly transparent, and as human infants, while suckling, will calmly and fixedly gaze away from the breast, as if leading two different lives at the time, and, while yet drawing mortal nourishment, be still spiritually feasting upon some unearthly reminiscence, even so did the young of these whales seem looking up towards us, but not at us, as if we were but a bit of gulf-weed in their newborn sight, Floating on their sides, the mothers also seemed quietly eyeing us. One of these little infants, that from certain queer tokens seemed hardly a day old, might have measured some fourteen feet in length, and some six feet in girth. He was a little frisky, though as yet his body seemed scarce yet recovered from that irksome position it had so lately occupied in the maternal reticule, where, tail to head, and all ready for the final spring, the unborn whale lies bent like a tartar's bow. The delicate side fins and the palms of his flukes still freshly retained the pleated crumbled appearance of a baby's ears, newly arrived from foreign parts. "'Line! Line!' cried Queequeg, looking over the gunwale. "'Him fast! Him fast! Who line him? Who struck? Two whale, one big, one little!' "'What ails you, man?' cried Starbuck. "'Looky here!' said Queequeg, pointing down. As when the stricken whale that from the tub has reeled out hundreds of fathoms of rope, as after deep sounding he floats up again, and shows the slackened curling line buoyantly rising and spiralling towards the air, so now Starbuck saw long coils of the umbilical cord of Madame Leviathan, by which the young cub seems still tethered to its dam. Not seldom in the rapid vicissitudes of the chase, 
this natural line with the maternal end loose becomes entangled with the hempen one, so that the cub is thereby trapped. Some of the subtlest secrets of the sea seem divulged to us in this enchanted pond. We saw young Leviathan amours in the deep. Footnote. The sperm whale, as with all other species of the leviathan, but unlike most other fish, breeds indifferently at all seasons, after a gestation which may probably be set down at nine months, producing but one at a time, though in some few known instances giving birth to an Esau and a Jacob, a contingency provided for in suckling by two teats, curiously situated, one on each side of the anus, but the breasts themselves extend upwards from that. When, by chance, these precious parts in a nursing whale are cut by the hunter's lance, the mother's pouring milk and blood rivalingly discolor the sea for rods. The milk is very sweet and rich. It has been tasted by man. It might do well with strawberries. When overflowing with mutual esteem, the whales salute more hominum. End of footnote. And thus, though surrounded by circle upon circle of consternations and affrights, did these inscrutable creatures at the centre freely and fearlessly indulge in all peaceful concernments, yea, serenely reveled in dalliance and delight. But even so, amid the tornadoed Atlantic of my being, do I myself still forever centrally disport in mute calm, and while ponderous planets of unwaning woe revolve round me, deep down and deep inland, there I still bathe me in eternal mildness of joy. Meanwhile, as we thus lay entranced, the occasional sudden frantic spectacles in the distance evince the activity of the other boats, still engaged in drugging the whales on the frontier of the host, or possibly carrying on the war within the first circle, where abundance of room and some convenient retreats were afforded them, but the sight of the enraged, drugged whales now and then blindly darting to and fro across the circles was nothing to what at last met our eyes. It is sometimes the custom, when fast to a whale more than commonly powerful and alert, to seek to hamstring him, as it were, by sundering or maiming his gigantic tail-tendon. It is done by darting a short-handled cutting-spade, to which is attached a rope for hauling it back again. A whale wounded, as we afterwards learned, in this part, but not effectually as it seemed, had broken away from the boat, carrying along with him half of the harpoon line, and in the extraordinary agony of the wound he was now dashing among the revolving circles like the lone-mounted desperado Arnold at the Battle of Saratoga, carrying dismay wherever he went." But agonizing as was the wound of this whale, and an appalling spectacle enough anyway, yet the peculiar horror with which he seemed to inspire the rest of the herd was owing to a cause which at first the intervening distance obscured from us. But at length we perceived that by one of the unimaginable accidents of the fishery, this whale had become entangled in the harpoon line that he towed. He had also run away with the cutting spade in him, and while the free end of the rope attached to that weapon had permanently caught in the coils of the harpoon line round his tail, the cutting spade itself had worked loose from his flesh. 
so that, tormented to madness, he was now churning through the water, violently flaying with his flexible tail, and tossing the keen spade about him, wounding and murdering his own comrades. This terrific object seemed to recall the whole herd from their stationary fright. First, the whales, forming the margin of our lake, began to crowd a little, and tumble against each other, as if lifted by half-spent billows from afar. Then the lake itself began faintly to heave and swell. The submarine bridal chambers and nurseries vanished. In more and more contracting orbits the whales in the more central circles began to swim in thickening clusters. Yes, the long calm was departing. A low advancing hum was soon heard, and then, like the tumultuous masses of block ice, when the great river Hudson breaks up in the spring, the entire host of whales came tumbling upon their inner centre, as if to pile themselves up in one common mountain. Instantly Starbuck and Queequeg changed places, Starbuck taking the stern. "'Oars! Oars!' he intensely whispered, seizing the helm. "'Grip your oars and clutch your souls now. My God, men, stand by! Shove him off, you, Queequeg! The whale there! Prick him! Hit him! Stand up! Stand up and stay so! Spring, men! Pull, men! Never mind their backs! Scrape them! Scrape away!' The boat was now all but jammed between two vast black bulks, leaving a narrow dardanelles between their long lengths. But by desperate endeavour we at last shot into a temporary opening, then giving way rapidly, and at the same time earnestly watching for another outlet. After many similar hair-breadth escapes, we at last swiftly glided into what had just been one of the outer circles, but now crossed by random whales all violently making for one centre. This lucky salvation was cheaply purchased by the loss of Queequeg's hat, who, while standing in the bows to prick the fugitive whales, had his hat taken clean from his head by the air eddy made by the sudden tossing of a pair of broad flukes close by. Riotous and disordered as the universal commotion now was, it soon resolved itself into what seemed a systematic movement, for having clumped together at last in one dense body, they then renewed their onward flight with augmented fleetness. Further pursuit was useless, but the boats still lingered in their wake to pick up what drugged whales might be dropped astern, and likewise to secure one which Flask had killed and wafted. The waif is a pennant pole, two or three of which are carried by every boat, and which, when additional game is at hand, are inserted upright into the floating body of a dead whale, both to mark its place on the sea, and also as token of prior possession, should the boats of any other ship draw near. The result of this lowering was somewhat illustrative of that sagacious saying in the fishery, the more whales, the less fish. Of all the drugged whales, only one was captured. The rest contrived to escape for the time, but only to be taken, as will hereafter be seen, by some other craft than the Pequod. Chapter 88. Schools and Schoolmasters The previous chapter gave account of an immense body or herd of sperm whales, and there was also then given the probable cause inducing those vast aggregations. 
Now, though such great bodies are at times encountered, yet, as must have been seen, even at the present day, small detached bands are occasionally observed, embracing from twenty to fifty individuals each. Such bands are known as schools. They generally are of two sorts, those composed almost entirely of females, and those mustering none but young, vigorous males, or bulls, as they are familiarly designated. In cavalier attendance upon the school of females, you invariably see a male of full-grown magnitude, but not old, who, upon any alarm, evinces his gallantry by falling in the rear and covering the flight of his ladies. In truth, this gentleman is a luxurious ottoman, swimming about over the watery world, surroundingly accompanied by all the solaces and endearments of the harem. The contrast between this ottoman and his concubines is striking, because while he is always of the largest leviathanic proportions, the ladies, even at full growth, are not more than one-third of the bulk of an average size male. They are comparatively delicate indeed, I dare say not to exceed half a dozen yards round the waist. Nevertheless, it cannot be denied that, upon the whole, they are hereditarily entitled to embonpoint. It is very curious to watch this harem and its lord in their indolent ramblings. Like fashionables, they are forever on the move in leisurely search of variety. You meet them on the line in time for the full flower of the equatorial feeding season, having just returned, perhaps, from spending the summer in the northern seas, and so cheating summer of all unpleasant weariness and warmth. By the time they have lounged up and down the promenade of the equator a while, they start for the oriental waters in anticipation of the cool season there, and so evade the other excessive temperature of the year. When serenely advancing on one of these journeys, if any strange, suspicious sights are seen, my lord Whale keeps a wary eye on his interesting family. Should any unwarrantably pert young leviathan coming that way presume to draw confidentially close to one of the ladies, with what prodigious fury the Bashaw assails him and chases him away, high times indeed if unprincipled young rakes like him are to be permitted to invade the sanctity of domestic bliss, though do what the Bashaw will, he cannot keep the most notorious Lothario out of his bed for, alas, all fish bed in common. As ashore, the ladies often cause the most terrible duels among their rival admirers, just so with the whales, who sometimes come to deadly battle, and all for love. They fence with their long lower jaws, sometimes locking them together, and so striving for the supremacy, like elks that warringly interweave their antlers. Not a few are captured having deep scars of these encounters, furrowed heads, broken teeth, scalloped fins, and, in some instances, wrenched and dislocated mouths. But supposing the invader of domestic bliss to betake himself away at the first rush of the harem's lord, then it is very diverting to watch that lord. Gently he insinuates his vast bulk among them again, and revels there a while, still in tantalizing vicinity to young Lothario, like pious Solomon devoutly worshipping among his thousand concubines. Granting other whales to be in sight, the fishermen will seldom give chase to one of these grand Turks, for these grand Turks are too lavish of their strength, and hence their unctuousness is small. 
as for the sons and daughters they beget, why those sons and daughters must take care of themselves, at least with only the maternal help, for like certain other omnivorous roving lovers that might be named, my lord Whale has no taste for the nursery, however much for the bower, and so, being a great traveller, he leaves his anonymous babies all over the world, every baby an exotic. In good time, nevertheless, as the ardour of youth declines, as years and dumps increase, as reflection lends her solemn pauses, in short, as a general lassitude overtakes the sated Turk, then a love of ease and virtue supplants the love for maidens, our Ottoman enters upon the impotent, repentant, admonitory stage of life, forswears, disbands the harem, and, grown to an exemplary, sulky old soul, goes about all alone among the meridians and parallels, saying his prayers, and warning each young leviathan from his amorous errors. Now, as the harem of Wales is called by the fisherman a school, so is the lord and master of that school technically known as the schoolmaster. It is therefore not in strict character, however admirably satirical, that after going to school himself he should then go abroad inculcating not what he learned there, but the folly of it. His title, schoolmaster, would very naturally seem derived from the name bestowed upon the harem itself, but some have surmised that the man who first thus entitled this sort of Ottoman whale must have read the memoirs of Vidocq, and informed himself what sort of a country schoolmaster that famous Frenchman was in his younger days, and what was the nature of those occult lessons he inculcated into some of his pupils. The same secludedness and isolation to which the schoolmaster whale betakes himself in his advancing years is true of all aged sperm whales almost universally a lone whale, as a solitary leviathan is called, proves an ancient one. Like venerable moss-bearded Daniel Boone, he will have no one near him but nature herself, and her he takes to wife in the wilderness of waters, and the best of wives she is, though she keeps so many moody secrets. The schools composing none but young and vigorous males, previously mentioned, offer a strong contrast to the harem schools. For while those female whales are characteristically timid, the young males, or forty-barrel bulls, as they call them, are by far the most pugnacious of all leviathans, and proverbially the most dangerous to encounter, excepting those wondrous grey-headed grizzled whales sometimes met, and these will fight you like grim fiends exasperated by a penal gout. The forty-barrel bull schools are larger than the harem schools. Like a mob of young collegians, they are full of fight, fun, and wickedness, tumbling round the world at such a reckless, rollicking rate, that no prudent underwriter would insure them any more than he would a riotous lad at Yale or Harvard. They soon relinquish this turbulence, though, and when about three-fourths grown, break up and separately go about in quest of settlements, that is, harems. Another point of difference between the male and female schools is still more characteristic of the sexes. Say you strike a forty-barrel bull, poor devil, all his comrades quit him, but strike a member of the harem school, and her companions swim around her with every token of concern, sometimes lingering so near her, and so long, as themselves to fall a prey. 
End of chapters 87 and 88. Moby Dick, chapters 89 to 91. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This reading by Stuart Wills. Moby Dick by Herman Melville, chapters 89 to 91. Chapter 89 fast fish and loose fish. The allusion to the waif and waif-poles in the last chapter but one necessitates some account of the laws and regulations of the whale-fishery, of which the waif may be deemed the grand symbol and badge. It frequently happens that when several ships are cruising in company, a whale may be struck by one vessel, then escape and be finally killed and captured by another vessel and herein are indirectly comprised many minor contingencies, all partaking of this one grand feature. For example, after a weary and perilous chase and capture of a whale, the body may get loose from the ship by reason of a violent storm, and, drifting far away to leeward, be retaken by a second whaler, who, in a calm, snugly tows it alongside, without risk of life or line, Thus the most vexatious and violent disputes would often arise between the fishermen, were there not some written or unwritten, universal, undisputed law applicable to all cases. Perhaps the only formal whaling code authorized by legislative enactment was that of Holland. It was decreed by the States General in A.D. 1695. But though no other nation has ever had any written whaling law, Yet the American fishermen have been their own legislators and lawyers in this matter. They have provided a system which for terse comprehensiveness surpasses Justinian's Pandex and the bylaws of the Chinese society for the suppression of meddling with other people's business. Yes, the laws might be engraven on a Queen Anne's farthing, or the barb of a harpoon, and worn round the neck, so small are they. 1. A fast fish belongs to the party fast to it. 2. A loose fish is fair game for anybody who can soonest catch it. But what plays the mischief with this masterly code is the admirable brevity of it, which necessitates a vast volume of commentaries to expound it. First, what is a fast fish? Alive or dead, a fish is technically fast when it is connected with an occupied ship or boat, by any medium at all controllable by the occupant or occupants, a mast, an oar, a nine-inch cable, a telegraph wire, or a strand of cobweb, it is all the same. Likewise, a fish is technically fast when it bears a waif, or any other recognized symbol of possession so long as the party wafing it plainly evince their ability at any time to take it alongside, as well as their intention to do so. These are scientific commentaries, but the commentaries of the whalemen themselves sometimes consist in hard words and harder knocks, the coke upon Littleton of the fist. 
True, among the more upright and honorable whalemen, allowances are always made for particular cases, where it would be an outrageous moral injustice for one party to claim possession of a whale previously chased or killed by another party. But others are by no means so scrupulous. Some fifty years ago there was a curious case of a whale-trover litigated in England, wherein the plaintiffs set forth that after a hard chase of a whale in the northern seas, and when indeed they, the plaintiffs, had succeeded in harpooning the fish, they were at last, through peril of their lives, obliged to forsake not only their lines but their boat itself. Ultimately the defendants, the crew of another ship, came up with the whale, struck, killed, seized, and finally appropriated it before the very eyes of the plaintiffs. And when those defendants were remonstrated with, their captain snapped his fingers in the plaintiff's teeth, and assured them that by way of doxology to the deed he had done, he would now retain their line, harpoons, and boat, which had remained attached to the whale at the time of the seizure. Wherefore the plaintiffs now sued for the recovery of the value of their whale, line, harpoons, and boat. Mr. Erskine was counsel for the defendants, Lord Ellenborough was the judge. In the course of the defence, the witty Erskine went on to illustrate his position by alluding to a recent Crim Con case, wherein a gentleman, after in vain trying to bridle his wife's viciousness, had at last abandoned her upon the seas of life, but in the course of years, repenting of that step, he instituted an action to recover possession of her. Erskine was on the other side, and he then supported it by saying that though the gentleman had originally harpooned the lady, and had once had her fast, and only by reason of the great stress of her plunging viciousness had at last abandoned her, yet abandon her he did, so that she became a loose fish, and therefore when a subsequent gentleman re-harpooned her, the lady then became that subsequent gentleman's property, along with whatever harpoon might have been found sticking in her. Now in the present case Erskine contended that the examples of the whale and the lady were reciprocally illustrative of each other. These pleadings and the counter-pleadings being duly heard, the very learned judge in set terms decided, to wit, that as for the boat he awarded it to the plaintiffs, because they had merely abandoned it to save their lives, but that with regard to the controverted whale, harpoons, and line, they belonged to the defendants, the whale because it was a loose fish at the time of the final capture, and the harpoons and line, because when the fish made off with them, it, the fish, acquired a property in those articles, and hence anybody who afterwards took the fish had a right to them. Now the defendants afterwards took the fish, ergo the aforesaid articles were theirs. A common man, looking at this decision of the very learned judge, might possibly object to it but ploughed up to the primary rock of the matter, the two great principles laid down in the twin whaling laws previously quoted, and applied and elucidated by Lord Ellenborough in the above-cited case, these two laws touching fast fish and loose fish, I say, will, on reflection, be found the fundamentals of all human jurisprudence, for notwithstanding its complicated tracery of sculpture, the temple of the law, like the temple of the Philistines, has but two props to stand on. 
Is it not a saying in every one's mouth, possession is half of the law, that is, regardless of how the thing came into possession? But often possession is the whole of the law. What are the sinews and souls of Russian serfs and Republican slaves but fast fish, whereof possession is the whole of the law? What to the rapacious landlord is the widow's last mite but a fast fish? What is yonder undetected villain's marble mansion with a door-plate for a waif? What is that but a fast fish? What is the ruinous discount which Mordecai the broker gets from poor Wobegon the bankrupt, on a loan to keep Wobegon's family from starvation? What is that ruinous discount but a fast fish? What is the Archbishop of Save Souls' income of one hundred thousand pounds, seized from the scant bread and cheese of hundreds of thousands of broken-backed labourers, all sure of heaven without any of Save Souls' help? What is that globular one hundred thousand pounds but a fast fish? What are the Duke of Dunder's hereditary towns and hamlets but fast fish? What to that redoubted harpooner John Bull is poor Ireland, but a fast fish? What to that apostolic lancer brother Jonathan is Texas but a fast fish? And concerning all these is not possession the whole of the law? But if the doctrine of fast fish be pretty generally applicable, the kindred doctrine of loose fish is still more widely so. That is internationally and universally applicable. What was America in 1492 but a loose fish, in which Columbus struck the Spanish standard by way of wafing it for his royal master and mistress? What was Poland to the Tsar? What Greece to the Turk? What India to England? What at last will Mexico be to the United States? All loose fish. What are the rights of man and the liberties of the world but loose fish? What all men's minds and opinions but loose fish? What is the principle of religious belief in them but a loose fish? What to the ostentatious smuggling verbalists are the thoughts of thinkers but loose fish? What is the great globe itself but a loose fish? And what are you, reader, but a loose fish, and a fast fish, too? Chapter 90 Heads or Tales De baleno vero sufficit si rex habiet caput et regina caudam. Bracton, L3, C3 Latin from the books of the laws of England, which, taken along with the context, means that of all whales captured by anybody on the coast of that land, the king, as honorary grand harpooner, must have the head, and the queen be respectfully presented with the tail. A division which in the whale is much like having an apple. There is no intermediate remainder. Now, as this law, under a modified form, is to this day in force in England, and as it offers in various respects a strange anomaly touching the general law of fast and loosed fish, it is here treated of in a separate chapter, on the same courteous principle that prompts the English railways to be at the expense of a separate car, specially reserved for the accommodation of royalty. In the first place, in curious proof of the fact that the above-mentioned law is still in force, I proceed to lay before you a circumstance that happened within the last two years. 
It seems that some honest mariners of Dover, or Sandwich, or some one of the Sink ports, had, after a hard chase, succeeded in killing and beaching a fine whale, which they had originally descried afar off from the shore. Now the Sink ports are partially, or somehow, under the jurisdiction of a sort of policeman or beadle called a Lord Warden. Holding the office directly from the crown, I believe, all the royal emoluments incident to the Sinkport territories become by assignment his. By some writers this office is called a sinecure, but not so, because the Lord Warden is busily employed at times in fobbing his perquisites, which are his chiefly by virtue of that same fobbing of them. Now, when these poor sunburnt mariners, barefooted and with their trousers rolled high up on their ely legs, had wearily hauled their fat fish high and dry, promising themselves a good one hundred fifty pounds from the precious oil and bone, and in fantasy sipping rare tea with their wives and good ale with their cronies upon the strength of their respective shares, up steps a very learned and most Christian and charitable gentleman, with a copy of Blackstone under his arm, and laying it upon the whale's head, he says, Hands off! This fish, my masters, is a fast fish. I seize it as the Lord Warden's. Upon this the poor mariners, in their respectful consternation, so truly English, not knowing what to say, fall to vigorously scratching their heads all round meanwhile ruefully glancing from the whale to the stranger. But that did no wise mend the matter, or at all soften the hard heart of the learned gentleman with the copy of Blackstone. At length one of them, after long scratching about for his ideas, made bold to speak. "'Please, sir, who is the Lord Warden?' "'The Duke.' "'But the Duke had nothing to do with taking this fish. It is his.' We have been at great trouble and peril and some expense, and is all that to go to the Duke's benefit, and we get nothing at all for our pains but our blisters? It is his. Is the Duke so very poor as to be forced to this desperate mode of getting a livelihood? It is his. I fought to relieve my old bedridden mother by part of my share of this whale. It is his. Won't the Duke be content with a quarter or a half? it is his. In a word, the whale was seized and sold, and his grace, the Duke of Wellington, received the money. Thinking that, viewed in some particular lights, this case might, by a bare possibility, in some small degree be deemed, under the circumstances, a rather hard one, an honest clergyman of the town respectfully addressed a note to his grace, begging him to take the case of those unfortunate mariners into full consideration, to which my lord duke, in substance, replied, both letters were published, that he had already done so, and received the money, and would be obliged to the reverend gentleman, if for the future he, the reverend gentleman, would decline meddling with other people's business, is this the still militant old man standing at the corners of the three kingdoms on all hands coercing alms of beggars? It will readily be seen that in this case the alleged right of the duke to the whale was a delegated one from the sovereign. We must needs inquire then on what principle the sovereign is originally invested with that right. The law itself has already been set forth, but Plowden gives us the reason for it. 
Says Plowden, the whale so caught belongs to the king and queen, quote, because of its superior excellence, end quote. And by the soundest commentators this has ever been held a cogent argument in such matters. But why should the king have the head and the queen the tail? A reason for that, ye lawyers. In his treatise on Queen Gold, or Queen Pin Money, an old King's Bench author, one William Prynne, thus discourseth, quote, Ye tail is ye queen's, that ye queen's wardrobe may be supplied with ye whalebone. End quote. Now this was written at a time when the black limber bone of the Greenland or right whale was largely used in ladies' bodices. But this same bone is not in the tail, it is in the head which is a sad mistake for a sagacious lawyer like Prynne. But is the queen a mermaid to be presented with a tail? An allegorical meaning may lurk here. There are two royal fish so styled by the English law-writers, the whale and the sturgeon, both royal property under certain limitations, and nominally supplying the tenth branch of the crown's ordinary revenue. I know not that any other author has hinted of the matter, but by inference it seems to me that the sturgeon must be divided in the same way as the whale, the king receiving the highly dense and elastic head peculiar to that fish, which symbolically regarded may possibly be humorously grounded upon some presumed congeniality. And thus there seems a reason in all things, even in law. Chapter 91. The Pequod Meets the Rosebud Quote, in vain it was to rake for ambergris in the paunch of this leviathan, insufferable fetter denying not inquiry. End quote. Sir T. Brown, V. E. It was a week or two after the last whaling scene recounted, and when we were slowly sailing over a sleepy, vapory, midday sea, that the many noses on the Pequod's deck proved more vigilant discoverers than the three pairs of eyes aloft, a peculiar and not very pleasant smell was smelt in the sea. "'I will bet something now,' said Stubb, "'that somewhere hereabouts are some of those drugged whales we tickled the other day. I thought they would keel up before long.' Presently the vapors in advance slid aside, and there in the distance lay a ship, whose furled sails betoken that some sort of whale must be alongside. As we glided nearer, the stranger showed French colors from his peak, and by the eddying cloud of vulture sea-fowl that circled and hovered and swooped around him, it was plain that the whale alongside must be what the fishermen call a blasted whale, that is, a whale that has died unmolested on the sea, and so floated an unappropriated corpse. It may well be conceived what an unsavory odor such a mass must exhale, worse than an Assyrian city in the plague, when the living are incompetent to bury the departed. So intolerable indeed is it regarded by some, that no cupidity could persuade them to moor alongside of it. Yet are there those who will still do it, notwithstanding the fact that the oil obtained from such subjects is of a very inferior quality, and by no means of the nature of attar of rose. Coming still nearer with the expiring breeze, we saw that the Frenchman had a second whale alongside, and this second whale seemed even more of a nosegay than the first. 
In truth, it turned out to be one of those problematical whales that seem to dry up and die with a sort of prodigious dyspepsia or indigestion, leaving their defunct bodies almost entirely bankrupt of anything like oil. Nevertheless, in its proper place, we shall see that no knowing fisherman will ever turn up his nose at such a whale as this, however much he may shun blasted whales in general. The Pequod had now swept so nigh to the stranger that Stubb vowed he recognized his cutting spade-pole entangled in the lines that were knotted round the tail of one of these whales. "'There's a pretty fellow now,' he banteringly laughed, standing in the ship's bows. "'There's a jackal for thee. I well know that these crappos of Frenchmen are but poor devils in the fishery, sometimes lowering their boats for breakers, mistaking them for sperm-whale spouts.' "'Yes, and sometimes sailing from their ports with their hold full of boxes of tallow-candles, and cases of snuffers, foreseeing that all the oil they will get won't be enough to dip the captain's wick into. Aye, we all know these things. But look ye, here's a crapo that is content with our leavings. The drugged whale there, I mean. Aye, and is content, too, with scraping the dry bones of that other precious fish she has there. Poor devil!' I say, pass round a hat, someone, and let's make him a present of a little oil for dear Charity's sake. For what oil he will get from that drugged whale there, wouldn't be fit to burn in a jail? No, not in a condemned cell. And as for the other whale, why, I'll agree to get more oil by chopping up and trying out these three masts of ours than he'll get from that bundle of bones. Though, now that I think of it, it may contain something worth a good deal more than oil." Yes, ambergris. I wonder now if our old man has thought of that. It's worth trying. Yes, I'm for it. And so saying, he started for the quarter-deck. By this time the faint air had become a complete calm, so that whether or no the Pequod was now fairly entrapped in the smell, with no hope of escaping except by its breezing up again. Issuing from the cabin, Stubb now called his boat's crew, and pulled off for the stranger. Drawing across her bow, he perceived that, in accordance with the fanciful French taste, the upper part of her stem-piece was carved in the likeness of a huge drooping stalk, was painted green, and for thorns had copper spikes projecting from it here and there, the whole terminating in a symmetrical folded bulb of a bright red colour, Upon her headboards, in large gilt letters, he read, Bouton de Rose, Rose Button, or Rose Bud, and this was the romantic name of this aromatic ship. Though Stubb did not understand the Bouton part of the inscription, yet the word Rose and the bulbous figurehead put together sufficiently explained the whole to him. A wooden rose bud, eh? he cried with his hand to his nose. That will do very well but how like all creation it smells! Now, in order to hold direct communication with the people on deck, he had to pull round the bows to the starboard side, and thus come close to the blasted whale, and so talk over it. Arrived then at this spot, with one hand still to his nose, he bawled, Bouton de Rose, ahoy! Are there any of you uh, Bouton de Roses that speak English? Yes, rejoined a Guernsey man from the bulwarks, who turned out to be the chief mate. Well then, uh, my Bouton de Rosebud, uh, have you seen the white whale? 
What whale? The white whale. A sperm whale. Moby Dick. Have you seen him? Never heard of such a whale. Cachelot Blanche? White whale? No. Uh, very good, then. Uh, good-bye now, and I'll call again in a minute. Then rapidly pulling back towards the Pequod, and seeing Ahab leaning over the quarter-deck rail awaiting his report, he moulded his two hands into a trumpet and shouted, No, sir, no! Upon which Ahab retired, and Stubb returned to the Frenchman. He now perceived that the Guernsey man, who had just got into the chains, and was using a cutting spade, had slung his nose in a sort of bag. "'What's the matter with your nose there?' said Stubb. "'Broke it?' "'I wish it were broken, or that I didn't have any nose at all,' answered the Guernsey man, who did not seem to relish the job he was at very much. "'But what are you holding yours for?' "'Oh, uh, nothing.' It's a wax nose. I have to hold it on. A fine day, ain't it? Air rather gardeny, I should say. Throw us a bunch of posies, will you, uh, Bouton de Rose? What in the devil's name do you want here? roared the Guernseyman, flying into a sudden passion. Oh, uh, keep cool. Cool, yes, that's the word. Uh, why don't you pack those whales in ice while you're working at em? But uh, joking aside, though, do you know, uh, Rosebud, that it's all nonsense trying to get any oil out of such whales? As for that dried-up one, there, he hasn't a gill in his whole carcass. I know that well enough, but do you see, the captain here won't believe it. This is his first voyage. He was a cologne manufacturer before. But come aboard, and mayhap he'll believe you if he won't me, and so I'll get out of this dirty scrape. "'Anything to oblige you, my sweet and pleasant fellow,' rejoined Stubb, and with that he soon mounted to the deck. There a queer scene presented itself. The sailors, in tasseled caps of red worsted, were getting the heavy tackles in readiness for the whales, but they worked rather slow and talked very fast, and seemed in anything but a good humour. All their noses upwardly projected from their faces like so many jib-booms, now and then pairs of them would drop their work and run up to the masthead to get some fresh air some thinking they would catch the plague dipped oakum in coal-tar and at intervals held it to their nostrils others having broken the stems of their pipes almost short off at the bowl were vigorously puffing tobacco smoke so that it constantly filled their olfactories Stubb was struck by a shower of outcries and anathemas proceeding from the captain's roundhouse abaft, and looking in that direction saw a fiery face thrust from behind the door, which was held ajar from within. This was the tormented surgeon, who, after in vain remonstrating against the proceedings of the day, had betaken himself to the captain's roundhouse, cabinet, he called it, to avoid the pest, but still could not help yelling out his entreaties and indignations at times. Marking all this, Stubb argued well for his scheme, and turning to the Guernseyman had a little chat with him, during which the stranger mate expressed his detestation of his captain as a conceited ignoramus who had brought them all into so unsavory and unprofitable a pickle. Sounding him carefully, Stubb further perceived that the Guernsey man had not the slightest suspicion concerning the ambergris. 
He therefore held his peace on that head, but otherwise was quite frank and confidential with him, so that the two quickly concocted a little plan for both circumventing and satirizing the captain, without his at all dreaming of distrusting their sincerity. According to this little plan of theirs, the Guernsey man, under cover of an interpreter's office, was to tell the captain what he pleased, but as coming from Stubb and as for Stubb, he was to utter any nonsense that should come uppermost in him during the interview. By this time their destined victim appeared from his cabin. He was a small and dark but rather delicate-looking man for a sea-captain, with large whiskers and moustache, however, and wore a red-cotton velvet vest with watch-seals at his side. To this gentleman, Stubb was now politely introduced by the Guernsey man, who at once ostentatiously put on the aspect of interpreting between them. "'What shall I say to him first? said he. "'Why?' said Stubb, eyeing the velvet vest and watch and seals. "'You may as well begin by telling him that he looks a sort of babyish to me, though I don't pretend to be a judge.' "'He says, monsieur,' said the Guernseyman, in French, turning to his captain, that only yesterday his ship spoke a vessel whose captain and chief mate with six sailors had all died of a fever caught from a blasted whale they had brought alongside. Upon this the captain started, and eagerly desired to know more. "'What now?' said the Guernseyman to Stubb. "'Why, since he takes it so easy?' Tell him that now I have eyed him carefully, I am quite certain that he's no more fit to command a whale-ship than a St. Jago monkey. In fact, tell him from me he's a baboon. He vows and declares, monsieur, that the other whale, the dried one, is far more deadly than the blasted one. In fine, monsieur, he conjures us, as we value our lives, to cut loose from these fish." Instantly the captain ran forward, and in a loud voice commanded his crew to desist from hoisting the cutting-tackles, and at once cast loose the cables and chains confining the whales to the ship. "'What now?' said the Guernsey man, when the captain had returned to them. Oh, "'Why, let me see. Yes, you may as well tell him uh, now that, uh, that, in fact, tell him I've diddled him, and,' aside to himself, perhaps somebody else. He says, monsieur, that he's very happy to have been of any service to us. Hearing this, the captain vowed that they were the grateful parties, meaning himself and mate, and concluded by inviting Stubb down into his cabin to drink a bottle of Bordeaux. He wants you to take a glass of wine with him, said the interpreter. Uh, thank him heartily, but tell him it's against my principles to drink with the man I've diddled. In fact, tell him I must go. He says, monsieur, that his principles won't admit of his drinking, but that if monsieur wants to live another day to drink, then monsieur had best drop all four boats and pull the ship away from these whales, for it's so calm they won't drift. By this time Stubb was over the side, and getting into his boat, hailed the Guernsey man to this effect that having a long tow-line in his boat, he would do what he could to help them, by pulling out the lighter whale of the two from the ship's side. While the Frenchman's boats, then, were engaged in towing the ship one way, Stubb benevolently towed away at his whale the other way, ostentatiously slacking out a most unusually long tow-line. 
Presently a breeze sprang up, Stubb feigned to cast off from the whale, hoisting his boats, the Frenchman soon increased his distance, while the Pequod slid in between him and Stubb's whale. Whereupon Stubb quickly pulled to the floating body, and hailing the Pequod to give notice of his intentions, at once proceeded to reap the fruit of his unrighteous cunning. Seizing his sharp boat-spade, he commenced an excavation in the body, a little behind the side-fin. You would almost have thought he was digging a cellar there in the sea, and when at length his spade struck against the gaunt ribs, it was like turning up old Roman tiles and pottery buried in fat English loam. His boat's crew were all in high excitement, eagerly helping their chief, and looking as anxious as gold-hunters. And all the time numberless fowls were diving and ducking and screaming and yelling and fighting around them. Stubb was beginning to look disappointed, especially as the horrible nosegay increased, when suddenly, from out the very heart of this plague, there stole a faint stream of perfume, which flowed through the tide of bad smells without being absorbed by it, as one river will flow into and then along with another, without at all blending with it for a time. "'I have it! I have it!' cried Stubb with delight striking something in the subterranean regions. A purse! A purse! Dropping his spade, he thrust both hands in, and drew out handfuls of something that looked like ripe Windsor soap, or rich mottled old cheese, very unctuous and savory withal. You might easily dent it with your thumb. It is of a hue between yellow and ash color. And this, good friends, is ambergris, worth a gold guinea an ounce to any druggist. Some six handfuls were obtained, but more was unavoidably lost in the sea, and still more, perhaps, might have been secured were it not for impatient Ahab's loud command to Stubb to desist, and come on board, else the ship would bid them good-bye. End of chapters 89 to 91Moby Dick, chapters 92 to 96. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This reading by Stuart Wills. Moby Dick by Herman Melville, chapters 92 to 96. Chapter 92. Ambergris. Now this ambergris is a very curious substance, and so important as an article of commerce, that in 1791 a certain Nantucket-born Captain Coffin was examined at the bar of the English House of Commons on the subject. For at that time, and indeed until a comparatively late day, the precise origin of ambergris remained, like amber itself, a problem to the learned. Though the word ambergris is but a French compound for grey amber, yet the two substances are quite distinct. For amber, though at times found on the sea-coast, is also dug up in some far inland soils, whereas ambergris is never found except upon the sea. 
Besides, amber is a hard, transparent, brittle, odorless substance used for mouthpieces to pipes, for beads and ornaments. But ambergris is soft, waxy, and so highly fragrant and spicy that it is largely used in perfumery, in pastilles, precious candles, hair powders, and pomatum. The Turks use it in cooking, and also carry it to Mecca for the same purpose that frankincense is carried to St. Peter's in Rome. Some wine merchants drop a few grains into claret to flavor it. Who would think, then, that such fine ladies and gentlemen should regale themselves with an essence found in the inglorious bowels of a sick whale? Yet so it is. By some, ambergris is supposed to be the cause, and by others the effect, of the dyspepsia in the whale. How to cure such a dyspepsia it were hard to say, unless by administering three or four boatloads of brandreth pills, and then running out of harm's way, as laborers do in blasting rocks. I have forgotten to say that there were found in this ambergris certain hard, round, bony plates, which at first Stubb thought might be sailors' trousers' buttons, but afterwards it turned out that they were nothing more than pieces of small squid bones embalmed in that manner. Now, that the incorruption of this most fragrant ambergris should be found in the heart of such decay, is this nothing? Bethink thee of that saying of St. Paul in Corinthians about corruption and incorruption, how that we are sown in dishonor but raised in glory, and likewise call to mind that saying of Paracelsus about what it is that maketh the best musk, also forget not the strange fact that of all things of ill savour, cologne water in its rudimental manufacturing stages is the worst. I should like to conclude the chapter with the above appeal, but cannot owing to my anxiety to repel a charge often made against whalemen, and which, in the estimation of some already biased minds, might be considered as indirectly substantiated by what has been said of the Frenchman's two whales. Elsewhere in this volume the slanderous aspersion has been disproved, that the vocation of whaling is throughout a slatternly, untidy business. But there is another thing to rebut. They hint that all whales always smell bad. Now how did this odious stigma originate? I opine that it is plainly traceable to the first arrival of the Greenland whaling ships in London, more than two centuries ago, because those whalemen did not then, and do not now, try out their oil at sea, as the southern ships have always done, but cutting up the fresh blubber into small bits, thrust it through the bungholes of large casks, and carry it home in that manner, the shortness of the season in those icy seas, and the sudden and violent storms to which they are exposed, forbidding any other course. The consequence is that upon breaking into the hold, and unloading one of these whale cemeteries in the Greenland dock, a savour is given forth somewhat similar to that arising from excavating an old city graveyard for the foundations of a lying-in hospital. I partly surmise also that this wicked charge against whalers may be likewise imputed to the existence on the coast of Greenland in former times of a Dutch village called Schmerenberg or Smeerenberg, which latter name is the one used by the learned Fogo von Slack in his great work on smells, a textbook on that subject. 
As its name imports, smere, fat, berg, to put up, this village was founded in order to afford a place for the blubber of the Dutch whale fleet to be tried out, without being taken home to Holland for that purpose. It was a collection of furnaces, fat kettles, and oil sheds, and when the works were in full operation certainly gave forth no very pleasant savour. But all this is quite different with a South Sea sperm whaler, which in a voyage of four years, perhaps, after completely filling her hold with oil, does not, perhaps, consume fifty days in the business of boiling out, and in the state that it is casked, the oil is nearly scentless. The truth is that, living or dead, if but decently treated, whales as a species are by no means creatures of ill odour, nor can whalemen be recognised as the people of the Middle Ages affected to detect a Jew in the company by the nose. Nor, indeed, can the whale possibly be otherwise than fragrant, when, as a general thing, he enjoys such high health, taking abundance of exercise, always out of doors, though, it is true, seldom in the open air. I say that the motion of a sperm whale's flukes above water dispenses a perfume, as when a musk-scented lady rustles her dress in a warm parlour. What then shall I liken the sperm whale to for fragrance, considering his magnitude? Must it not be to that famous elephant with jewelled tusks and redolent with myrrh, which was led out of an Indian town to do honour to Alexander the Great? Chapter 93 The Castaway It was but some few days after encountering the Frenchman that a most significant event befell the most insignificant of the Pequod's crew, an event most lamentable, and which ended in providing the sometimes madly merry and predestinated craft with a living and ever-accompanying prophecy of whatever shattered sequel might prove her own. Now, in the whale-ship it is not every one that goes in the boats. Some few hands are reserved called ship-keepers, whose province it is to work the vessel while the boats are pursuing the whale. As a general thing, these ship-keepers are as hardy fellows as the men comprising the boat's crew. But if there happens to be an unduly slender, clumsy, or timorous white in the ship, that white is certain to be made a ship-keeper. It was so in the Pequod with the little negro Pippin, by nickname, Pip by abbreviation. Poor Pip! You have heard of him before. You must remember his tambourine on that dramatic midnight, so gloomy jolly. In outer aspect, Pip and Doughboy made a match, like a black pony and a white one, of equal developments, though of dissimilar color, driven in one eccentric span. But while hapless Doughboy was by nature dull and torpid in his intellects, Pip, though over-tender-hearted, was at bottom very bright, with that pleasant, genial, jolly brightness peculiar to his tribe, a tribe which ever enjoy all holidays and festivities with finer, freer relish than any other race. For blacks the year's calendar should show naught but three hundred and sixty-five Fourth of Julys and New Year's Days. Nor smile so while I write that this little black was brilliant, for even blackness has its brilliancy, behold yon lustrous ebony, panelled in king's cabinets. But Pip loved life and all life's peaceable securities, so that the panic-striking business in which he had somehow unaccountably become entrapped had most sadly blurred his brightness, 
though, as ere long will be seen, what was thus temporarily subdued in him, in the end was destined to be luridly illuminated by strange wild fires, that fictitiously showed him off to ten times the natural lustre with which, in his native Tallinn County in Connecticut, he had once enlivened many a fiddler's frolic on the green, and at melodious eventide with his gay ha-ha had turned the round horizon into one star-belled tambourine. So, though in the clear air of day, suspended against a blue-veined neck, the pure-watered diamond drop will healthful glow, yet when the cunning jeweller would show you the diamond in its most impressive luster, he lays it against a gloomy ground, and then lights it up, not by the sun, but by some unnatural gases. Then come out those fiery effulgences, infernally superb, then the evil blazing diamond, once the divinest symbol of the crystal skies, looks like some crown jewel stolen from the king of hell. But let us to the story. It came to pass that in the Ambergris affair Stubbs after Oarsman chanced so to sprain his hand as for a time to become quite maimed, and temporarily Pip was put in his place. The first time Stubb lowered with him, Pip evinced much nervousness, but happily for that time escaped close contact with the whale, and therefore came off not altogether discreditably, though Stubb, observing him, took care afterwards to exhort him to cherish his courageousness to the utmost, for he might often find it needful. Now, upon the second lowering, the boat paddled upon the whale, and as the fish received the darted iron, it gave its customary rap which happened in this instance to be right under poor Pip's seat. The involuntary consternation of the moment caused him to leap, paddle in hand, out of the boat, and in such a way that part of the slack whale line coming against his chest, he breasted it overboard with him so as to become entangled in it, when at last plumping into the water. That instant the stricken whale started on a fierce run, the line swiftly straightened, and presto, poor Pip came all foaming up to the chocks of the boat, remorselessly dragged there by the line which had taken several turns around his chest and neck. Tashtego stood in the bows. He was full of the fire of the hunt. He hated Pip for a poltroon. Snatching the boat-knife from its sheath, he suspended its sharp edge over the line, and turning towards Stubb, exclaimed interrogatively, Cut! Meantime, Pip's blue, choked face plainly looked, Do, for God's sake! All passed in a flash. In less than half a minute, this entire thing happened. Damn him, cut! roared Stubb, and so the whale was lost, and Pip was saved. So soon as he recovered himself, the poor little negro was assailed by yells and execrations from the crew. Tranquilly permitting these irregular cursings to evaporate, Stubb then, in a plain, business-like, but still half-humorous manner, cursed Pip officially, and that done unofficially gave him much wholesome advice. The substance was, never jump from a boat, Pip, except— but all the rest was indefinite, as the soundest advice ever is. Now, in general, stick to the boat is your true motto in whaling. But cases will sometimes happen when leap from the boat is still better. 
Moreover, as if perceiving at last that if he should give undiluted conscientious advice to Pip, he would be leaving him too wide a margin to jump in for the future, Stubb suddenly dropped all advice and concluded with a peremptory command, Stick to the boat, Pip, or by the Lord I won't pick you up if you jump, mind that. We can't afford to lose whales by the likes of you. A whale would sell for thirty times what you would, Pip, in Alabama. Bear that in mind, and don't jump any more. Hereby, perhaps, Stubb indirectly hinted that, though man loved his fellow, yet man is a money-making animal, which propensity too often interferes with his benevolence. But we are all in the hands of the gods, and Pip jumped again. It was under very similar circumstances to the first performance, but this time he did not breast out the line, and hence when the whale started to run, Pip was left behind on the sea, like a hurried traveller's trunk. Alas, Stubb was but too true to his word. It was a beautiful, bounteous blue day, the spangled sea calm and cool, and flatly stretching away, all round to the horizon, like gold-beater's skin hammered out to the extremist. Bobbing up and down in that sea, Pip's ebon head showed like a head of cloves. No boat-knife was lifted when he fell so rapidly astern. Stubb's inexorable back was turned upon him, and the whale was winged. In three minutes a whole mile of shoreless ocean was between Pip and Stubb. Out of the centre of the sea, poor Pip turned his crisp, curling black head to the sun, another lonely castaway, though the loftiest and the brightest. Now, in calm weather, to swim in the open ocean is as easy to the practised swimmer as to ride in a spring-carriage ashore, but the awful lonesomeness is intolerable. The intense concentration of self in the middle of such a heartless immensity— my God, who can tell it? Mark how when sailors in a dead calm bathe in the open sea, mark how closely they hug their ship, and only coast along her sides. But had Stubb really abandoned the poor little negro to his fate? No, he did not mean to, at least, because there were two boats in his wake, and he supposed no doubt that they would, of course, come up to Pip very quickly, and pick him up though indeed such considerations towards oarsmen jeopardized through their own timidity is not always manifested by the hunters in all similar instances, and such instances not unfrequently occur. Almost invariably in the fishery, a coward, so-called, is marked with the same ruthless detestation peculiar to military navies and armies. But it so happened that those boats, without seeing Pip, suddenly spying whales close to them on one side, turned and gave chase, and Stubb's boat was now so far away, and he and all his crew so intent upon the fish, that Pip's ringed horizon began to expand around him miserably. By the merest chance the ship itself at last rescued him, but from that hour the little negro went about the deck an idiot, such at least they said he was. The sea had jeeringly kept his finite body up, but drowned the infinite of his soul. Not drowned entirely, though, rather carried down alive to wondrous depths, where strange shapes of the unwarped primal world glided to and fro before his passive eyes, and the miser merman, wisdom, revealed his hoarded heaps, 
and among the joyous, heartless, ever-juvenile eternities, Pip saw the multitudinous, God-omnipresent, coral insects that out of the firmament of waters heaved the colossal orbs. He saw God's foot upon the treadle of the loom, and spoke it, and therefore his shipmates called him mad. So man's insanity is heaven's sense, and wandering from all mortal reason, man comes at last to that celestial thought, which to reason is absurd and frantic, and weal or woe feels then uncompromised, indifferent as his God. For the rest, blame not Stubb too hardly. The thing is common in that fishery, and in the sequel of the narrative it will then be seen what like abandonment befell myself. Chapter 94 A Squeeze of the Hand That whale of Stubbs, so dearly purchased, was duly brought to the Pequod's side, where all those cutting and hoisting operations previously detailed were regularly gone through, even to the bailing of the Heidelberg tun, or case. While some were occupied with this latter duty, others were employed in dragging away the larger tubs so soon as filled with the sperm, and when the proper time arrived, this same sperm was carefully manipulated ere going to the triworks, of which anon. It had cooled and crystallized to such a degree that when, with several others, I sat down before a large Constantine's bath of it, I found it strangely concreted into lumps, here and there rolling about in the liquid part. It was our business to squeeze these lumps back into fluid. A sweet and unctuous duty. No wonder that in old times this sperm was such a favorite cosmetic. Such a clearer, such a sweetener, such a softener, such a delicious mollifier. After having my hands in it for only a few minutes, my fingers felt like eels, and began, as it were, to serpentine and spiralize. As I sat there at my ease, cross-legged on the deck, after the bitter exertion at the windlass, under a blue tranquil sky, the ship under indolent sail, and gliding so serenely along, as I bathed my hands among those soft, gentle globules of infiltrated tissues, woven almost within the hour, as they richly broke to my fingers and discharged all their opulence like fully ripe grapes their wine, as I snuffed up that uncontaminated aroma, literally and truly like the smell of spring violets, I declare to you that for the time I lived as in a musky meadow, I forgot all about our horrible oath. In that inexpressible sperm I washed my hands and my heart of it. I almost began to credit the old Paracelsian superstition that sperm is of rare virtue in allaying the heat of anger. While bathing in that bath, I felt divinely free from all ill-will or petulance or malice of any sort whatsoever. Squeeze, 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 all the morning long I squeezed that sperm, till I myself almost melted into it. I squeezed that sperm till a strange sort of insanity came over me, and I found myself unwittingly squeezing my co-laborers' hands in it, mistaking their hands for the gentle globules. Such an abounding, affectionate, friendly, loving feeling did this avocation beget, that at last I was continually squeezing their hands, 
and looking up into their eyes sentimentally, as much as to say, Oh, my dear fellow beings, why should we longer cherish any social acerbities, or know the slightest ill-humour or envy? Come, let us squeeze hands all round. Nay, let us all squeeze ourselves into each other. Let us squeeze ourselves universally into the very milk and sperm of kindness. Would that I could keep squeezing that sperm forever. For now, since by many prolonged, repeated experiences, I have perceived that in all cases man must eventually lower, or at least shift his conceit of attainable felicity, not placing it anywhere in the intellect or the fancy, but in the wife, the heart, the bed, the table, the saddle, the fireside, the country. Now that I have perceived all this, I am ready to squeeze case eternally. In thoughts of the visions of the night, I saw long rows of angels in paradise, each with his hands in a jar of spermaceti. Now, while discoursing on sperm, it behooves to speak of other things akin to it, in the business of preparing the sperm whale for the tri-works. First comes white horse, so called, which is obtained from the tapering part of the fish, and also from the thicker portions of his flukes. It is tough with congealed tendons, a wad of muscle, but still contains some oil. After being severed from the whale, the white horse is first cut into portable oblongs, ere going to the mincer. They look much like blocks of Berkshire marble. Plum pudding is the term bestowed upon certain fragmentary parts of the whale's flesh, here and there adhering to the blanket of blubber, and often participating to a considerable degree in its unctuousness. It is a most refreshing, convivial, beautiful object to behold. As its name imports, it is of an exceedingly rich, mottled tint, with a bestreaked snowy and golden ground, dotted with spots of the deepest crimson and purple. It is plums of rubies in pictures of citron. Spite of reason, it is hard to keep yourself from eating it. I confess that once I stole behind the foremast to try it. It tasted something as I should conceive a royal cutlet from the thigh of Louis Le Gros might have tasted, supposing him to have been killed the first day after the venison season, and that particular venison season contemporary with an unusually fine vintage of the vineyards of Champagne. There is another substance, and a very singular one, which turns up in the course of this business, but which I feel it to be very puzzling adequately to describe, it is called Slobgallion, an appellation original with the whaleman, and even so is the nature of the substance. It is an ineffably oozy, stringy affair, most frequently found in the tubs of sperm after a prolonged squeezing and subsequent decanting. I hold it to be the wondrously thin, ruptured membranes of the case, coalescing. Glurry, so called, is a term properly belonging to right whalemen, but sometimes incidentally used by the sperm fishermen. It designates the dark, glutinous substance which is scraped off the back of the Greenland or right whale, and much of which covers the decks of those inferior souls who hunt that ignoble leviathan. Nippers. Strictly this word is not indigenous to the whale's vocabulary, but as applied by whalemen it becomes so. 
A whaleman's nipper is the short, firm strip of tendinous stuff cut from the tapering part of the leviathan's tail. It averages an inch in thickness, and for the rest is about the size of the iron part of a hoe. Edgewise moved along the oily deck, it operates like a leathern squilgee, and by nameless blandishments, as of magic, allures along with it all impurities. But to learn all about these recondite matters, your best way is at once to descend into the blubber room, and have a long talk with its inmates. This place has previously been mentioned as the receptacle for the blanket pieces when stripped and hoisted from the whale. When the proper time arrives for cutting up its contents, this apartment is a scene of terror to all tyros, especially by night. On one side, lit by a dull lantern, a space has been left clear for the workmen. They generally go in pairs, a pike and gaffman and a spademan. The whaling pike is similar to a frigate's boarding weapon of the same name. The gaff is something like a boat-hook. With his gaff, the gaffman hooks on to a sheet of blubber, and strives to hold it from slipping as the ship pitches and lurches about. Meanwhile, the spademan stands on the sheet itself, perpendicularly chopping it into the portable horse-pieces. This spade is sharp as hone can make it. The spademan's feet are shoeless. The thing he stands on will sometimes irresistibly slide away from him like a sledge. If he cuts off one of his own toes, or one of his assistants, would you be very much astonished? Toes are scarce among veteran blubber-room men. Chapter 95 The Cassock Had you stepped on board the Pequod at a certain juncture of this post-mortemizing of the whale, and had you strolled forward nigh the windlass, pretty sure am I that you would have scanned with no small curiosity a very strange enigmatical object, which you would have seen there lying along lengthwise in the lee scuppers. Not the wondrous cistern in the whale's huge head, not the prodigy of his unhinged lower jaw, not the miracle of his symmetrical tail, none of these would so surprise you as half a glimpse of that unaccountable cone, longer than a Kentuckian is tall, nigh a foot in diameter at the base, and jet-black as Yojo, the ebony idol of Queequeg. And an idol indeed it is, or rather in old times its likeness was. Such an idol as that found in the secret groves of Queen Macha in Judea, and for worshipping which King Asa her son did depose her, and destroyed the idol, and burnt it for an abomination at the brook Kedron, as darkly set forth in the fifteenth chapter of the first book of Kings. Look at the sailor called the Mincer, who now comes along, and, assisted by two allies, heavily backs the Grandissimus, as mariners call it, and with bowed shoulders staggers off with it as if he were a grenadier carrying a dead comrade from the field. Extending it upon the forecastle deck, he now proceeds cylindrically to remove its dark pelt, as an African hunter the pelt of a boa. This done, he turns the pelt inside out, like a pantaloon leg, gives it a good stretching so as almost to double its diameter, and at last hangs it well spread to the rigging to dry. Ere long it is taken down, when removing some three feet of it towards the pointed extremity. 
and then cutting two slits for armholes at the other end, he lengthwise slips himself bodily into it. The mincer now stands before you invested in the full canonicals of his calling. Immemorial to all his order, this investiture alone will adequately protect him while employed in the peculiar functions of his office. That office consists in mincing the horse-pieces of blubber for the pots, an operation which is conducted at a curious wooden horse, planted endwise against the bulwarks, and with a capacious tub beneath it, into which the minced pieces drop, fast as the sheets from a rapt orator's desk. Arrayed in decent black, occupying a conspicuous pulpit, intent on Bible leaves, what a candidate for an archbishopric, what a lad for a pope, were this mincer. Footnote. Bible leaves! Bible leaves! This is the invariable cry from the mates to the mincer. It enjoins him to be careful and cut his work into as thin slices as possible, inasmuch as, by so doing, the business of boiling out the oil is much accelerated, and its quantity considerably increased, besides perhaps improving it in quality. End of footnote. Chapter 96 the Triworks. Besides her hoisted boats, an American whaler is outwardly distinguished by her triworks. She presents the curious anomaly of the most solid masonry joining with oak and hemp in constituting the completed ship. It is as if from the open field a brick kiln were transported to her planks. The triworks are planted between the foremast and the mainmast the most roomy part of the deck. The timbers beneath are of a peculiar strength, fitted to sustain the weight of an almost solid mass of brick and mortar some ten feet by eight square, and five in height. The foundation does not penetrate the deck, but the masonry is firmly secured to the surface by ponderous knees of iron, bracing it on all sides, and screwing it down to the timbers. On the flanks it is cased with wood, and at top completely covered by a large sloping battened hatchway. Removing this hatch we expose the great tripods, two in number, and each of several barrels capacity. When not in use they are kept remarkably clean. Sometimes they are polished with soapstone and sand, till they shine within like silver punch-bowls. During the night watches some cynical old sailors will crawl into them and coil themselves away there for a nap. While employed in polishing them, one man in each pot side by side, many confidential communications are carried on over the iron lips. It is a place also for profound mathematical meditation. It was in the left-hand tripod of the Pequod, with the soapstone diligently circling round me, that I was first indirectly struck by the remarkable fact that in geometry all bodies gliding along the cycloid, my soapstone, for example, will descend from any point in precisely the same time. Removing the fireboard from the front of the triworks, the bare masonry of that side is exposed, penetrated by the two iron mouths of the furnaces, directly underneath the pots. These mouths are fitted with heavy doors of iron. 
the intense heat of the fire is prevented from communicating itself to the deck by means of a shallow reservoir extending under the entire enclosed surface of the works. By a tunnel inserted at the rear, this reservoir is kept replenished with water as fast as it evaporates. There are no external chimneys, they open direct from the rear wall. And here let us go back for a moment. It was about nine o'clock at night that the Pequod's triworks were first started on this present voyage. It belonged to Stubb to oversee the business. All ready there? Off hatch then, and starter. You cook, fire the works. This was an easy thing, for the carpenter had been thrusting his shavings into the furnace throughout the passage. Here be it said that in a whaling voyage the first fire in the triworks has to be fed for a time with wood. After that no wood is used except as a means of quick ignition to the staple fuel. In a word, after being tried out, the crisp shriveled blubber, now called scraps or fritters, still contains considerable of its unctuous properties. These fritters feed the flames. Like a plethoric burning martyr or self-consuming misanthrope, once ignited, the whale supplies his own fuel and burns by his own body. Would that he consumed his own smoke, for his smoke is horrible to inhale, and inhale it you must, and not only that, but you must live in it for the time. It has an unspeakable wild Hindu odor about it, such as may lurk in the vicinity of funeral pyres. It smells like the left wing of the day of judgment. It is an argument for the pit. By midnight the works were in full operation. We were clear from the carcass, sail had been made, the wind was freshening, the wild ocean darkness was intense. But that darkness was licked up by the fierce flames, which at intervals forked forth from the sooty flues and illuminated every lofty rope in the rigging, as with the famed Greek fire. The burning ship drove on as if remorselessly commissioned to some vengeful deed, so the pitch and sulphur-freighted brigs of the bold hydriote Canaris, issuing from their midnight harbours with broad sheets of flame for sails, bore down upon the Turkish frigates and folded them in conflagrations. The hatch, removed from the top of the works, now afforded a wide hearth in front of them. Standing on this were the Tartarian shapes of the pagan harpooners, always the whale-ship's stokers, with huge pronged poles they pitched hissing masses of blubber into the scalding pots, or stirred up the fires beneath, till the snaky flames darted, curling out of the doors to catch them by the feet. The smoke rolled away in sullen heaps. To every pitch of the ship there was a pitch of the boiling oil, which seemed all eagerness to leap into their faces. Opposite the mouth of the works, on the further side of the wide wooden hearth, was the windlass. This served for a sea-sofa. Here lounged the watch, when not otherwise employed, looking into the red heat of the fire till our eyes felt scorched in their heads. Their tawny features, now all begrimed with smoke and sweat, their matted beards, and the contrasting barbaric brilliancy of their teeth, all these were strangely revealed in the capricious emblazonings of the works. As they narrated to each other their unholy adventures, their tales of terror told in words of mirth, as their uncivilized laughter forked upwards out of them, like the flames from the furnace, 
as to and fro in their front the harpooners wildly gesticulated with their huge pronged forks and dippers as the wind howled on and the sea leaped and the ship groaned and dived and yet steadfastly shot her red hell further and further into the blackness of the sea and the night and scornfully champed the white bone in her mouth and viciously spat round her on all sides then the rushing pequod freighted with savages and laden with fire and burning a corpse and plunging into that blackness of darkness seemed the material counterpart of her monomaniac commander's soul so seemed it to me as i stood at her helm and for long hours silently guided the way of this fire-ship on the sea wrapped for that interval in darkness myself i but the better saw the redness the madness the ghastliness of others the continual sight of the fiend shapes before me capering half in smoke and half in fire these at last begat kindred visions in my soul so soon as i began to yield to that unaccountable drowsiness which ever would come over me at a midnight helm but that night in particular a strange and ever since inexplicable thing occurred to me starting from a brief standing sleep i was horribly conscious of something fatally wrong the jawbone tiller smote my side which leaned against it in my ears was the low hum of sails just beginning to shake in the wind i thought my eyes were open i was half conscious of putting my fingers to the lids and mechanically stretching them still further apart but spite of all this i could see no compass before me to steer by though it seemed but a minute since i had been watching the card by the steady binnacle lamp illuminating it nothing seemed before me but a jet gloom now and then made ghastly by flashes of redness uppermost was the impression that whatever swift rushing thing i stood on was not so much bound to any haven ahead as rushing from all havens astern a stark bewildered feeling as of death came over me convulsively my hands grasped the tiller but with the crazy conceit that the tiller was somehow in some enchanted way inverted my god what is the matter with me i thought lo in my brief sleep i had turned myself about and was fronting the ship's stern with my back to her prow and the compass in an instant i faced back just in time to prevent the vessel from flying up into the wind and very probably capsizing her how glad and how grateful the relief from this unnatural hallucination of the night and the fatal contingency of being brought by the lee look not too long in the face of fire o man never dream with thy hand on the helm turn not thy back to the compass accept the first hint of the hitching tiller believe not the artificial fire when its redness makes all things look ghastly to-morrow in the natural sun the skies will be bright those who glared like devils in the forking flames the morn will show in far other at least gentler relief the glorious golden glad sun the only true lamp all others but liars nevertheless the sun hides not virginia's dismal swamp nor rome's accursed campagna nor wide sahara nor all the millions of miles of deserts and of griefs beneath the moon the sun hides not the ocean which is the dark side of this earth and which is two-thirds of this earth 
So, therefore, that mortal man who hath more of joy than sorrow in him, that mortal man cannot be true, not true or undeveloped. With books the same, the truest of all men was the man of sorrows, and the truest of all books is Solomon's, and Ecclesiastes is the fine-hammered steel of woe. All is vanity, all. This willful world hath not got hold of unchristian Solomon's wisdom yet. But he who dodges hospitals and jails, and walks fast crossing graveyards, and would rather talk of operas than hell, calls Cowper, Young, Pascal, Rousseau, poor devils all of sick men, and throughout a carefree lifetime swears by Rabelais as passing wise and therefore jolly, not that man is fitted to sit down on tombstones and break the green damp mould with unfathomably wondrous Solomon. But even Solomon, he says, the man that wandereth out of the way of understanding shall remain, i.e., even while living, in the congregation of the dead. Give not thyself up then to fire, lest it invert thee, deaden thee, as for the time it did me. There is a wisdom that is woe, but there is a woe that is madness. And there is a Catskill eagle in some souls that can alike dive down into the blackest gorges, and soar out of them again, and become invisible in the sunny spaces. And even if he forever flies within the gorge, that gorge is in the mountains, so that even in his lowest swoop the mountain eagle is still higher than other birds upon the plain even though they soar. End of chapters 92 to 96 Moby Dick, chapters 97 to 100 this is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This reading by Stuart Wills. Moby Dick by Herman Melville, chapters 97 to 100. Chapter 97 The Lamp had you descended from the Pequod's triworks to the Pequod's forecastle, where the off-duty watch were sleeping, for one single moment you would have almost thought you were standing in some illuminated shrine of canonized kings and counsellors. There they lay in their triangular oaken vaults, each mariner a chiseled muteness, a score of lamps flashing upon his hooded eyes. In merchantmen, oil for the sailor is more scarce than the milk of queens. To dress in the dark, to eat in the dark, and stumble in darkness to his pallet, this is his usual lot. But the whaleman, as he seeks the food of light, so he lives in light. He makes his berth an Aladdin's lamp, and lays him down to it, so that in the pitchest night the ship's black hull still houses an illumination." See with what entire freedom the whaleman takes his handful of lamps, often but old bottles and vials, though, to the copper cooler at the triworks, and replenishes them there as mugs of ale at a vat. He burns, too, the purest of oils, in its unmanufactured and therefore unvitiated state. 
a fluid unknown to solar, lunar, or astral contrivances ashore. It is as sweet as early grass butter in April. He goes and hunts for his oil, so as to be sure of its freshness and genuineness, even as the traveller on the prairie hunts up his own supper of game. Chapter 98 Stowing Down and Clearing Up Already it has been related how the great Leviathan is afar-off descried from the masthead, how he is chased over the watery moors and slaughtered in the valleys of the deep, how he is then towed alongside and beheaded, and how, on the principle which entitled the headsman of old to the garments in which the beheaded was killed, his great padded surtout becomes the property of his executioner, how in due time he is condemned to the pots, and like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, his spermaceti, oil, and bone pass unscathed through the fire. But now it remains to conclude the last chapter of this part of the description by rehearsing, singing if I may, the romantic proceeding of decanting off his oil into the casks and striking them down into the hold, where once again Leviathan returns to his native profundities, sliding along beneath the surface as before, but, alas, never more to rise and blow. While still warm, the oil, like hot punch, is received into the six-barrel casks, and while, perhaps, the ship is pitching and rolling this way and that in the midnight sea, the enormous casks are slewed round and headed over, end for end, and sometimes perilously scoot across the slippery deck, like so many landslides, till at last manhandled and stayed in their course, and all round the hoops rap-rap go as many hammers as can play upon them, for now ex officio every sailor is a cooper. At length, when the last pint is casked, and all is cool, then the great hatchways are unsealed, the bowels of the ship are thrown open, and down go the casks to their final rest in the sea. This done, the hatches are replaced and hermetically closed, like a closet walled up. In the sperm fishery this is perhaps one of the most remarkable incidents in all the business of whaling. One day the planks stream with freshets of blood and oil, on the sacred quarter-deck enormous masses of the whale's head are profanely piled, great rusty casks lie about as in a brewery yard, the smoke from the triworks is besooted all the bulwarks, the mariners go about suffused with unctuousness, the entire ship seems great leviathan himself, while on all hands the din is deafening. But a day or two after, you look about you and prick your ears in this self-same ship, and were it not for the tell-tale boats and triworks, you would all but swear you trod some silent merchant vessel with a most scrupulously neat commander. The unmanufactured sperm oil possesses a singularly cleansing virtue. This is the reason why the decks never look so white as just after what they call an affair of oil. Besides, from the ashes of the burned scraps of the whale, a potent lie is readily made, and whenever any adhesiveness from the back of the whale remains clinging to the side, that lie quickly exterminates it. Hands go diligently along the bulwarks, and with buckets of water and rags to restore them to their full tidiness. The soot is brushed from the lower rigging. All the numerous implements which have been in use are likewise faithfully cleansed and put away. 
the great hatch is scrubbed and placed upon the triworks, completely hiding the pots. Every cask is out of sight, all tackles are coiled in unseen nooks, and when, by the combined and simultaneous industry of almost the entire ship's company, the whole of this conscientious duty is at last concluded, then the crew themselves proceed to their own ablutions, shift themselves from top to toe, and finally issue to the immaculate deck, fresh and all aglow, as bridegroom new leaped from out of the daintiest Holland. Now, with elated step, they pace the planks in twos and threes, and humorously discourse of parlors, sofas, carpets, and fine cambrics, propose to mat the deck, think of having hanging to the top, object not to taking tea by moonlight on the piazza of the forecastle, To hint to such musked mariners of oil and bone and blubber were little short of audacity. They know not the thing you distantly allude to. Away, and bring us napkins. But mark, aloft there, at the three mastheads, stand three men intent on spying out more whales, which, if caught, infallibly will again soil the old oaken furniture, and drop at least one small grease spot somewhere. Yes, and many is the time when, after the severest uninterrupted labors which know no night, continuing straight through for ninety-six hours, when from the boat, where they have swelled their wrists with all day rowing on the line, they only step to the deck to carry vast chains, and heave the heavy windlass, and cut and slash, yea, and in their very sweatings to be smoked and burned anew by the combined fires of the equatorial sun and the equatorial triworks, when on the heels of all this they have finally bestirred themselves to cleanse the ship and make a spotless dairy room of it, Many is the time the poor fellows, just buttoning the necks of their clean frocks, are startled by the cry of, There she blows! And away they fly to fight another whale, and go through the whole weary thing again. Oh, my friends, but this is man-killing! Yet this is life, for hardly have we mortals, by long toilings, extracted from this world's vast bulk its small but valuable sperm, and then with weary patience cleansed ourselves from its defilements, and learned to live here in clean tabernacles of the soul, hardly is this done when, there she blows, the ghost is spouted up, and away we sail to fight some other world, and go through young life's old routine again. Oh, the metempsychosis! Oh, Pythagoras, that in bright Greece two thousand years ago did die, so good, so wise, so mild, I sailed with thee along the Peruvian coast last voyage, and, foolish as I am, taught thee, a green, simple boy, how to splice a rope. Chapter 99 The Doubloon Ere now it has been related how Ahab was wont to pace his quarter-deck, taking regular turns at either limit, the binnacle and mainmast, but in the multiplicity of other things requiring narration it has not been added how that sometimes in these walks, when most plunged in his mood, he was wont to pause in turn at each spot, and stand there strangely eyeing the particular object before him when he halted before the binnacle with his glance fastened on the pointed needle in the compass that glance shot like a javelin with the pointed intensity of his purpose 
and when resuming his walk he again paused before the mainmast, then, as the same riveted glance fastened upon the riveted gold coin there, he still wore the same aspect of nailed firmness, only dashed with a certain wild longing, if not hopefulness. But one morning, turning to pass the doubloon, he seemed to be newly attracted by the strange figures and inscriptions stamped on it, as though now, for the first time, beginning to interpret for himself, in some monomaniac way, whatever significance might lurk in them. And some certain significance lurks in all things, else all things are little worth, and the round world itself but an empty cipher, except to sell by the cartload as they do hills about Boston, to fill up some morass in the Milky Way. Now this doubloon was of purest virgin gold, raked somewhere out of the heart of gorgeous hills, whence east and west over golden sands the headwaters of many a Pactolus flows, and though now nailed amidst all the rustiness of iron bolts and the verdigrees of copper spikes, yet untouchable and immaculate to any foulness, it still preserved its Quito glow. Nor, though placed amongst a ruthless crew, and every hour passed by ruthless hands, and through the live-long nights shrouded with thick darkness which might cover any pilfering approach, nevertheless every sunrise found the doubloon where sunset left at last, for it was set apart and sanctified to one awe-striking end, and however wanton in their sailor ways, one and all, the mariners revered it as the white whale's talisman. Sometimes they talked it over in the weary watch by night, wondering whose it was to be at last, and whether he would ever live to spend it. Now those noble golden coins of South America are as medals of the sun and tropic token-pieces, here palms, alpacas, and volcanoes, suns, discs, and stars, ecliptics, horns of plenty, and rich banners waving, are in luxuriant profusion stamped, so that the precious gold seems almost to derive an added preciousness and enhancing glories by passing through those fancy mints, so Spanishly poetic. It so chanced that the doubloon of the Pequod was a most wealthy example of these things. On its round border it bore the letters, Republica del Ecuador, Quito. So this bright coin came from a country planted in the middle of the world, and beneath the great equator, and named after it. And it had been cast midway up the Andes, in the unwaning clime that knows no autumn. Zoned by those letters you saw the likeness of three Andes summits, from one a flame, a tower on another, on the third a crowing cock, while arching over all was a segment of the partitioned zodiac, the signs all marked with their usual cabalistics, and the keystone sun entering the equinoctial point at Libra. Before this equatorial coin, Ahab, not unobserved by others, was now pausing. There's something ever egotistical in mountain tops and towers, and all other grand and lofty things. Look here, three peaks as proud as Lucifer. The firm tower, that is Ahab. The volcano, that is Ahab. The courageous, the undaunted, and victorious fowl, that too is Ahab. All are Ahab. And this round gold is but the image of the rounder globe, which, like the magician's glass, 
to each and every man in turn but mirrors back his own mysterious self. Great pains, small gains for those who ask the world to solve them. It cannot solve itself. Methinks now this coined son wears a ruddy face. But see, aye, he enters the sign of storms, the equinox. And but six months before he wheeled out of a former equinox at Ares. From storm to storm. So be it, then. Born in throes, it is fit that man should live in pains and die in pangs. So be it, then. Here's stout stuff for woe to work on. So be it, then. No fairy fingers can have pressed the gold, but the devil's claws must have left their mouldings there since yesterday, murmured Starbuck to himself, leaning against the bulwarks. The old man seems to read Belshazzar's awful writing. I have never marked the coin inspectingly. He goes below. Let me read. A dark valley between three mighty heaven-abiding peaks that almost seem the trinity in some faint earthly symbol. So in this vale of death God girds us round, and over all our gloom the sun of righteousness still shines a beacon and a hope. If we bend down our eyes, the dark veil shows her mouldy soil, but if we lift them, the bright sun meets our glance halfway to cheer. Yet, oh, the great sun is no fixture. And if, at midnight, we would fain snatch some sweet solace from him, we gaze for him in vain. This coin speaks wisely, mildly, truly, but still sadly to me. I will quit it, lest truth shake me falsely. There now's the old mogul, soliloquized Stubb by the triworks. He's been twigging it, and there goes Starbuck from the same, and both with faces which I should say might be somewhere within nine fathoms long, and all from looking at a piece of gold, which did I have it now on Negro Hill or in Corlier's Hook, I'd not look at it very long ere spending it. Humph! In my poor, insignificant opinion, I regard this as queer. I have seen doubloons before now in my voyagings, your doubloons of old Spain, your doubloons of Peru, your doubloons of Chile, your doubloons of Bolivia, your doubloons of Papillon, with plenty of gold moiderets and pistoles, and joes and half-joes and quarter-joes. What should there then be in this doubloon of the equator that is so killing wonderful? By Golconda, let me read it once. Hello! Here's signs and wonders truly. That now is what old Bowditch in his epitome calls the Zodiac, and what my almanac below calls Ditto. I'll get the almanac, and as I have heard devils can be raised with Dabol's arithmetic, I'll try my hand at raising a meaning out of these queer curvicues here with the Massachusetts calendar. Here's the book. Let's see now. Signs and wonders, and the sun, he's always among em. Hem, hem, hem. Here they are. Here they go. All alive. Ares, or the ram. Taurus, or the bull. And Jiminy. Here's Gemini himself, or the twins. Well, the sun, he wheels among em. Aye, here on the coin, he's just crossing the threshold between two of the twelve sitting-rooms all in a ring. Book. You lie there. The fact is, you books must know your places. 
You do to give us the bare words and facts, but we come in to supply the thoughts. That's my small experience, so far as the Massachusetts calendar and Bowditch's navigator and de Bull's arithmetic go. Signs and wonders, eh? Pity if there is nothing wonderful in signs and significant in wonders. There's a clue somewhere. Wait a bit. Hist! Hark! By Jove! I have it! Look you, doubloon! Your zodiac here is the life of man in one round chapter. And now I'll read it off, straight out of the book. Come, almanac. To begin, there's Ares, or the ram. Lecherous dog, he begets us. Then Taurus, or the bull, he bumps us the first thing. Then Gemini, or the twins, that is, virtue and vice. We try to reach virtue. When, lo, comes Cancer the crab, and drags us back. And here, going from virtue, Leo, a roaring lion, lies in the path. He gives a few fierce bites and surly dabs with his paw. We escape and hail Virgo, the virgin. That's our first love. We marry and think to be happy for I. When pop comes Libra or the scales, happiness weighed and found wanting. And while we are very sad about that, Lord, how we suddenly jump, as Scorpio or the scorpion stings us in the rear. We are curing the wound, when wang come the arrows all around. Sagittarius, or the archer, is amusing himself. As we pluck out the shafts, stand aside. Here's the battering ram, Capricornus, or the goat. Full tilt he comes rushing, and headlong we are tossed, when Aquarius, or the water-bearer, pours out his whole deluge and drowns us. And to wind up with Pisces, or the fishes, we sleep. There's a sermon now, writ in high heaven and the sun goes through it every year, and yet comes out of it all alive and hearty. Jollily he, aloft there, wheels through toil and trouble, and so, alo here, does jolly stub. Ah, jolly's the word for I. Adieu, doubloon. But stop. Here comes little King Post. Dodge round the triworks. Now, and let's hear what he'll have to say. There, he's before it. He'll out with something presently. So, so, he's beginning. I see nothing here but a round thing made of gold, and whoever raises a certain whale, this round thing belongs to him. So what's all this staring been about? It is worth sixteen dollars, that's true. And at two cents the cigar, that's uh, nine hundred and sixty cigars. I won't smoke dirty pipes like Stubb, but I like cigars. And here's nine hundred and sixty of them. So here goes Flask aloft to spy em out. Shall I call that wise or foolish now? If it be really wise, it has a foolish look to it. Yet if it be really foolish, then it has a sort of wisish look to it. But avast, here comes our old Manxman, the old hearse-driver he must have been, that is, before he took to the sea. He luffs up before the doubloon. Hello, and goes round the other side of the mast. Why, there's a horseshoe nailed on that side. And now he's back again. What does that mean? Hark! He's muttering. Voice like an old, worn-out coffee-mill. Prick ears and listen. If the white whale be raised, it must be in a month and a day when the sun stands in some one of these signs. I've studied signs, and know their marks. They were taught me two score years ago by an old witch in Copenhagen. Now, in what sign will the sun then be? 
the horseshoe sign for there it is right opposite the gold and what's the horseshoe sign the lion is the horseshoe sign the roaring and devouring lion ship old ship my old head shakes to think of thee there's another rendering now but still one text all sorts of men in one kind of world you see dodge again here comes queequeg all tattooing looks like the signs of the zodiac himself what says the cannibal as i live he's comparing notes looking at his thigh bone thinks the sun is in the thigh or in the calf or in the bowels i suppose as the old women talk surgeon's astronomy in the back country and by jove he's found something there in the vicinity of his thigh i guess it's sagittarius or the archer no he don't know what to make of the doubloon he takes it for an old button off some king's trousers but aside again here comes that ghost devil fadala tail coiled out of sight as usual oakum in the toes of his pumps as usual what does he say with that look of his ah only makes a sign to the sign and bows himself there is a sun on the coin fire worshipper depend upon it oh more and more this way comes pip poor boy would he had died or i he's half horrible to me he too has been watching all these interpreters myself included and look now he comes to read with that unearthly idiot face stand away again and hear him hark i look you look he looks we look ye look they look upon my soul he's been studying murray's grammar improving his mind poor fellow but what's that he says now hist i look you look he looks we look ye look they look why he's getting it by heart hist again i look you look he looks we look ye look they look well that's funny and i you and he and we ye and they are all bats and i'm a crow especially when i stand atop of this pine tree here caw 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 ain't i a crow and where's the scarecrow there he stands two bones stuck into a pair of old trousers and two more poked into the sleeves of an old jacket wonder if he means me complimentary poor lad i could go and hang myself anyway for the present i'll quit pip's vicinity i can stand the rest for they have plain wits but he's too crazy witty for my sanity so so i leave him muttering here's the ship's navel this doubloon here and they are all on fire to unscrew it but unscrew your navel and what's the consequence then again if it stays here that is ugly too for when aught's nailed to the mast it's a sign that things grow desperate ha ha old ahab the white whale he'll nail you this is a pine tree my father in old tallon county cut down a pine tree once and found a silver ring grown over in it some old darkie's wedding ring how did it get there and so they'll say in the resurrection when they come to fish up this old mast 
and find a doubloon lodged in it, with bedded oysters for the shaggy bark. Oh, the gold! The precious, precious gold! The green miser'll hoard ye soon. Hish! Hish! God goes mong the worlds blackberrying. Cook! Ho! Cook! And cook us! Jenny! Hey! 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 Jenny! Jenny! And get your hoe-cake done! Chapter 100 Leg and Arm The Pequod of Nantucket meets the Samuel Enderby of London. Ship ahoy! Has seen the white whale! So cried Ahab, once more hailing a ship showing English colors, bearing down under the stern. Trumpet to mouth, the old man was standing in his hoisted quarter-boat, his ivory leg plainly revealed to the stranger captain, who was carelessly reclining in his own boat's bow. He was a darkly tanned, burly, good-natured, fine-looking man of sixty or thereabouts, dressed in a spacious roundabout that hung round him in festoons of blue pilot-cloth, and one empty arm of this jacket streamed behind him like the broidered arm of a hussar's surcoat. "'Has seen the white whale!' "'See you this!' And withdrawing it from the folds that had hidden it, he held up a white arm of sperm-whale bone, terminating in a wooden head like a mallet. "'Man my boat!' cried Ahab, impetuously, and tossing about the oars near him. "'Stand by to lower!' In less than a minute, without quitting his little craft, he and his crew were dropped to the water, and were soon alongside of the stranger. But here a curious difficulty presented itself. In the excitement of the moment Ahab had forgotten that since the loss of his leg he had never once stepped on board of any vessel at sea but his own, and then it was always by an ingenious and very handy mechanical contrivance peculiar to the Pequod, and a thing not to be rigged and shipped in any other vessel at a moment's warning. Now it is no very easy matter for anybody, except those who are almost hourly used to it like whalemen, to clamber up a ship's side from a boat on the open sea, for the great swells now lift the boat high up toward the bulwarks, then instantaneously drop it halfway down to the kelson. So deprived of one leg, and the strange ship of course being altogether unsupplied with the kindly invention, Ahab now found himself abjectly reduced to a clumsy landsman again, hopelessly eyeing the uncertain changeful height he could hardly hope to attain. It has before been hinted, perhaps, that every little untoward circumstance that befell him, and which indirectly sprang from his luckless mishap, almost invariably irritated or exasperated Ahab. And in the present instance, all this was heightened by the sight of the two officers of the strange ship, leaning over the side, by the perpendicular ladder of nailed cleats there, and swinging towards him a pair of tastefully ornamented man-ropes. For at first they did not seem to bethink them that a one-legged man must be too much of a cripple to use their sea-banisters. But this awkwardness only lasted a minute, because the strange captain, observing at a glance how affairs stood, cried out, I see, I see, a vast heaving there. Jump, boys, and swing over the cutting tackle. As good luck would have it, they had had a whale alongside a day or two previous, and the great tackles were still aloft, and the massive curved blubber-hook, now clean and dry, was still attached to the end. 
This was quickly lowered to Ahab, who, at once comprehending it all, slid his solitary thigh into the curve of the hook, it was like sitting in the fluke of an anchor or the crotch of an apple tree, and then giving the word held himself fast, and at the same time also helped to hoist his own weight by pulling hand over hand upon one of the running parts of the tackle. Soon he was carefully swung inside the high bulwarks and gently landed upon the capstan head. With his ivory arm frankly thrust forth and welcome, the other captain advanced, and Ahab, putting out his ivory leg, and crossing the ivory arm like two swordfish blades, cried out in his walrus way, Aye, aye, hearty, let us shake bones together, an arm and a leg, an arm that never can shrink, do you see, and a leg that never can run. Where didst thou see the white whale? How long ago? The white whale, said the Englishman, pointing his ivory arm towards the east, and taking a rueful sight along it, as if it had been a telescope. There I saw him, on the line last season. And he took that arm off, did he? asked Ahab, now sliding down from the capstan, and resting on the Englishman's shoulder as he did so. Aye, he was the cause of it at least. And that leg, too? Spin me the yarn, said Ahab. How was it? "'It was the first time in my life that I ever cruised on the line,' began the Englishman. "'I was ignorant of the white whale at that time. "'Well, one day we lowered for a pod of four or five whales, "'and my boat fastened to one of them. "'A regular circus horse he was, too, "'that went milling and milling round so, "'that my boat's crew could only trim dish "'by setting all their sterns on the outer gunwale.' Presently up breaches from the bottom of the sea a bouncing great whale, with a milky white head and hump, all crow's feet and wrinkles. It was he! It was he! cried Ahab, suddenly letting out his suspended breath. And harpoon sticking in near his starboard fin. Aye, aye, they were mine, my irons! cried Ahab exultingly. But on! "'Give me a chance, then,' said the Englishman, good-humouredly. "'Well, this old great-grandfather, with a white head and hump, "'runs all a foam into the pod, "'and goes to snapping furiously at my fast-line. "'Aye, I see. Wanted to part it. Free the fast fish. An old trick. I know him.' "'How it was exactly,' continued the one-armed commander, "'I do not know. But in biting the line it got foul of his teeth.' caught there somehow, but we didn't know it then, so that when we afterwards pulled on the line, bounce we came plump on to his hump, instead of the other whales that went off to windward, all fluking. Seeing how matters stood, and what a noble great whale it was, the noblest and biggest I ever saw, sir, in my life, I resolved to capture him, in spite of the boiling rage he seemed to be in, and thinking the haphazard line would get loose, or the tooth it was tangled to might draw, for I have a devil of a boat's crew for a pull on a whale line. Seeing all this, I say, I jumped into my first mate's boat. Now, Mr. Mounttop's here. And by the way, Captain, Mounttop, Mounttop, the Captain. As I was saying, I jumped into Mounttop's boat, which, do you see, was gunnel and gunnel with mine. Then, snatching the first harpoon, let this old great-grandfather have it. But, Lord, look you, sir. "'Hearts and souls alive, man. "'The next instant, in a jiff, I was blind as a bat, "'both eyes out, all befogged and bedeadened with black foam. 
the whale's tail looming straight up out of it, perpendicular in the air like a marble steeple. No use sterning all then, but as I was groping at midday, with a blinding sun all crown jewels, as I was groping, I say, after the second iron to toss it overboard, down comes the tail like a lima tower, cutting my boat in two, leaving each half in splinters, and flukes first the white hump backed through the wreck, as though it was all chips. We all struck out. To escape his terrible flailings, I seized hold of my harpoon pole sticking in him, and for a moment clung to that like a sucking fish. But the combing sea dashed me off, and at the same instant the fish, taking one good dart forward, went down in a flash, and the barb of that cursed second iron towing along near me caught me here, clapping his hand just below his shoulder. Yes, caught me just here, I say, and bore me down to hell's flames, I was thinking, when, when all of a sudden, thank the good God, the barb ripped its way along the flesh, clear along the whole length of my arm, came out nigh my wrist, and up I floated. And that gentleman there will tell you the rest. By the way, Captain, Dr. Bunger, ship surgeon. Bunger, my lad, the captain. Now, Bunger boy, spin your part of the yarn. The professional gentleman, thus familiarly pointed out, had been all the time standing near them, with nothing specific visible to denote his gentlemanly rank on board. His face was an exceedingly round but sober one. He was dressed in a faded blue woolen frock or shirt and patched trousers, and had thus far been dividing his attention between a marling spike he held in one hand and a pill-box held in the other, occasionally casting a critical glance at the ivory limbs of the two crippled captains. But at his superior's introduction of him to Ahab, he politely bowed, and straightway went on to do his captain's bidding. "'It was a shocking bad wound.' began the whale-surgeon, and, taking my advice, Captain Boomer here stood our old Sammy. "'Samuel Enderby is the name of my ship,' interrupted the one-armed captain, addressing Ahab. "'Go on, my boy.' "'Stood our old Sammy off to the northward, to get out of the blazing hot weather there on the line. But it was no use. I did all I could, sat up with him nights, was very severe with him in the matter of diet. "'Oh, very severe!' chimed in the patient himself, then suddenly altering his voice, drinking hot rum toddies with me every night till he couldn't see to put on the bandages, and sending me to bed half seas over about three o'clock in the morning. Oh, ye stars! He sat up with me, indeed, and was very severe in my diet. Oh, a great watcher, and very dietetically severe as Dr. Bunger. "'Bunger, you dog, laugh out, why don't you? "'You know you're a precious jolly rascal. "'But heave ahead, boy. "'I'd rather be killed by you than kept alive by any other man.' "'My captain, you must have ere this perceived, respected sir,' "'said the imperturbable, godly-looking Bunger, "'slightly bowing to Ahab, "'is apt to be facetious at times. "'He spins us many clever things of that sort.' But I may as well say, en passant, as the French remark, that I myself, that is to say, Jack Bunger, late of the reverend clergy, am a strict, total abstinence man. I never drink— Water! cried the captain. He never drinks it. It's a sort of fits to him. Fresh water throws him into the hydrophobia. But go on, go on with the arm story. Yes, I may as well, 
said the surgeon coolly. I was about observing, sir, before Captain Boomer's facetious interruption, that, spite of my best and severest endeavours, the wound kept getting worse and worse. The truth was, sir, it was as ugly, gaping a wound as surgeon ever saw, more than two feet and several inches long. I measured it with the lead line. In short, it grew black. I knew what was threatened, and off it came. But I had no hand in shipping that ivory arm there. That thing is against all rule. Pointing at it with the marling spike, that is the captain's work, not mine. He ordered the carpenter to make it. Uh, he had that club hammer there put to the end to knock someone's brains out with, I suppose, as he tried mine once. He flies into diabolical passions sometimes. Do you see this dent, sir? Removing his hat and brushing aside his hair and exposing a bowl-like cavity in his skull, but which bore not the slightest scarry trace nor any token of ever having been a wound. Well, the captain there will tell you how that came here. He knows. No, I don't, said the captain. But his mother did. He was born with it. Oh, you solemn rogue, you, you bunger. Was there ever such another bunger in the watery world? Bunger, when you die, you ought to die in pickle, you dog. You should be preserved to future ages, you rascal. What became of the white whale? now cried Ahab, who thus far had been impatiently listening to this by-play between the two Englishmen. "'Oh!' cried the one-armed captain. "'Oh, yes. Well, after he sounded, we didn't see him again for some time. In fact, as I before hinted, I didn't then know what whale it was that had served me such a trick, till some time afterwards, when coming back to the line, we heard about Moby Dick, as some call him, and then I knew it was he.' "'Didst thou cross his wake again?' twice but could not fasten didn't want to try to ain't one limb enough what should i do without this other arm and i'm thinking moby dick doesn't bite so much as he swallows well then interrupted bunger give him your left arm for bait to get the right do you know gentlemen very gravely and mathematically bowing to each captain in succession do you know, gentlemen, that the digestive organs of the whale are so inscrutably constructed by divine providence that it is quite impossible for him to completely digest even a man's arm? And he knows it, too. So that what you take for the white whale's malice is only his awkwardness, for he never means to swallow a single limb. He only thinks to terrify by faints." but sometimes he is like the old juggling fellow, formerly a patient of mine in Ceylon, that making believe to swallow jackknives, once upon a time let one drop into him in good earnest, and there it stayed for a twelve-month or more, when I gave him an emetic, and he heaved it up in small tacks, do you see? No possible way for him to digest that jackknife and fully incorporate it into his general bodily system." "'Yes, Captain Boomer, if you are quick enough about it, and have a mind to pawn one arm for the sake of the privilege of giving a decent burial to the other, why, in that case, the arm is yours. Only let the whale have another chance at you shortly, that's all.' "'No, thank you, Bunger,' said the English captain. "'He's welcome to the arm he has, since I can't help it, and didn't know him then, but not to the other one. No more white whales for me.' I've lowered for him once, and that has satisfied me. There would be great glory in killing him, I know that. And there is a shipload of precious sperm in him. 
But hark ye, he's best let alone. Don't you think so, Captain? Glancing at the ivory leg. He is, but he will still be hunted for all that. What's best let alone, that accursed thing is not always what least allures. He's all a magnet. How long since thou saw him last? Which way heading? Bless my soul, and curse the foul fiends, cried Bunger, stoopingly walking round Ahab, and like a dog strangely snuffing. This man's blood! Bring the thermometer! It's at the boiling point! His pulse makes these planks beat! Sir! Taking a lancet from his pocket, and drawing near to Ahab's arm. Avast! roared Ahab, dashing him against the bulwarks. Man the boat! Which way heading? "'Good God!' cried the English captain, to whom the question was put. "'What's the matter? He was heading east, I think. "'Is your captain crazy?' whispering Fadala. But Fadala, putting a finger on his lips, slid over the bulwark to take the boat's steering oar, and Ahab, swinging the cutting tackle towards him, commanded the ship's sailors to stand by to lower. In a moment he was standing in the boat's stern, and the Manila men were springing to their oars. In vain the English captain hailed him. With back to the stranger ship, and face set like a flint to his own, Ahab stood upright till alongside of the Pequod. End of chapters 97 to 100